everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 323. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, we're going to talk about one of the worst, maybe greatest, worst pay-per-views of all time. And it's going to be quite the show this week. We just had Blackjack Brawl, and now we have this show. What, I mean, what a run we've been having the past uh, few weeks here on Between the Sheets, huh? Let's hear it for the startups. Let's let's hear it for the bulges, <laughs> or whatever the, the the snake penises. Yeah, or well, it's a, a, a well. I, I believe the correct way to put it would be the the snake used as a phallus, the the pregnant iron sheik, or whatever. But yes, yes, we are going to talk about heroes of wrestling this week, and yes, we do have a guest, and. Uh, I tell you what, we got a great one for this one. Uh, we are joined by one of our favorite guests. Fans love him. We love him. Glad to have him back on after a long absence. And uh, he uh, was reunited recently in the announce booth with another great friend of ours, reuniting the greatest announced team in the history of independent wrestling. As we are joined by wrestling announcer and wrestling promoter extraordinaire, the legendary Dave Prezak. Dave, welcome back to the show. What's up, guys? What's up, I am man? back, and uh, and I I actually in preparation for this show, much like the last time I was on uh, when I rewatched the Big Egg gimmick. Yes, uh, this was a much different experience when I rewatched the Heroes of Wrestling. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> the anti- yeah, I subjected myself to that, so <laughs> it is what it is. But uh, yeah, I think that the opening line of uh, text from your notes for this show sums it up very well. Yes, yes, it does. Now, this is a different uh, week than normal because. We're only going to do October the 6th through the 10th because we already did October 11th on a show years ago. We did, I think, a show 117. So we only have five days, which means we have no Raw and Nitro this week. And still, this show is 37 pages long about <laughs> Raw and Nitro. Mainly because of this bullshit we're about to get into. Because there are so many details about how terrible, how completely <laughs> awful this show was. <laughs> that you have to document every single part of it. Now, Absolutely. did you go into Figure 4 at all or just Observer and Torch? Well, Figure Four's not online. Okay. I think we might have some of the older ones, actually. I'm not sure. It's not on the, it's not on the website. But anyway. Actually, wait a second. No, I thought that one was online. Because the... the, the, the the m- m- negative more stars than there are in the entire universe. I remember people posting online all the it's, time. It's not on the website okay. database. All they have in October 99 is observers. Hmm. But anyway, all right, so let's talk about Heroes of Wrestling, shall we? Dave Melser leads off. It was the worst pay-per-view of all time. See, that, that sums it up, that first line. It was the worst pay-per-view show of all time, and I think that still still is true today. It set new standards for bad wrestling. It made former worst match of the year winners like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior look like great athletic contests. Big Boss Man versus Al Snow with dogs around the ring bar less than many matches on this show. Perhaps the only positive note when seeing so many former stars who know exactly what to do. 
being physically unable to do it. Makes you marvel just how good men like Ric Flair, Dos Caras, Granjamada, and then the day people like Nick Botwinkle were when they could still put on decent matches as they hit the half century mark. You know, it's funny reading this because you look at like some of these guys now, like Sting, who uh, we'll talk about this later on the show with uh, with Sting. It's, we're recording this out of order, folks, if you don't know that already, how we do this. Sting is the same. Well, Sting is actually like a month or two older than Gorilla Monsoon was when Gorilla Monsoon died. Jeez. And Sting is wrestling, doing high spots on AEW shows now. And we've seen other people in their 50s, you know, and older, go out there and just, you know, have great matches or put on great performances. And then you see some of the talent on this show, which, again, these these guys live hard lives for many years, and they aged. And it took a toll on a lot of them. But, yeah, there were the lucky ones, like Flair and... You know, Botwinkle and guys like that, that, that when they got older, they Tenru. still... How is Tenru not mentioned Tenru. here? Tenru. This is 99, I guess. So they, he's not in know... his 50s yet. <clears throat> well, he, he maybe no, he is, actually. Yeah, wait a second. How old is Tenru here? <clears throat> Tenru was 49. Okay. So he wasn't 50 yet. But, but yeah, I mean, just some great guys. But, yeah, this show is definitely not it. That's for damn sure. There's almost nothing good to write about the October 10th Heroes of Wrestling debut show from Casino Magic in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi for a mainly paper crowd of 2,300 largely non-wrestling fans. Dutch Mantell did a good job on color commentary. But the play-by-play man, Randy Rosenblum, a Los Angeles sportscaster with no knowledge of wrestling, was so bad, it ranked among the worst announced pay-per-view spectacles ever. Ranking only ahead of a drunk Herb Abram screaming, let's hear it for the Jews! Now, wait a second. <laughs> he wasn't One, drunk, Dave. <laughs> well, legend has it that Herb Abram screamed that, but there is no video evidence that has survived. And he also was not the time. announcer. I mean, he did the he did the post-match interviews, but he was not. He pretty, well, he was announcing a lot on that no, show. He, he, had, he had a microphone in his hands, so that's <laughs> that yeah. was the key. If it, if it was said... Then uh, that counts as announcing such a thing. On but yes, <laughs> I don't. I don't think drunk really properly describes the Coach scenario. The Impaired <laughs> off his tits. <laughs> like I said, coked to the bejesus, Herb Abrams. But yes, Tully Blanchard cut a good promo and appeared in good shape, but his knees were shot, and he was unable to do a thing with Stan Lane. Took old Scorpio and Julio Fantastico had the best match in the show, and at best, it was indie-level work of two guys who didn't work well at all together, but did modern moves. There was also a shocking amount of response to the show. It may have done break-even numbers on pay-per-view. Although if they do a second show in late February, it was just, as was the original plan, it doesn't have a prayer. I bought this show. <laughs> I bought this show. And I was just, for curiosity and... All that, and boy, afterwards, I was like, man, I'm glad I bought this show. <laughs> I mean, because it was so fucking bad. And it's funny how Dave talks about, you know, Herb Abrams saying, let's hear it for the Jews, when the announcer he's comparing him to is in the Southern California Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, Randy Rosenblum is? Yeah. Randy Rosenblum. Broom. Randy Rosenblum was uh, inducted into the Southern California Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in 1996. 
So he was a Hall of Famer before this show. Oh wow! Here's what he. I mean, he he did a uh, he did play by play for the Barcelona Olympics in '92 for NBC. I don't say what he did, but oh, he's he did. On uh, he's I done. Mean, he did radio work on all kind of professional stuff. He did uh, television work for uh, for different colleges and stuff. He did the Las Vegas Posse and the CFL. I mean, he wasn't good, but at doing pro wrestling. But he was a good broadcaster. Like you could yeah, tell, he, he was a, you know bringing in a professional guy to host the show. You know, he had a good voice. He carried the broadcast well. But like, and you could tell he had like maybe a little knowledge of wrestling here and there, but. There's been a lot worse in wrestling history than Randy Rosenblum. Like, well, the, thing, the, the thing is, and you you have a great experience with someone like this, the Hog. Yeah, Mike Hogwood. Yeah, the yeah. Hog never did wrestling before, but the Hog took to it and became really you know fun and good at it. You know, as he went along. He also know? had he also had people in his ear telling him what the moves were and that, you need to be excited was, oh. now. Okay, now's the time you don't need to sound really excited. Like he, he was yeah. he was absolutely coached along the way. Uh and you know, every drop kick Rosenblum just called a leg kick or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like but in general in general, he was pretty decent. And and you know, Dutch is great at color, so and Dutch carried him through the broadcast, knowing that he wasn't necessarily a wrestling guy but honestly i mean i mean gordon Sully was originally supposed to announce the show but like you couldn't find any other i mean i hate michael st john because he he was really annoying as well but like but he was there he could and have he's an been experienced wrestling announcer. he could have been yeah he could have well, been the play-by-play guy with dutch and have rosenblum do the interviews yes. in the locker room and also um, dutch but, is but someone like, really, he's known he, for years and years but like you couldn't get like see what Dave Brown's doing, see what well, Lance, Lance, Lance is yeah. in the area. Lance yeah. ain't that far away from Bank St. Louis. Like any any Memphis type announcers that would potentially be available, or like a Les Thatcher, any of these guys. Yes. Why not? But I mean, it it could have been a lot worse. I mean, to have a non wrestling guy put in that position, it could have been a complete disaster. At least this was a professional broadcaster who just didn't specifically know some of the names of the moves. So. And for the record, it you know, and I'm sure maybe there was a way they could have flown him in. I don't know too, but it's a two and a half hour drive from Gulf Breeze, Florida. It's not far. No. Yeah. So it could have been done, but but you know. They just went with the Los Angeles guy. And who's so who was the promoter of the show? I forget again. Was it Paul Adams? Paul Adams was involved and he works the show, but I don't think he's the promoter. Um, It's oh, God. Hold on. I just had a thing open. It was kind of. Does Meltzer not mention it at any point in this? I think Way might. Uh, Hold on. um, One of the guys producing it. I saw it in the thing. Bill Stone. Thank you. Bill, Bill Stone. Billy Stone, the former president of uh, Fostone Productions. Oh, yeah, you can't. I mean, if, if you listen to any of the comments from Captain Lou Albano during commentary on the show where he mentions Bill Stone and putting on the greatest show ever, blah, blah, blah. Like he says his name. He puts over the promoter like six or seven times in a span of about five yeah. minutes. OK, I'm reading this right now. Um, this is Bill from Stone Productions. WrestlingEstate.com. They did a whole untold story of Heroes of Wrestling article. I think I read uh, that once. Yeah, Billy Stone, the promoter of Heroes of Wrestling, is, became an executive producer at CBS Sports after this. 
but he had a he had a relationship with casinos in the south, so he got Casino Magic book. He he got Mike Lombardi to be the book, the booker guy from Northeast Wrestling. Um, you know, Sid Vicious asked him supposedly to get involved. Uh, Sid was going to be in the main event guy on this show, but Sid got signed by WCW, so he got he couldn't be in the project anymore. Um, so, so yeah, they, uh, there's that, and there's a whole lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, let me see here if I see anything that catches my. I mean, there's a whole article. I don't want to read the whole article, but if you if, if everybody want to look it up as a companion piece of this this audio. WrestlingEstate.com, and yes, there's Randy Rosenblum here. He said that he skipped the USC Oregon football game to do Heroes of Wrestling. He was calling it for supposed to call for radio, <clears throat> so he said that was a radio game. This was television, so television was a priority. Um, Soli was had to drop out because he had the throat cancer, so Stone turned to Rosenblum, who they were friends, so they had a friendly relationship. See, so that's the way it always works. That's why Mike Hogwood got the job at uh, with the yeah. ROH TV too. He was Soli was the, yeah, yeah. Soli, Soli was supposed to come and help though. He may not announce that he was going to help, but he won a first class plane ticket, and Stone refused to pay it. Oh come on, Soli deserves it. Fuck. Yeah, it's it's Reem more and more. So Randy said, "I watched little pro wrestling as a kid, but pro wrestling wasn't on my radar. I didn't have a background in it, but I tried as hard as I could." If you break the camera now, my on camera is very good. He said <laughs> that um, he was trying. Uh, they were trying to teach the wrestling business to Rosenblum in just two days, and uh, it said Tully was uh, eating lunch with him and stuff, and trying to tell him and teach him and everything. Randy said it was just too much, too soon. Um, he said he asked the wrestlers before the show backstage what their signature moves were, any factoids they wanted to tell the viewers. Um, you know, he, he tried. You could, you could tell that he did some homework. Like there were a few instances during the show where he would mention something that was going to happen in the match before it actually happens. Like accidentally thinking that, like, I think he said that uh, Julio Fantastico skinned the cat like a minute and a half before he actually skins the cat when he did something else. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like you could tell he talked to the guys and wrote some stuff down. He, you know, he knew, knew the two cold Scorpio did a tumbleweed, but he didn't call the right move the tumbleweed. You know, it's like, uh, it's like when punk pulled guard on Cena and money in the bank and Michael Cole called it the Anaconda device. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and another thing to, um, they advertised solely during the pre-show as being the host of the event, and they never explained his absence on the, the show. The pre-show that consisted largely of stuff that was filmed in Bay St. Louis. And yeah. even though they didn't mention why he wasn't there, also late in the show, uh, Dutch Mantel on commentary like said something – like said a, a, a phrase that Gordon Soley always does and said, as the great Gordon Soley would always say, blah, blah, blah. It's like, OK, so now you just named your Soley without mentioning why he's not there. Uh, uh. And uh, for what it's worth, the log line for the pay-per-view in the uh, Washington Post TV listings, notorious grudge matches are settled in the ring, host Gordon Soley. Notorious yeah. grudge matches, huh? Yeah. All right, so just as the fans of Milwaukee a few years back on WFAB had to face reality of what their beloved crusher turned into in old age, so did the fans growing up on WF in the 80s had to see what happens to men who were genuine superstars in their day when their years passed their prime. 
The Iron Sheik literally was as mobile as Andre the Giant was just for his death. His match with Nikolai Volkov against the Bushwhackers was the worst match ever held on the pay-per-view. The only match the crowd seemed to get off on. Abdul the Butcher was a one-man gang. was an awful match with two men who couldn't do a thing but bleed. But they bled so much, the crowd loved the match. The producers behind the scenes hated it. And that was the problem. You have one side wanting to put on not a good show because it's really apparent due to the limitations that wasn't going to happen. But an acceptable thumbs in the middle show. You got another side wanting to see the Iron Sheet's curly toe boot. Nikolai Volkov's in the Russian National Anthem. Jake Roberts pull his snake and the newly senile uh, Lou Albano do a pathetic imitation of what he once was. As a result, it was not an average wrestling show or campy entertainment. If there's a lesson to be learned from this, is that old-timers games are great in baseball when players are wearing full uniforms, but they're only sad for people like strippers and wrestlers who work in their underwear. Yeah, I mean, what you have here is you have a promoter who was a fan of wrestling in the 80s and the people he thought were stars and the people he used in the show. You know, and that's basically what it was. Um, and that's that happened in the indie scene for many years, you know, in the 90s. You know, Dave, you know this. I mean, especially the Northeast. Look at all those main events. Oh, yeah, I, I, Iron Sheik doing the, the Persian club swinging gimmick at, in Yardville, New Jersey for Dennis Coraluzzo, and he did it on pay, on this pay-per-view as well. You know, uh, and, you know the mid-90s uh, independent scene was a lot different than what we've got on the indies today, uh, where today you see great wrestling for, for the most part, you know, athletic young guys. And back then it was, you know, the, the people that were stars in the 80s that the promoter thinks, you know, if we put Iron Cheek on the poster, if we book Nikolai Volkov, we get Bundy, we get, you know, that's what's going to draw the people. And at the time, sure, that's probably what drew a lot of the people in. They fill the undercard with local guys. But uh, I think that in this instance, like there's a way to do a Legends of Wrestling type of show like this and do it well and to hide the weaknesses of, you know, the based on, you know, the the physical limitations of the guys because they're getting up there in age or they're not as mobile as they used to be, um, where you give the fans watching at home and the live crowd the nostalgia that they're looking for. Um, and you don't rely on the actual physical part of the wrestling in the matches to be the entertainment on the show. But like you need really experienced people producing the broadcasts, putting the show together, agenting each of the matches, coming up with good finishes uh, to to successfully do it. Like they were able to do slamboree and stuff like that and have – you know, older guy. I mean, and there have been other legends shows like there's well, been on the Indies. There's been a ton of legends shows that have entertained the crowds, been good because they had the right people producing them. This was just like somebody who had enough money and enough connections with a casino to get a pay-per-view on the air and to book all of these guys. And maybe he booked all the right talent, but he didn't know how to put it together in the right way. They had shit finishes as we'll get into when we go match by match here. And it just like, and, and, and just like a terrible on a production side, a terrible television product as a result. Um, and so like, the weaknesses were not hidden whatsoever. They were on display for all to see. And that's why it came off so badly. Yeah. And, and, and 
I'll read more from this article, you know, about the production. They said that um, there were many issues between Mike Lombardi and Stone. Um, <clears throat> it said Michael St. John said there were ch- a lot of changes seemingly every hour production wise. And he said he'd been part of Super Clash 3, so he remembers how there was always, there was a, how this was like that, degree of chaos. He said, I got the feeling the concept was good, but once everybody got there, the execution got crazy. Talk about how wrestlers were missing flights. There weren't enough staff members to type up formats, set up production to coordinate with the talent. People were bogged down a lot of different responsibilities. Plus, casino personnel was bringing trays of beer into the locker room <laughs> before the show. <laughs> Lombardi says, you can't do this, but he was overruled. Lombardi said, I was told if I want to take I want to take care of the wrestlers, this is my show by Stone. Oh, well, there you go. That that just shows that the guy in charge did not give a shit about the in-ring product or how everything was presented on on camera. He just wanted to hang out with the guys and keep the guys happy. So, yeah, beer for everybody. Get get wasted before you go out on my television show. Like and and here, and, and and here's the thing here too is that uh Stone had final say over everything from which matches would take place. Lombardi credited Stone with Sheik and Volk offers the Bushwhackers and uh Stone, it says, despite production issues such as poor lighting and camera missing moves, Stone was quite pleased with the event until the Abdul the Butcher one-man gang match. An anonymous source from Fostone Productions says Stone turned to Lombardi and asked what the deal with all the blood was, to which Lombardi responded, they went off script. Wait, hold on. You book Abdul the Butcher and you're wondering why there's blood? Like, well, seriously? Like, well, what the... <laughs> Are Lombardi, you kidding me? Lombardi, Lombardi kind of refuted that, saying, I, I wouldn't say I said that. He said, I said it's improv. I have respond, re- recollection that Bill was freaked out by the amount of blood. We told Abdul to keep some things to a minimum. Why would you, but why would you even put Abdullah on the show if you wanted no blood? Like, come on. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know. It's not, well, those guys weren't, well, gang was. But Abdullah wasn't a WF guy. Yeah. So Stone, Stone probably didn't really know of Abdullah the Butcher like that. He just remembers the name or probably heard a name. So Oh, so he was just an idiot. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's kind of the vibe. Like I I say, he's, a, he's a WWF guy. I mean, he was yeah. a WWF fan. And like we talked about on the right. show, there were wrestling fans in that era that only watched WWF, just like we got now. Yeah. Even if you've never seen him before, the name Abdullah the Butcher should uh clue you in just a little bit maybe yeah. pick, pick up a pick up an old magazine and look at a couple pictures <laughs> there's gonna be a whole lot of fucking blood if abdullah the butcher is on the show yeah but you know i mean it's just it's silly yeah. all right so uh oh i just found something interesting real quick too what alex marvez's column leading into the weekend of the pay-per-view is about heroes of wrestling and he talks to bill stone yeah promoter producer bill stone he began assembling talent in may and said he's a surprised World Championship Wrestling or the World Wrestling Federation hasn't attempted to conduct a Legends pay-per-view show. I really believe this either has been an oversight or something they've chosen not to do. Why wouldn't Vince McMahon take some of the guys that built his organization and have an event that would give them the stage to perform? Um, And then Alex says, there are legitimate reasons why WCW and the WWF wouldn't be interested in such an endeavor. The WWF attempting to reach a younger demographic, blah, blah, blah. You know, 
You get the idea. Like time has proven in the time since since this, uh, it's proven that like yeah, wrestling fans love the nostalgia, and it's always best to like do a convention where there's like personal appearances, get your picture, get autographs, etc. With all these guys, and then maybe later in the night you also have a legends show also where the wrestling is just you know a second part of the experience but most of it is you know you meet the guys at the convention and you get to talk to them you know that sort of thing that's fine that's fine right. and it's great on an it's great on an indie level but like not when you're one of the major companies you don't you don't bring out all these guys that are well past their prime uh to try to have a wrestling show you know well, we saw it, fa- it failed with Paul Alperstein. It failed with Paul Alperstein. You know, we, yeah. we've seen this concept fail. Herb, I mean, it, we've seen this concept fail numerous yeah. times. And also anyway. on the indie level, which you can't necessarily get away with if you're pushing, like, a National Legends pay-per-view, you can supplement, like, tag matches with a guy, a younger guy who can work a compatible style and carry the workload kind of thing, too. Yeah. Like, I mean... You know, CM Punk played that role on a bunch of legend shows in the like right. early to mid two thousands. But it's indie too, so that's a whole totally different. It's not well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you that you can't really do that on this kind of show. No, you know, it's it's one thing I think we can say too is that besides that, in ring standards of change and stuff. I feel like today's indie perform excuse me, I almost said performers, promoters have a much better feel for how to use legends on their shows than they used to. Well, and North Northeast Wrestling has done a whole lot of that sort of thing very well and drawn. So my well, Lombardi. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean as far as you know, not making them look bad, setting up to do, you know, one run in, otherwise do a signing, you know, like the way AIW yeah. does it, like the way Northeast Wrestling does it. You know, to a degree, use them, use them as a pro. guest ref yeah. or something like that. Have them in manager in the corner of you know some of the current guys, that sort of thing. There's a way to there's a way to do it and give the fans the legends and have them on the show and involved, but you don't you don't ask them to have a 15 minute match. Oh no! All right, back to Soli. Soli was originally going on the show, but he has major health problems that worsened over the past two weeks, and apparently can no longer speak well. He gave word he couldn't even fly for the, for the event to wave to the fans. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, <laughs> considering what, what I just read about the first-class plane ticket. There was talk of making an announcement about Sully's health so the audience wouldn't know why he wasn't there and wish him a recovery, but the promotion nixed the idea. Yeah, screw the fans, right? Yeah. But Don't give Sully, them any explanation. Soli was supposed to do the color for Rose and Bloom. What? You know his forte. Okay, that, that makes even less sense now. I would assume it would have been solely in Dutch, but yeah, yeah. okay, that that makes it even worse. Well, actually, wait a second. That's Wasn't just... Dutch announced in advance? Well, no. Let me let me continue. You know, solely his forte is play by play, but when it became possible, they went to Ted DiBiase with a prior preacher commitment, which is how Dutch wound up in the spot. I remember seeing one of those Heroes of Wrestling graphics in ads with Dutch, though. That could just could be me remembering wrong, but it's got to be because it's amazing. It's on this short notice. All right, so let's get to the show. The Samoan SWAT team, Samu and Fatu, who was about to have a dark match on for the WWE. No, no, it's Sam Fatu. Oh, Sam Fatu. Excuse me. Excuse me. I read that it wrong. Says right yeah. here. <laughs> well, I saw Fatu. So, so yes, yeah, Samu and uh, Samoan Savage, Tone Kid, Tama. Marty Jannetty and Tommy Rogers in 10 minutes. 
both Paul Adams and Sika was in the SST corner. Janetti now 40, Rogers now 38. It's good. Look better, Janetti, or as good, Rogers, as they did a decade ago in their glory years. Samu, who could have been one of the all-time greats and is now only 36, looked to be out of shape at about 345 pounds, while his cousin, who also could have been one of the all-time greats, and Dave talks about he was 18 headline in Massacre guarding against Roddy Piper in 1984, is now only 33, but looks to weigh about 360 all behind him. Rosenblum called Rogers flying drop kicks, leg kicks. <laughs> Samu pinned Rogers at their Mark Miro T- TKO half a star. Technically, they were flying leg kicks. And <laughs> Julio De Niro tells us, Fantasco, whatever you want to call him, in that story, in that article for uh, Wrestling Estate, they only saw each other for 30 seconds before the match. They didn't discuss anything beforehand, had a really entertaining match. There are such pros that can just go out there, walk, talk, go, showing guys like me, you don't need a three-hour conversation to go out there and have a wonderful match. Yeah. I haven't I haven't watched this in a while. I mean, Prazak, you're the one that just watched this. I feel like, from my recollection at least, Dave is underselling this a little bit. This is a perfectly competent tag match. If I it was decent. Like, I don't tend to do the star rating thing, but I would say maybe like two, two stars, something like that. Not half a star. Um, it was fine. It was a fine little opener. Um, Janetti didn't even have gear. Like he was just wearing shorts. <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Yeah. It's well, they are kind of the uptown boys. Well, there were flight issues, as I said, you know, uh, so maybe he got his gear lost in transit. You know, that's probably very possible. Perhaps. Is Janetti the only wrestler to team though, with both Tommy Rogers and Tommy Rogers? <laughs> yes, because Tommy Lane was Tommy Rogers, like we talked about last week. In the Uptown Texas. Boys, yeah. In the Uptown Boys, yeah. But but I want to get back to what Julio said, Dave. I mean, he talked about how these guys, you know, barely see each other for 30 seconds and go out there and have this match, which was decent, good. And then you have this generation of wrestlers that's starting then that continues. They have these long conversations and plan out the matches. What do you... What do you think about that, how that the business has changed in that regard? Well, uh, I wish it was like it was back then, but the, the problem is that like the current generation, most of them have not learned how to just go out there and call it in the ring. It's unfortunate. Um, I wish that there were more people that could do that or just change, completely throw things out the window if what they had planned in advance is not working in front of a live audience and they need, need to do something else to be able to just do it easily without, without panicking. Um, I mean, it is, it's a generational thing back in the territory days. You learned to call it in the ring because that's what you did almost every night. Um, so <laughs> times change and the way that people put matches together change. And in some Thank ways it's good. In some day. ways, in some ways it's good. In some ways it's bad. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's good that it changed because you get such, I mean, just look at some of the best matches that we've seen over the past, you know, five years in wrestling, five to 10 years in wrestling, uh, which would not be possible. Like, you know, a uh, a Danielson versus Kenny Omega that they just did on AEW, like that kind of a match, if they just tried to call it in the ring, would not have the intricacies that you see when you actually, you know, they went, you know, 20 minutes. Was it 20 or 30? Whatever it was. Well, they were, you know, it was, it, but there were, there were so many precise things involved in that match that like they, those two could have a fantastic match just calling, calling it in the ring, but like it wouldn't be as, as unbelievably great as it was if they 
just did that. I mean, it helps that they are able to talk in advance. Yeah, um, so, so, so in a way, the, 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 this, the method of putting matches together uh, nowadays is better because it gives the fans more bang for their buck. But at the same time, the old way of doing it, you can adapt to different situations a lot better and you're not so reliant on, well, we have to stick to what we talked about five hours ago before the fans were let into the building. Yeah. I think the issue is being able to improvise. If you yeah. don't improvise, it's fine, but you need to be able to in case something goes wrong. Yeah, it's the need and, to and be the thing is, you need you need experience yes. doing doing it on the fly in front of fans to really learn how to do how to be able to do that. And the current generation doesn't get a lot of that experience. And I know that like there are certain certain places that try to try to teach that to an extent. Like I know he doesn't have the following these days that he used to, but Ian Rotten uh, still running IWA mid South these days in front of, you know, a hundred people or so in Southern Indiana. But like he does shoot lethal lotteries like every six months, maybe with yeah. like his crew of young guys where like legitimately they do not know who they're working until music plays and they go to the ring and they have to call it in the ring. And based on how they do in that is how he determines who gets booked during the next few weeks. Uh, so like in, in a way he's like in front of a crowd forcing them to learn. Um, and not every promotion's doing stuff like that, but like, I think that that should be done uh, on a more wide basis, or at least wrestling schools should be doing that with their student shows, or, you know, stuff like that. And yeah. like I've said before, whatever anyone wants to say about Ian, it's very clear that having IWA around as a learning environment where people can come and wrestle weekly in front of the same people and learn and learn how to work differently something that's always clearly been very important to him having veterans around etc yeah yeah and that should be that should be what every promoter tries to do especially the ones that are been running for a long period of time and they're trying to help young talent learn and teach them and turn green guys into eventual main eventers for their shows you know two or three years down the line right now Although, Oh, one thing I just wanted to say real quick before we move on, all this will actually probably segue nicely into Greg Valentine. One thing I think is interesting about today's fans and what they will tolerate as far as legends and stuff too is also they're open to more styles to the point where you have people like Walter. Like, Walter is basically just Greg or Johnny Valentine type. And he's over with modern audiences wherever he goes. So it's like, I just think because of stuff like that, too, I think it's easier to get a reaction because I feel like, in a way, simple stuff gets over better with indie fans than it did maybe like early ROH era. Yes, sure. They're open-minded. Yep. All right, Greg Valentine pinned George the Animal Steel in 637. Valentine's now 51. Steel's now 63. Sherry Martell played the aging, sensuous Sherry. Dave actually thinks she's only two years older than Deborah, but has been through rougher times and obviously hasn't had the money for the same amount of surgery since they actually both started out as beautiful women. Oh, that, I mean, I know Jeez. 22 years ago, but actually started <laughs> out as is. Yeah. I'm surprised I don't see that one come up in Reddit copy-paste all the time. 
So Sherry was doing a skit where Steele had a crush on her in a pre-match vignette, ripped her dress off. But she double-crossed him during the match, giving Valentine a foreign object, and eventually hitting Steele with a chair for the pin. Steele's left eyebrow is out of control. Ashley, Sherry looked young after seeing Moolah in May. Valentine and Sherry left, then left together, negative three stars. Okay, so Sherry at this time is 41. So Sherry she, here look, look, is younger than Mickey James now. Yeah, looking at a lot of the ages just so far on the show, like in that tag match, the opener with a bunch of guys in their 30s or just turned 40, and like they're on a Legends show. Compare that to like the current top tier of like pretty much every company that hey, has like guys shameless. guys in their late 30s or early 40s or even mid to late 40s that are still fantastic wrestlers. Just to give you the gist of this, because as we're recording this, he's going to be on Dynamite. Bobby Fish is 11 years older than uh, Sam Fatu was in this match. <laughs> but of course, Bobby Fish is in a much better uh, physical shape <laughs> right now than Sam Fatu was in this yeah, match. Yeah, but again, it, it, a lot of this goes to the fact, like I said, these guys and Cherry, you know, so they, had, they lived hard lives for many yeah. years and it aged them. It does. It ages you. I mean, but, the way you live, you know, yeah. it's part of the business. It was part of the business. I mean, that way, because, I mean, uh, you're on the road all the time. You're doing what you got to do to try to keep going, you know, and sadly, people d- develop addictions and have their issues and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, it ages you. Absolutely. How about your to steal being only slightly older than current Sting? Yeah. And then George Steele, yeah. and then it's not long before George Steele's on Nitro. So, and just uh, to get back to the if if put in the right hands and the right producing involved, uh, like if if a show like this was done by the people at WWF with the experience behind them or a WCW at the time, uh, they wouldn't make certain mistakes that a company like this would do with their first pay per view, like that that uh, pre tape segment that they mention with. George Steele and and Sherry, uh, like the George Steele character that he portrays in the ring and does during this match, completely different than the pre-tape where it looked like it was filmed maybe in the hotel. They're like walking through the hotel together, talking to each other. And it's George Steele, George the Animal Steele with just sunglasses on and a leather jacket and just like normal street clothes, acting normal, talking Sherry, like not acting like George the Animal Steel at all whatsoever. Like no competent company would yeah, allow he's you talking. to just put that on. Yeah, like he's just having a conversation. He's got sunglasses on, leather jacket. Like when have we ever seen George the Animal Steel? Like why, why would that be allowed? The and the shirts, they're unbelievable memorabilia. Oh, it's very nice. Scoops wrestling. There's Sherry Martell and George the Animal Steel. Of course, uh, a lot of people are talking like they're doing more than just manager wrestling partnership. It could be a lot more than that. And based off what we saw on the pre-show, gotcha, they're awfully friendly. You know, I don't think you'd like to watch it. I don't think you'd like to go in people's bedrooms and look what they're doing. Actually, you know, he's just being George Steele because he did the uh, nice. George the Animal Steel looking very comfortable. Of course, uh, he's had some friendships okay. with Elizabeth yeah, of the past. He tried tongue. to get to know Elizabeth. Now Is he's that a uh, after Sherry Martell. And for the time being... I saw the room key. 
I thought she was flashing a rubber. He's got Sherry in his corner, and they look to be very friendly. Well, they look like they're having a very good time, I might add. I think George Animal Steel and Sherry, they look, they make a nice couple. Well, Michael St. John had an opportunity to chat with both Steele and Sherry. He just started ripping her clothes open, and they went to Yeah, as they walked into the, I got into the, the opportunity. The world elevator. is a buzz. And by the way, Sherry athlete. looks fantastic. I don't even know what Dave's talking about. Sherry yeah, looks Sherry. better here than she did in WCW. That's what I was yeah, saying. She looks much healthier. But she's been off the road. She's been gone, uh, you know, well, out of the major biz part of the business for the last couple of years. So, yeah, Dave, it's Dave, you know. But there's what the, the article said about Steele. It said, in addition to Face of Valentine, Steele serves as the agent behind the scenes to help his fellow performers put their matches together. Lombardi says Steele came up with a storyline for his bout. It's about the Sherry, you know, playing both sides of the fence for ultimately betraying Steele had Valentine win. So, there you go. So, George Steele was the, which makes sense because he was agent forever. Yeah. And yeah. it's a good, it's a good thing to, and, and there should have been more of that sort of thing in almost all of these matches where you have other things going on in the story of the match where you're not entirely focused on the physical wrestling, the the mechanics involved with these older guys where it's like you at least have the, the announcers have something to talk about with what, who's Sherry aligned with what's she doing. You have somebody at ringside, you know, the smoke and mirrors to hide the fact that George Steele and Greg Valentine aren't necessarily going to have a great technical <laughs> pro wrestling match at this point. Uh, and, and maybe if, if more of the matches had that sort of thing going on, it would be, it would have been better. Yeah. All right, Tuco Scorpio pin Julio Fantastico in 937. And real quick to note, um, the reason why this match is on this show, Lombardi told Stone that he he was afraid there were too many uh, gimmick matches on this show, too many veterans. He wanted a, a match with uh, guys who could tear the house down. So he, he, wa he wanted Tuco Scorpio, and he wanted Reckless Youth. There you go. But you've just signed Tom just signed this developmental deal with WWF, so he asked Julio to replace him, and that's a great idea. I mean, because you you know that if you just have a pay per view that is entirely legends matches, it's not gonna it's not gonna be that great. You need to have, I mean, you don't need to have young guys on the show, but it helps to have a match like this. And Scorpio, you know, he was a veteran at this point in time. You know, he's still going strong today, but he was a veteran at this point in time. And Julio is like one of the hot indie guys, you know, in, in place of Reckless Youth, since he wasn't available, he would be he was a good choice. And, yeah, they didn't work so well. But, I mean, it, it's it's good in theory. And they did end up having the best match on the show from an in-ring standpoint. So I, I can't say that that was a poor move. I think that was a, actually a very smart move. But it is kind of out of place on a Legends show. Um, but at least Scorpio having wrestled for you know, 10 years at this point, uh, was a vet. So he could be considered a hero of wrestling. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Scorpio came out with a belt. Wasn't acknowledged what be the belt it was. It was a figures Inc replica of the big gold belt. <laughs> it was very was. random. He just like, yeah, he just like carried a fake big gold to ringside and the announcers never acknowledged it. They didn't say what championship it was supposed to be or anything. He just had a belt. Very so, weird. Speaking of weird, Lou Albano was supposed to come for commentary. He wandered out before his cue. 
and would have ruined the commentary here, except he actually did him a favor since he thought Rosenblum would have dropkick was. <laughs> the two didn't work well together, but they did modern moves with any level work. Albano, to his credit, did a ton of PR work for the show. So most of the match kissing up the promoter Bill Stone to build him build up him being named commissioner. Fantastico took a good bump to the crowd and they brought him to the stands. Scorpio went into two somersault leg drops, the final being his tumbleweed for the pin. The people in the truck cut the match's link back seven minutes because they didn't want any of this athletics and thought it was getting boring because there was no bad <laughs> shit. Actually, this was better short, starting a quarter. And real quick, Julio on, the, on, on this match said, we were told we had 15 to 20 minutes. Then we got told to wrap it up about nine minutes in. The whole middle of the match got cut. I'm glad people liked the match, but we felt ripped off. We didn't get to do anything. Wow, that happens. That's wrestling, especially when you're doing live, live, live shows. Sometimes stuff gets cut. Yeah, let's cut the good match. We don't want any of this athletic stuff. I like also like (laughs) that Dave didn't mention or missed or forgot that uh, Scorpio completely overshot the tumbleweed. Yeah, he completely missed. He landed right next to him, and I think Julio sold his face, or maybe his his eyelashes, the the wind blowing near him well, as Scorpio flew right by. As Scorpio not landing exactly properly on a leg drop goes, I'd much rather have him miss than not. I, I love Scorpio's hair here. He he's looks like Philip Bailey in Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, uh, <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna start singing in the stone in a few minutes or something like that. That's it. And look at that redneck. You know, uh, as he uh, <laughs> he's in the ring. Oh my god, Julio Sanchez of the Latin Lowriders with Dirty Dom Montoya. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They sh- they should have booked. Uh, if Julio was on this show, they should have booked Cuball Carmichael, <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Osborne, Jimmy Cicero. Yeah, he's why not? Cheetah Master. Yes. <laughs> Now let's well, see. Snook- Did Scorpio hit uh, Julio with his ass? He hit in the, the leg. Here? No, he hit the leg drop. Okay, yeah. the first. Well, Snooker yeah, was I- on this show. Where's Metal Maniac? For God's sakes! I mean, good come on. question. That's. I'm sure he was in the locker room. Oh, let's see the. Oh, but that's amazing. Let's see a slow mo that e- makes it look even worse than the live camera angle. Did. <laughs> yeah, they 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 instant replayed completely missing the finish. They could have easily just shown the leg drop that hit and then just cut to the uh, on camera. Or even into a slow mo of the original angle of the tumbleweed because at least it was on the opposite side so it didn't look as bad right look at captain lou lord i mercy captain lou and dutch that's an interesting combo yes all let's right let's listen to this for a second just to see what it sounds like i'm gonna tell you right now folks i highly i will accept this with great honor how much money is he paying you what are the terms how long are you the commissioner shut up a minute and i'll let you know i'm not not <laughs> worried about the money what i will do i will have integrity Decency, honesty, call it like it is, play no favorites. I am proud to be the head of the greatest organization around, the Heroes of Wrestling. Dutch, thank you. Thank and you. I am the new thank What's the future for the Heroes of Wrestling? The future for the Heroes of Wrestling is throughout the country. Events, pay-per-view events, special appearances, special events, with the commissioner being there. We'll go by the book. We'll have great matches. The great talent that we have here tonight, Bill Stone Productions, right here at Casino Magic. This is the greatest production of all time. I'm Captain Lou, and I'm telling to you, I feel so good, so proud, and so elated. Captain Lou, oh, man, the new commissioner. Oh, I-
There was at least three references to brains the size of a dehydrated BB on this broadcast. Yeah, so there was. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching UWF. You know, where's where's Colonel Ray? There's a lot of similarities between this show and Herb Abrams shows. Absolutely. Yes. All right, here we go. The Bushwhackers beat Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov in A42. The Bushwhackers are both in their mid-50s, while Sheik is 61 and Volkov is 52. Sheik could barely walk. The heels came out with a manager called Nikita Breshnikov, who is actually Volkov's real-life roommate. Sheik twirled clubs that looked like they weighed about 10 pounds each. The 140-pound guy brought the clubs to the ring. Sheik challenged Hulk Hogan and Bob Backlund. Al Snow versus Big Boss has something to like Benoit versus Shinjiro Otani. <laughs> Volkov hit Sheik with an object and Butch pinned him. Sheik and Volkov teased the split after the match. Negative 459.4 stars. Absolute zero. This is the worst match I've ever rated in my life. <laughs> and Tell yes, us and how you really four, feel. And figure four, Alvarez rated it negative more stars than there are in the entire universe. And I know the, the, the clubs don't look like much, but like they, it's very difficult to do the swinging of the Persian clubs. Right, but it's not know. the same clubs from his heyday. Those are not the legit oh, Persian clubs. Oh, no. no, no. <laughs> but look at she just so having looks here. Look at there's that, that stomach. Uh, that, this was this was in the same general time frame as uh, when uh, Brian Gorey and I scheduled the first Juggalo Championship Wrestling show, and they oh. wanted they wanted the Iron Sheik versus Izzy High in a crack pipe on a pole match, <laughs> and uh, and on commentary, uh, ICP would talk about how the belly button of the Iron Sheik looked like a glass egg protruding <laughs> from his stomach, and so yes, <laughs> at least it's covered up with his singlet in this particular show. It well, looks like he's wearing cut-off jeans, too. I mean, you <laughs> know what the thing is, though, with him? The distended belly, which I have to assume is from some weird early HGH abuse, right? It has oh, to be. Oh, God. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, as he got older and less in shape, it kind of balanced out to where it, it like... when Look at when his he, knees. But, like, when he first has the big the big distended gut it's at like bash 90 where he's otherwise still in great shape and he legit looks pregnant here he just looks old and still has a distended belly but not in a way where he looks literally pregnant i mean his knees look terrible and just about two years removed from the uh about two years after the uh the big uh, iron cheek versus rick ratchet match in new jersey (laughs) (laughs) and volkov doesn't look that bad it's 52. No. I mean, it doesn't look that bad. He, he was a semi-pushed wrestler on WWF television five years earlier. I know, yeah. He still he still looks okay. But God almighty, this match right here, if, if, folks, if you've never seen this match before, you have to do it. Just to do it. I mean, you have to. I'm I trying mean, to find an exchange we can see here. And why? I mean, I've never really understood... Uh, the the legal situation with using trademarked names. Oh, but just uh, putting when you're, formerly known as or and just saying formerly because they just keep saying the former Bushwhackers the entire time. The and like later in the show, yeah. the former Yokozuna. It's like, and then they just alternate. Suddenly, Dust just drops the former part and just calls him Yokozuna. It's like, 
okay, well, so as long as you just say the former before their trademark name, you can just do it. Like that doesn't sound right. Well, well the, thing, <laughs> the thing is, is that they could have used the sheep herders. You yeah, know, they, they could have. Yeah, but 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 that's not their WF gimmick. They were the men from down under. That's what it says on their uh, on their gear. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. But, the, um, but they kept saying former Bushwhackers. Like, uh, yeah, Butcher so, know about going down under. But anyway, the uh, I mean, it's it, again they couldn't use. Oh, there's a casino placard. Always love that. Okay, yeah. Okay, so Casino Magic. I'm sure they do a lot of boxing and stuff like that. Yes. And for for a boxing for boxing, you can absolutely have. You know, something sitting on the ring apron, plugging the 1-800 number for the casino to promote business for the future. So they decided, okay, we, well, we want that plug on this pay-per-view. So they put that opposite the hard cam on the apron, and it got knocked to the floor repeatedly during the show because it doesn't work with pro wrestling. <laughs> no. Well, no, also a boxing no, ring is going to have a wider apron, too, which would that too yeah. make it even less lively. But nobody from the wrestling end said, like, was just smart enough to say, hey, that's not going to work. If you want to plug something, have it on a ring apron, hang a banner somewhere in the background, we'll light up the banner, something like that. But putting something on the apron is not going to work with pro wrestling. But nobody was nobody was smart enough to point that out and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah, it's all quality comes down to quality control on there. Oh, I preach that all the time. Quality control is so important. All right. So well, yes. and we should say though too, like obviously the Bushwhackers are old here, but they are giving much more of a college try than Sheik and Volkov. Bushwhackers, yeah. despite their age, they could still work at this point. Like I remember doing a show with they were on uh, for uh, Norm Connors, one of the Steel City wrestling shows at like a baseball field in Erie, Pennsylvania, maybe a year before this, and. Yeah had a perfectly good match. I think it was against Montoya and Julio actually. Um, and that was the main event of the show went well. Like they could still work at this point. I mean, there was times where, where uh, Luke was doing dark matches at ROH shows. Like yeah. what fucking six, six or seven years after this, like, yeah, they could still work. I it's, mean, it's the cheek and Volkov look just so decrepit getting the heat. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the Sheik is so immobile at this point, it's not even funny. I'm amazed yeah. that he even tried to take bumps here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> the finish. Yeah, it's, ter it's terrible. It's going to be the near fall, not a finish. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's all terrible. Or was it the finish? You gotta watch. No, it is the finish. You gotta watch. Supposed to gotta watch. It's, it's oh insane. All right, so Tully Blanchard pinned Breck Stanfield Lane. Stanfield Lane. Stan Lane. That's his name, folks. Breck Stansfield no, Lane. No, it's Wallace Stans the, the Stansfield Bo Lane. It's the Bobert denier. Yes. <laughs> and 704. Tully did a great promo of talking about him being a key member of the Four Horsemen having great matches, while Stan Lane was just a guy who was lucky to have Bobby Eaton as a tag team partner and Jim Cornette's the manager, which is largely how most of the rest of us viewed Lane in the heyday of that version of Midnight Express. And Tully talked about how much he hated Jim, Jim Hurd still. Now, that was funny. <laughs> I guess those other so wrestlers Blanchard, were jealous of Stan Lane, in part because he's Tully's the only wrestler. Pro, Tully's promo was was one of the best things about this show. Like yeah. one of the only like truly good things on the show was Tully Blanchard's promo. 
Yeah, and, and, and here's a little thing about that. So Michael Henry, Lombardi's right-hand man, helped book talent, brainstorm ideas, handle production, logistics. In addition to his backstage responsibilities, he was also seen on the air during the Blanchard Lane limousine angle. I hung out with Sully a lot that weekend, Henry says. We got dinner, even went shopping at Walmart to get knee pads. He was going through a separation with his wife at the time and always talking to his lawyer. But when it came time for the angle, the promo and the match, Tully was great. Yeah, and, He's a pro. And, 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 and yeah, Tully, Tully's got all right to be pissed off at Jim Hurd still. Jim Hurd fucked him. He fucked him. Yeah. Oh, no, he failed one cocaine test in the 1989 World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the angle they did before the show where Lane smashed Tully's head into a car fender and tried to put him in a trunk, Blanchard had to look like a wrestler and tried to wrestle like one. Lane brought up being a member of the Fabulous Ones, the Midnight Express, and the Heavenly Bodies. This match is pretty bad, though. It's campy. Blanchard's now 45. Lane's 46. Blanchard suffered a lot of hair loss. Physically, looks better than his prime. Lane, a pretty boy in his day, looks like an aging gigolo. Isn't this one of the first times he really had the spiked wig going, too? It's, it's Stan Lane basically being Stan Lane, aging gigolo. They kept cutting away these crowd shots of some largely unattractive women in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. They kept putting over what a ladies' man Stan Lane was and how all the women uh, are, are distracted by him being in the ring. And, like, every time they'd cut to a shot of a woman in the crowd, like, she looks bored, like, completely, like, disinterested. But were they largely unattractive that day? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. <laughs> <laughs> Rosen trying to get over how the women were captivated by Lane and how they weren't paying attention <laughs> to their dates because of Lane when it was clear that ve- may very well have been the case even five years ago, but wouldn't be anymore. Lane used the back suplex spot where both had their shoulders down, but Blanchard got his up. Great finish in the 70s, but it's been years since that finish worked. Dud. They had and a perfectly it was a, fine it, match. It, yeah. It's a, great, it's, a great, it's a great finish. Uh, it's a great finish when put over the right way on television like the th- problem was nobody clued in dutch and rosenblum about what the finish was going to be so like there was a good minute and a half and showing replays and shit between when we actually understood what the finish was and what the referee's decision was and when it happened they were just like rosenblum was like asking dutch what just happened why is tully getting his arm raised i don't understand and Dutch didn't have the answer because the ref like took his sweet time explaining anything to a ring announcer or anything. They did the double pin thing. Tully got his shoulder up, but it looked like Lane also got his shoulder up. But the ref only saw Tully's and it was confusing. And it, you know, even even if the match was halfway decent, it was halfway decent. Uh, the shitty finish just ruined it for the crowd. So they were just fucking dead after that. Yeah. And the, and the girls that we saw here in the photo looked like they were underage girls. So Dave's talking about unattractive women, but they were looked like they were underage. Oh, they did they did they did cut to a, a group of underage women, but they all, but they, they they showed probably like seven or eight different crowd shots. The 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 producers of this show, I don't know if they had done pro wrestling before at all, or if this was their first time. If like if the director of this show is for his first time doing wrestling, but like. They loved the crowd shots during this show to a ridiculous extent. So basically Tommy uh, Edwards were working for uh, Jim Hurd. <laughs> but, 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 
but at least he he was used to doing wrestling and like wouldn't be on a crowd shot during a key point where you need to stay on the ring. Like you'd have fast some of the 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 few times on a legends show where guys are running the ropes and doing like fast paced stuff, and right as the guy gets shot into the ropes, suddenly they go to a crowd shot, and you're not even seeing what's going on in the ring. It's oh. Like it it makes yes. you shake your head. Yes. All right. So next we get Abdul the Butcher going to double count it with the one-man gang at 734. Butcher is either 58 or 63, depending upon which driver's license birthday one chooses to believe. Gang is 39. Wow, one-man gang wasn't even 40. They, they talked about gang being a local favorite in Mississippi, and when he came out, there was zero reaction. Butcher came out with manager Honest John Cheatham. Oh, yes, Honest John who was a uh, any manager in Georgia for many years, uh, car used car salesman, which most of the managers in Georgia were, like Uncle Sammy <laughs> and, and the Sammy Puppet. But Honest John was used car salesman. And I like how you, you distinguish the Sammy Puppet as a separate manager from Uncle Sammy. <laughs> well, if you if you watch IWTV and watch the uh, 1999 episodes in WA Wildside. You'll see commercials for Honest John Cheatham's used car a lot on there. While wow, he's the heel manager on the show, and well, everywhere that everywhere you would see Abdul the Butcher booked during this era, he would force the promotion to use Honest John Cheatham as his manager as well. When he did yes. the one and only installment in the Wrestling Observer shoot interview series with Alvarez, he's flanked by Honest John Cheatham the whole time. Yep, John's got to be with me. Yep, yep, he's his handler. All right, Abby juice heavily, gang bled buckets. No action at all, but there's a lot of blood. Abdul uses his trusty fork to the forehead, which for some reason was a lot worse in the context of wrestling today than it did in his heyday. He also delivered the world's slowest elbow drop. Gang then rolled out in the ring. It was a double count out, even though neither guy could do a thing. The fans like seeing all that blood. Negative two and a quarter stars. Now, th- let's talk about Dutch and Randy Rosenblum here. So Dutch did express con- this is from that article. Dutch did express concern for Rosenblum at the end of the Abdul the Butcher one man gang match. The two behemoths went hardcore, busting each other open with a fork and a chain. As it brought us out of the rain, the blood splattered on Rosenblum's notes. Mantel could sense that his rookie partner was shaken up, but Mar- Rosenblum marched on to the next segment. I was in the dark in terms of what to expect, Rosenblum said. I can't tell if they were acting or not. Which, when you're watching something like this, it's entertainment. You don't know what's real and what's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. And uh, this match was, uh, there was also a point where a crowd shot completely ruined a portion of this match. Because obviously, Abdullah is probably maybe even more immobile than uh, Iron Sheik at this point. Um, but he can still drop the big elbow. And. When he does drop the big elbow, right as he sets up for it and starts and takes like one step toward Gang, who's laying on the canvas to drop the elbow, they cut to a crowd shot and completely miss the elbow drop. Of course they did. Of course they did. And they're beating security up, indie scum with chairs and all that stuff. So, oh my God. Anyway, oh, I I wonder I wonder if Luke Hawks or someone like that is working security here. <laughs> Could have been. Being a golf Kevin indie North- of this era. Kevin Northcutt maybe a part of that somewhere. Maybe Rodney Mack is somewhere in BC. Rosenblum Maybe. showing that blood got on his format sheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. On their on-camera segment. <laughs> Re- rewind. Let's hear this. Rewind that back. Okay. All right, I want to hear Rainy Rosenblum's reaction to this. React to blood. 
Hepatitis yes. infected. <laughs> oh, then he does not know. Look at all the... The blood everywhere, blood on this. This is right on my board here. I was working on the board. That's the material. Unbelievable. Are you all right? I'm okay. No You're blood. Okay? I'm fine. We're so fine. You, you were closer to him than I was. Okay. A little bit earlier, there was a card game. Jimmy Snooker, Cowboy Bob Orton. You know that. Oh, let's, we, we gotta watch this. Yes. But bygones be bygones. It appeared that everything was okay. Card game. Cameras here at Casino Magic. Went over, had that camera on top, and we were able to catch the pictures of what happened. Watch this. I like that we're supposed to think that Jimmy Snooker was capable of playing right poker after, like, May 1982. Hey, Jimmy! Look at that card! Where's the, look at the card there, Jimmy! Look at that! Underneath his belt! Look at that, Jimmy! You're the crook, you thieving half with you, you moron! No, don't put your head at me! Go ahead, hit him! Go ahead, guys, go ahead, hit the son of a dick, that dirty button! That's it! Get him back! You'll pay for this, you punk! You'll pay for this! Well, you pay for this! You ain't cheating me! Go ahead! You ain't gonna cheat me! Dirty moron, you! Okay, hold on, pause it for a second. Uh, so they, they tried to play it off as, as though it's the casino surveillance camera overhead uh, while they're playing cards. and But the surveillance camera is panning to the left and to the right and zooming in and zooming out. And it's full color <laughs> yes. and everything. So it's like, oh, yeah, like come on, try to make it at least halfway believable. Uh, I, I guess. Also, I love that someone clearly had this specific idea for an angle. And then clearly someone tried to explain it to Jimmy Snucker. He's like, uh, well, a cards brother? <laughs> and they just decided to have Lou do everything. Add memories, brother. <laughs> All right, so let's go to Captain Lou. Joker, brother. Captain Lou and uh, Snooker here. I got hair to ask from it. Michael St. John, of all people. Gets his chance against Cowboy Bob Orton momentarily. Captain Lou Albano, the Commissioner of Heroes of Wrestling, join us. Let's hear your comments. Well, first of all, I feel very honored to be the Commissioner here. And I'm going to tell you right now, brothers and sisters, wrestling fans throughout the world, 48 years of experience, I will call it like I see it. There'll be no favorites, no partiality. I'll do what I got to do. But tonight, the main thing at hand is the main man, Jimmy Snooker, that flies off the top like a bird, baby, like a bee. Oh, unbelievable. He's up against Bob Orton just made some very derogatory remarks about us. He's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a sneak, and got the brain of a BB. And I want to tell you right now, there you go. if you're watching us here, we're ready for you, we're prepared. My man can suplex from his knees, brother. He's so good, so fine, he's so sweet. This is the man of the hour, the man of the power. I'm Captain Lou, and I'm telling to you, look out, look out, look out, Bob Orton, because we're ready, baby, we're ready. Arr! The match coming up, Cowboy Bob Orton <laughs> against Jimmy Superfly. Snooker. Watch it, Snooker. Watch it, Snooker. Watch it, Snooker. We're coming, baby. Okay. Um, Snooker is the... fly. Well, I was yeah. going to say, you don't get the full effect of the promo without seeing it because Snooker is emotionless and unmoving the whole time, even when yep. Lou is trying to get his attention. His eyes don't and... even look towards Lou. He is staring at the camera the whole time. He's so intense because he it... got cheated in the card game. 
And it makes no then it just makes no sense that if Captain Lou Albano is the new commissioner of the promotion, why is he and he's going to be so impartial and call why it right down the middle? Jimmy why is he like managing Jimmy Snuka in this match? It makes no sense. Kind of, uh, kind of like how J.J. Dillon was uh, impartial as the commissioner of WCW with Ric Flair. I mean, he dressed up in a tuxedo with a full horseman reunion <laughs> reunion and Greenville. <laughs> it's wrestling. Anyway, Snook uh, pinned Orton in 11.46. Snook in that 56. Orton, 48. They did a cheesy angle before the match where Orton was trying to cheat Snook at cards. Albano found Orton nine cards, and that was the angle. In their day, these guys were really good. And they were actually two men in the corners of Hogan, Mr. T, and Orndorff and Piper at the very first WrestleMania in 1985. Orton was one of the best workers of the late 70s, early 80s. And Snuggles was the best heavyweight high flyer of his day. That was it. Orton stood a superplex, and for all Dave knows, he was the guy who actually invented the move in the late 70s. He was definitely the first guy Dave ever saw do it. But Lou Albano in Snooker's corner held Snooker's ankle so he didn't go over. So he is in his corner. Yes, absolutely. commissioner. <laughs> Orton got a decent amount of heat. Orton went to hit Albano, but the hit turnbuckle again, so on his forearm. Seriously. They want him to come back wearing the cast. And Snooker pinned him with a Mil Mascaris crossbody block off the top rope. Negative one star. But there's this. Uh, our Wrestling Estate article talks about this is where Dutch Mantel lost it on, on Randy Rosenblum. Uh, as, the chemistry fizzled out during the matches. Mantel grew frustrated with Rosenblum's lack of knowledge regarding the moves. After Rosenblum would call an arm drag, a slam, take down, a draw kick, a flying leg kick, Mantel immediately corrected. By the time Cowboy Bob Orton faced Jimmy Snuka, Dutch lost his cool. You're trying to call this like some stupid UCLA-Oregon basketball game or football game, Dutch yelled. This is wrestling. Anything goes. Rosenblum said, I didn't mind him. He wasn't rude for the shirt or anything like that, but he was getting hostile during the broadcast. I just didn't sense he wanted me to be there. I, they, uh, Randy thought he could have been a little kinder in working with him. You don't do that kind of stuff on the air. I didn't think there was any problem with it because it's like Dutch is a character and you want to if you have a wrestler on color commentary and you've got an announcer that, you know, the audience is probably shaking their head at because he doesn't know wrestling. You are going to be more amused by the wrestler poking fun at the green announcer. So I see no problem with Dutch doing that at all. And I'm sure he was just playing, you know, trying to play along, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But. This guy's used to his professional. Yeah, yeah. but it is pro wrestling, and you, what's wrestling without personalities? And Dutch is a personality, you know? Oh, yes, absolutely. All right, here we go. Jim Neidhart King Kong Bundy beat Jake St. Roberts and Yokozuna in 1634. This is a major league mess. It was billed as Roberts versus Neidhart and Yokozuna versus Bundy. The original plan was for Jake to beat Neidhart clean with a DDT. And then turned their scheduled singles match to a tag match, realizing there isn't much Bundy could do against Yoko on his own. Neidhart, after agreeing to a finish for weeks, showed up, and 30 minutes before the show, refused to do the job. There was a report that he found that in between the, the, in between the times that he would be starting for WF, the Jordan, the Bulldog, but that is confirmed, and that was his reason for not wanting to do the job. He and Bundy both refused to have the snake put on them. Which is why Mike Henry, a much smaller, wasn't everyone, Bundy lookalike, who worked backstage at the show, came out with the announcers, wondering if he was Bundy's son, to take Yoko Samoan drop and have the snake put on him after the match. For the record, Bundy's now 41 years old. So Bundy is younger than I am now here. 
and Nyhart's 44, Jay's 44, Yoko's 33. How old is uh, AJ Styles right now? <laughs> AJ Styles 44. is 44. Exactly, and still one of the best in the world. <laughs> exactly, it was exactly the same. Um, Yoko looked to be every bit of 600 pounds. Roberts is impressed upon the promoters. He saw this promotion as his last chance to do something in wrestling. It was totally clean. Doing promo work throughout the Southwest, doing everything and more asked of him. He did that spot on Fox News Channel, talking about how he's going to clean up wrestling. He looked totally clean on that as well. We'll talk more about that later. So, yeah. During the day, he got word that his wife was looking for $5,000 in back child support, knowing he'd have money because he was getting a good payday here. And apparently he was facing going back to jail if he didn't come with the money. He disappeared into his private dressing room and emerged as a new person. With everyone fighting at this point about the finish, Jay volunteered to do the job and start the off, stop the argument. He got a huge pop coming out, far bigger than he was on the show. In an interview where it was a bad Jake, if you know what I mean. We need that fix. So oh, I have it queued up. I have it queued up. Okay, well, let's play it. Well, let's play it then. All right, let's see, let's see what bad Jake is here. When was the last time you think you've seen this? Since it aired. I have not watched it since I watched it originally. Okay. Yeah, I definitely haven't seen the whole promo in a long time. I've seen the, you know, I saw the clip on Dark Side and stuff, but it's been a while since I've seen the whole thing. St. John. Thank you, gentlemen. Back here I have a man of legendary proportions, a man, Jake the Snake Roberts. He is a man that you all recognize. He's a legend. Come on, Jake. Get on in here. The folks want to hear from you. You know, you're a casino. Everybody says, well, gosh, a casino, you should gamble. Let me tell you something, Hamble. You don't want to play cards with me because I'll cheat. Okay? I cheat. You want to play 21? I got 22. Huh? You want to play blackjack? I got two of those, too. What? You want to play aces and eights? Maybe I got too many of those, too. Okay, he is already getting into Michael St. John's space way too much, and you can tell the director is creeped out because he's already cutting to weird shots of fan. Well, he's yeah. been doing that the whole show, but even more so now because he's but he, like, did he do it during other promos? Like he knows he knows how screwed up Jake is. Like if we can, we need to have other things on camera. Yeah, That's what I'm saying. I don't think he did that. A blonde lady, a blonde lady with a uh, protruding rack, as well. Well, it's a wrestling director. What do you expect? <laughs> you do not gamble with me. The only thing you should gamble is this. Listen to me. When you walk in a casino and you want to gamble, the main thing is you should realize this. To gamble, you must accept losing. I don't accept losing. And even if Damien, Damien, my friend, my friend Damien is right here. Yeah, you just stuck his head out of it. Pile of snake, huh? Oh, you don't want to see this, do you? Well, Let me I don't. Yeah, no, I see what Anvil. Go ahead, Anvil. Roll the dice, Mr. Cameraman. Get your ass back up here. Hello. Cameraman's just shooting the I'm floor right now. You. Get the camera back up here. That. Now he's got his arm around Tangent. Don't worry about Anvil. The bottom line is this. When the DDT comes, then the snake comes out. Worry about the DDT. 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 
Or Michael St. John. A man of his word, Jake the Snake Roberts. Back to ringside. How about uh, how about that they in, uh, invented the let's show the crowd watching a video wall camera shot that Kevin Dunn would steal twenty years later. <laughs> they, it wasn't a good they idea stole things either. from the heroes of wrestling. Yes, <laughs> man. I wish we had a shot of Neidhart watching the promo on the monitor at an awkward angle. <laughs> God, but how but do you th- see this, that? In this not? also. Go ahead. It reminded me another, just another, you know, how Bush League this pay-per-view was because it was inexperienced people putting it together. Uh, there was at least two, maybe three different times where they would, you know, after a match, go to an interview with Michael St. John and somebody in the locker room. And it would take a good six or seven seconds between the beginning of one of them speaking on the microphone until the audio, like the the guy in the truck actually brought up their microphone. So it would be silence for the first six seconds, then finally realized, oh, his mic needs to be live. All right, like, so 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 let's talk about this. So from the uh, WrestlingEstate.com article, multiple people claim that Jake was in rough shape. Hours before scheduled a match, according to anonymous source from Fallstone Productions, uh, Stone was told that Roberts was a loose cannon, but he always did his job in the end. Unfortunately, on this night, Roberts shot to his personal demons. An audible should have been made as soon as Robert stumbled through his now infamous backstage interview with Michael St. John. I worked with Jake before. He's a really good guy, Michael St. John said. I knew he had some issues partaking in spirits and drugs, but I didn't know it was at the, to the point of insanity. Jake was high when he got there and higher when we left. He was originally scheduled to face Jim Nahar in the event. That was changed backstage during the show to include Yoko and Bundy. Shortly before Jake's match, referee Dave Dwinnell was told none of the wrestlers were willing to take the pin. And he said, I went into the ring without knowing the finish because there wasn't a finish. Always a good thing. Lombardi said Neinhardt wouldn't take the pin because W contacted him and was interested in signing him. Neinhardt claimed W told him not to lose the event. Lombardi said, although Neinhardt didn't return to WTV until the Raw 50th anniversary, eight years later, he, <laughs> he did work for WD's developmental territory in Memphis in 2000. Right. At this As, point, he must be thinking he's getting a wrestling deal and not a scouting deal. Let's all because of the lawsuit anyway. As for Bundy and Yokozuna, it wasn't a matter of them refusing to lose. They were contractually forbidden from it. Lombardi said that both men hadn't written their contracts or heroes of wrestling that they would not be pinned or submitted. Regardless, Stone let the thought of two behemoths colliding. Felt that was a pay-per-view quality attraction and won the match book, Lombardi said. When Roberts walked to the ring to meet Neidhart, he plopped his rented snake in the corner and then walked back up the ramp to the back. That's when Mike Henry who the commentators referred to as Mini Bundy, offered to take the DDT and had the snake draped over him to end the show. And let's talk about the match before we get into more to that. Um, he got a huge pop coming out. He did interview Bad Jake. When he came to the ring, he was staggering and had this older woman in the crowd fondle his chest. I guess we have to see this. So <laughs> let's uh, watch. <laughs> this is a clip that is, you know, it was shown on Dark Side also. And, yes. Man. Although Bix is having his internet. This is probably the most famous clip from this pay-per-view. Yeah. Etched in people's memories. That and Jake with the snake. Well, because they've seen the still, I think, of him and the woman at ringside more. Yeah. All right. Here we go. That's concocted up some vile In the bag is Damien, the 14-foot python. He'll bring that into the ring. And, of course, if he wins, you know, he'll just lay it right over his opponent, Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And he's thinking right now, you know, He's thinking how to take them and get the get the basket. 
He's clearly upset and thinking about the stuff with Cheryl, by the way. He oh, does yeah. not look like his mind is one bit on performing. No. Jim the Anvil Nighter. That snake, Damien, you know, I've had it laid on me before, and it is not a pleasant experience. We see all kind of wrestling media around the around the ring tonight. We see Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Wild Magazine. We see a lot of people represented tonight from the wrestling media, flash bubs popping all over the place, and a lot of print writers, a lot of internet people around here tonight. But this right here, this is the heart of Snake Country right here. Well, this is an historic night, the first ever Heroes of Wrestling, and Jake the Snake Roberts, very, very crafty. Maniacal he just walks to the locker room for no reason. And calculated. Walks to the back. Minute, Came to ringside and he just walks to the back again. To have that snake with him. When he walked back, look, to me, this has got to be a psychological ploy if you ask exactly me. exactly what it is. He left Damien at ringside. Knowing Jim the Anvil Nightheart is not going to mess with that snake, he can leave the snake there. The snake is, is unprotected, but the snake can protect itself. Well, the Anvil does not appear to be bothered by it all. Well, he's raising his arm saying... This doesn't bug me one iota. Well, it shouldn't bug him because the, the snake is still in the, the, still in the back. Yeah, he's still safe. And here comes uh, Jake the Snake Roberts back. And then right now, the battle of the psychological warfare here. Now, Jake the Snake, have you ever heard the story of his life? He's led a very interesting life. And he'll tell I'll you about yes. his mission. He's made a lot of mistakes. And he, everybody makes mistakes. Jake has made probably more than his share, but I'm going to tell you, the people here, they love Jake the Snake. He was one of the first to come to Casino Magic. Oh. A few days for this match, just waiting to get a Jim the Anvil Nighthart. <laughs> Jim Anvil, again, one of the most powerful oh, men God. in all of wrestling. All still right. in, from older age. How about Rosenblum uh, pointing out that Jake was the first one at Casino Magic, and he's been here for days. How, how many? What do you think he did for all of those days that he was sitting at the casino that, with a paid-for room and everything? What's well, supposed uh, to was clean until that day? That's the thing. Uh, I wish we had the Fox News thing. I wish we had that clip so we could play it because Dave talks about how clean how clean he was on there. But he, the match was worse than horrible. Jake, the man who wants to clean up wrestling, a sport he won't let his kids watch, took the snake, stuck it between his legs like it was a huge erect, you know what, and act like he was jacking himself off. <laughs> he first kissed the snake at another point, main, mainly he lay on his back and was selling. Bundy interfered right in front of the ref, and they doubled on Jake. Yoko came out and stood in the corner for several minutes as Jake staggered around and looked like that state just before death. Finally, Yoko tagged in, threw a punch of nine heart, another to Bundy, and they bumped one cheek for him. Bundy splashed Jay for the pin. After the match, the cameras went to black. The reason was that Jake put the snake into his trunks, and it slithered like you know what. When the cameras came back on, the snake was on Mike Henry. Negative three stars. All right, we got to find the spot here where Jake's using the snake as his dick. Oh, boy. Is that at the beginning or is that at the end? I think it's at the beginning, right? I think it's at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. it's at the beginning, yeah. Because uh, Dave talks about that before it turns to the tag match, I think. And so. also, Dave neglects to mention that when the, sh- the show briefly comes back from black for a few seconds and it's with Jake suddenly, li- like, half passed out in the ring. 
And because no, none of this was put together before they went to the ring, you know, the ref didn't have a finish or anything. The announcers have no clue who Mike Henry is. And so like the entire time they're like, they called him the man with no name or mini Bundy the entire time. Like, they're like, we have no clue who this guy is. He's just at ringside. He's in a dress shirt and uh, looks and has a, has a bald head and looks like Bundy. It's his mini me. Like, <laughs> how do you have a pay-per-view? How do you promote a pay-per-view? And the main event, the announcers don't even know who is involved. And, like, the final scene is going to be this guy with the snake on him. And we don't even know who he is, so why should anybody care? Like, it's just incompetence all around with this show. There we go. Wait, let me go back a little bit. All right, he's got the bag. It was at this point in the show where I was, like, embarrassed. I was still watching the show. I was embarrassed I spent the money to watch the show. It was also just were you, were you amused by it for the car wreck uh, potential? Of it I just, I, well, oh, there's I bought the, him there's the snake thought, dick. I bought it because it was a wrestling show, and I thought it'd be. I thought it would be fun to, to see. Yeah, you, know, you were hoping for the nostalgic, you know, what what you would expect out of a <laughs> legends show, but you, instead you get Jake jerking off his snake. It, it wasn't exp- It wasn't an expensive show. I can't remember what the what was the price bucks. was. 20 bucks, you know, I was like, well, why not? It's different. It's, it's a different wrestling pay-per-view show, you know, it's not WCW, no, yeah, well, so whatever, you know, it's not ECW. And yeah, I just thought it'd just be a, a fun, campy thing to watch. And boy, uh, it was something else completely. Oh my goodness. And there's Jake with a snake all over him. No, he's tongue licking snake. it, kind of. This is like the low point of his career. Oh, it absolutely is. And uh, also, yeah. they should have—they should have just stopped the show and figured out something else after that promo, too. Uh, well, that's exactly right. Exactly right. They should have done it. What they should have done was just an angle in the locker room where Jake gets jumped, laid out, can't wrestle, and you know, send Bundy, Yoko, Nightheart, and somebody else, anybody else, pick someone from one of the earlier matches on the show and do it and do it. Yeah. And do a tag with, with those three and somebody else. And just like you have Jake, you had Jake cut a promo, you have him get laid out. So there's a, at least he made an appearance. So it's not like you didn't deliver on having Jake Roberts involved on the broadcast in some form, but to actually let him go to the ring in that condition is just, it's, I mean, it's unprofessional of him to be in that condition, but it's irresponsible of the promotion to send him out there like that. Yeah. I, well, let's talk more about. I just want to say real quick, now. like Jake here and Jeff Hardy at Victory Road 2011 or whatever it was, are the high or low water mark of in no condition to perform that actually made it to the ring, right? Um, I I've seen some Mission Yebla matches. Yeah, uh, well, it, I feel like that's a, almost so much of an outlier to his not count. Yeah. All right, so real quick, uh, Bundy was pissed at Nightheart for doing, refusing the job, but he was also one who didn't like the job either, Henry said. Neither Bundy nor Nightheart wanted the snake. Stone wanted the snake spot, so I was sacrificial lamb. Um, I tried to put... No, uh, Dave Joinell, the referee, talked about the the camera with the snake. He said, I tried to put myself on the handheld camera to block the camera from seeing Jake with the snake, but that didn't really work. I was getting fr- very frustrated with this whole thing. I was ready to tell Bundy to throw me outside the ring and stop pretending to get hurt. And then another referee come out. Bundy told me not to worry. He'd take care of it. Uh, but Bundy splashed robbers. Dwinnell counted the three. They weren't even illegal people in the ring, but I didn't care at that point. Dwinnell says, I would have told Bundy to splash me. 
I wasn't confused. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Otherwise, they st- might still be wrestling now. Afraid that Roberts massively hurt Henry, Yokozuna called an audible to end the show, giving Henry a Samoan drop. He told Jake not to touch me, Henry says. I'm not a trained wrestler. I've never taken a bump like that before. It's weird to think a 640-pound Samoan drop would be safer to take than a DDT. But in reality, it was. Worried about what Roberts might do, Stone ordered the technical director to fade the black. On the bus ride back to the hotel after the show, Henry said Stone ripped him and Lombardi a new asshole. Michael and I just looked at each other, just shaking our heads like, what the fuck did we get ourselves into? (laughs) Michael really did try to do his best with what we had. I don't think it could have been any better than what we tried to do. No matter how bad the main event was, how fucked up Jake was, we at least got out there with some semblance of a finish. A few days at the event, Jake wrote a letter to Mike Lombardi apologizing for his actions. Like, from the way that it sounds, I mean, obviously none of us were there, but from the way it sounds, the person to blame is Stone. Yes. Not yes. not the not the mics from Northeast Wrestling who no. probably were just carrying out what they were told to do, what the what the money guy, what the promoter wanted. Exactly. And the fact that the, the money guy wanted Jake on there, wanted Abdul booked Abdullah the Butcher, then got pissed off that he bled. Like it just sounds like uh, it sounds like it was it was Stone's fault. And and these guys well, tried to was- Mike Henry and Mike Lombardi tried to keep things, you know tried to do the best with what they were given, but it just fell apart. Yeah, he does look like Mini Bundy here, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he <laughs> looks like J.R. King Kong Bundy from Al Tomko's R Star, Star Wrestling. Yes. And here's the snake. Let's see it here. Yeah, right on top of his face. Jake looks like Sabu in a way, where he's wearing his pants going there with his boots. <laughs> and it's crazy okay, so hair to black, but it's not the end yet. We've got, we've got about uh, forty seconds or something. So let's see. So we get the we and get it the, goes the graphics for scoops and Heroes of Wrestling. First, yeah, for some rest for some reason, every time they plug the Heroes of Wrestling website, it also has scoopswrestling.com dot com. Al Isaacs, baby. And now with they yeah they cut back to it, and now all of a sudden Jake is just laying down. And Yoko is trying to communicate with him. Boston Productions. Just a... Full show, a mess all around. <laughs> well, the resu- I put the... You know, no man will put the Observer poll results in this shit. Well, I had to here. Thumbs up, one! <laughs> Thumbs down, I want, I want to have an interview with the guy that voted thumbs up and why. <laughs> why do I get the feeling it's Dominic Valenti? <laughs> thumbs down, 85. Uh, 85. Doesn't none. And now we go to the Pro Wrestling Torch for all the uh, other information. The Rose of the event have talked about making Heroes of Wrestling a regular event. Perhaps plan on running as many as three or four events next year if this week's event drew around 40,000 buys nationally. The undercard was at times excruciating to watch, and most of the wrestlers, not surprised, they being terribly out of shape. As a novelty at the event may be able to survive beyond one event, but it might be better for five foreign national stars who are in better shape. Limit the event to two hours to the three, and avoid wrestlers with Jake Snake Roberts' reputation. Uh, for those of you that may be curious about the buy rate, it drew between twenty-seven and 32,000 buys. Fewer than the 41,000 buys that Stone had hoped for. Uh, Stone and investors did break even on the event. Uh, everyone that was talked to in that Wrestling Estate article had been paid for what they were promised or expected. 
which is definitely a testament to Stone's professionalism. Well, at least they got paid. That that is good. At least at least nobody got gypped on their money. Which you know, if you would have told me that would have happened, then I firmly would have believed it. So at least nobody got gypped. I'm sure that the uh, the casino. I mean, I don't know what the deal was, but it wouldn't surprise me if it might have been a partially sold show to to the casino also. To have them kick kicking money toward uh, site fees, yeah, yeah, possible. All right, the only way for this concept to make money is for shows to become a parody of wrestling, with old wrestlers cutting promos on today's top stars, embarrassing mismoves, and cliche non finishes. So, so, okay, so you're saying Wade that you would like Heroes of Wrestling to become what would eventually take form as Southpaw Regional Wrestling. <laughs> then again, maybe that is what the promoters were attempting to do with just this show. Just an ugly display of wrestling. That said, I would look forward to ordering another one just because you never know how bad it's going to get. The promoters clearly put a lot of thought into the event in the sense that there were pre-match interviews and various skits taped ahead of time. The matches were both to have a storyline content, such as Sherry's turn or to tease a breakup with Sheen Volkov. There was bad directing a lot of time and bad announcements about Rosa Bloom, but overall production values are better than most first-time pay-per-view wrestling efforts, oh such God. as Barely Legal, uh, Herb Abrams, UWF, and even the UFC. Oh, I okay. I disagree with that. Just having watched this, Barely Legal was a million times better in terms of overall production values. Like, there's no, there's no comparing ECW to this. This is this was a bush league rookie, like incompetent crew doing a live pay per view. ECW was a million times better. I would agree with you. Oh, Barely Legal, especially, is well lit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not just, but I'm saying like directing and everything. So yeah. it's like, yeah, there were little flaws here and there, but like, especially by this point in time, by 99, the ECW shows did not have production flaws on their pay per views. No. Wade well, said, I'm looking forward to ordering another show, but I wouldn't dare recommend anyone who doesn't have a sick sense of humor. Well, at least he gave the caveat. And, you know, I mean, this type of show appeals to those type of people because there are those type of people that love the train wrecks that love this parody of wrestling. And so, I mean, there's definitely a market for something like this, but not if you want to make money. Yes. Also, did either of you see what, as we record this, what John Pollock tweeted today about Heroes of Wrestling? No. No. That October 1999 gave us Brian Danielson and Hiroshi Tanahashi to make up for Heroes of Wrestling. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Because that's when both debuted. Yeah. Within a few days of each other, actually. Yeah, because Tanahashi debuts during our week. We'll talk about it later. And Danielson debuted on October 2nd. Yeah. But yeah. Sources say Jay Roberts flipped out during this match pay-per-view. Uh, in the weeks leading up to the show, Roberts volunteered to do promotional work for pay-per-view and drove to several towns at no extra charge to make appearances to hype the show. Nearly everyone associated with pay-per-view was impressed with how well he handled himself during the PR tour. Roberts was sober during his PR tour and told Foster representatives he thought the show was his chance for a comeback. And then it talks about how Roberts had pre- received a phone call from his ex-wife, Cheryl, who finally was working the show, said to demand a large amount of back child support money since she thought he was getting a big payday for the pay-per-view. She told him if she didn't receive the money by October the 12th, she would see to it that he was arrested. Some say it's a classic Roberts story that he's used before. When he showed up, he locked himself inside the dressing room, wouldn't speak to anyone until cutting his pre match promo. So associated with a show claim it was his first time they noticed he was intoxicated, but they still allowed him to work the match. Before the match, Roberts played Snake and Rain, blah, 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 blah. So we talk about that. Um, 
Sources say Roberts broke down crying and eventually walked to the back in the ring. That's probably what he was doing. He was laying down in the ring. Well, there you go. Then all the more reason to cut, you know, fade to black when they did. Yeah. So by the night of the show, Nightheart refused to do the job to Jake. Uh, Nightheart's only adjustment was that Roberts did not be placed on him because it felt making him look bad. Twins for the match, Nightheart told officially he went job in the main event, claimed he was being screwed. Some sources indicate he refused to be paid by check, demanded a written guarantee he would be used on the next pay-per-view. So there's no guarantee there would be another pay-per-view. Officials couldn't meet, meet his demand. Several wrestlers tried talking him into sticking with the original plan, including George Steele, but Nightheart refused. Nightheart claimed it would make him look bad and scare away the WF and WCW from using him again. Oh, for course, Jim Nightheart didn't do anything else to scare them away from using him again. At one point, Nightheart packed his bag and started to leave the building. Finally, management agreed to work some sort of a compromise. And he talks about how Henry came out and did his deal and blah, 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 blah. Jim Nightheart, god damn. You've you just been in WCW. You've, you've like burnt your bridge in WF. Jesus Christ. Get it over yourself. Well, I mean, I don't blame him. Like, if, if I was a part of this show, I wouldn't want to take a check either because everything, well, everything well, every, every indication would be that this thing is probably going to bounce. <laughs> that part, that part, yes, absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah, get paid in cash. Now, that I will go with. The 20 minutes before the match refusing to do, to do what was asked, that's, that's no good. No. Um, I tried pulling up scoops, which I had forgotten about the rebranding as scoopswrestling.com and the redesign and stuff. Um, Not so scoops, but scoops. No, this is Al Isaac Scoop Central, yes. Unfortunately, Al's behind the scenes at Heroes of Wrestling column, while archived, is not currently available on Wayback. I wonder what kind of deal they had with with Scoops Wrestling to be plugging them re- repeatedly during the show. Oh, oh, oh my god, I just found something amazing. I had no idea about this. Chris, who do you want to guess was doing the review for Scoops of WWF The Music Volume 4? I have no clue. Barry Pacheski. Well, how about that? Yeah, I'm sure that the tens of listeners will know who that is. Well, for me, it's now a defector. Yes, yeah, so it's very inside. I know, <laughs> but I would not have expected that. Because you work with him. All right, so uh, back, uh, backstage at the preview, Jake apologized for his performance, but acted as though there were outsiders working against him, including Nightheart. Roberts apologized to the other wrestlers involved in the match, the producer of the show, anyone around him, before locking himself in his dressing room with a few friends. Roberts banged his head in his locker. Complained about his life and Nightheart's conduct. He was given his paycheck. He had already received some of it as he requested his advance deposit, but tore it up and refused to accept it. Later, Roberts was given a second check and left the building and didn't attend any of the post-show functions. Wrestlers and management were split to whom they were most angry, upset with regarding that. Most of the wrestlers felt pity for Roberts, but were downright angry at Nightheart. On the other hand, representatives of Fallstone Productions were livid with Jake, and fear potential backlash by the pay-per-view companies that distributed the show. If Foster manages to avoid a backlash, they are telling people the show drove up 0.1, they'd like to run three more shows next year. They've already ruled out using Jake and Nightheart on the next event if there is one. No, well, no shit. <laughs> what, so what, so what, where do you, what do you think here? I mean, I mean, Nightheart... Even though I mean we agree with him regarding the cash thing, 
I mean, he's he's the one doing the most damage to this, right? Uh, you mean I don't willfully. Know. Yes, willfully is a, 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 a word. Yes. I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, if Nightheart wasn't was wasn't going to wasn't going to be pinned in the main event of the show, he should have at least said it that afternoon, like several hours in advance, so they could come up with a different finish. Like. How hard would that be? Or do like a DQ? I mean, yeah, it's not great to end the pay-per-view with a DQ finish or a run-in or something like that, but there's a way to get around having him be pinned and, you know, appease him. Um, And he still wrestled. He still did his job. He still, like, during the course of that match, you know, was trying to cover up for Jake just laying on his back. You know, Nightheart just kept doing things to him to make it look presentable. Like, Roberts was you know, trying to sell for him when in actuality it was just Nightheart doing stuff around him. Like, so he did his job. He he could have handled it a little bit better and given them more advanced notice if he wasn't willing to do what was asked of him. But like, and I know that Roberts, you know, he's dealing with the personal issues with, with his wife and everything. But I mean, knowing that you're on a pay-per-view, yeah, you've got things on your mind and I mean, maybe the only solution that he had was to turn to alcohol or drugs or whatever to get his mind off of his personal problems. But when it comes to right down to it, that's what really ruined the match. Like Nightheart still wrestled. He still went out there. Uh, but Roberts was the one that was in no condition to perform. So I would say more of the blame is on Roberts for how things turned out. There's a way that Nightheart could have been more professional in the way that he conducted business with the, with the uh, promotion, but I'd put more of the blame on Roberts. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's, yeah, a lot of valid points there. Yeah. And if I were them, I wouldn't. I, mean, I wouldn't use either of them again. Period. Oh. Anyway, because because Nightheart didn't inform them until 20 minutes before the match. You know. Yeah. The wrestlers were shot by people involved with Fawston Productions' lack of wrestling knowledge. Fawston said have a decent reputation for producing sporting and music events, music events, and wanted to capitalize on pro wrestling success. Since knowing the company has a wrestling background, several officials of the company went out and rented old wrestling tapes and attended an ECW show. Having watched the old tapes, they insisted on using workers like Iron Sheik and the Black Volkov, thinking they were big stars. There we go. After attending the ECW show, they described they want to have an ECW light match because they liked the enthusiasm of the ECW crowd. The book of the show, any from Northwest, Northeast, Mike Lombardi, didn't sign up to it on one man game to honor request. Oh, man. Before the company went to one of the bookers of the show and actually requested a copy of the wrestler's move from script, not understanding how our matches worked. Well, if, if it was years later, they would, they would have that. <laughs> At the pay-per-view, the producer of the show believed the blood and the Abdullah gang match was fake. They were horrified to learn it was real and feared bad press because of it. <laughs> also, as a result of the ECW show they attended, Boston employees asked if Jimmy Snooker would perform his superfly leap onto Bob Orton through a table at ringside. Snooker doesn't like performing the move in the ring, let alone at ringside, because he has bad knees. And then within a year of this, he's doing the super fly splash off the top rope through a table on at least one Frank Goodman show. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, they should have just booked Sabu, you know? <laughs> if, if they went to the ECW show and they wanted, like, just book Sabu. Yeah, but then Sabu would be in breach of contract. And we, you know, we all know how that went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. Although you know what you know what that makes me realize though, 
they should have booked either in a singles or attack. They should have, if they could have, they should have booked something like Sabu versus Jimmy Snuka. Or Sabu, Abby, or whatever. Like, or just do like Too Cold versus Sabu or something like that. But they couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But Sabu is someone who could do the heavy lifting for a legend while also still fitting in, is what I mean. Right. Yeah, Sabu Snuka could, could work, yeah. All right, we have Heroes Notebook time. Quick hits from the torch. So Blanchard's knees were in pain after the show. He has history of bad knees. Boston Productions head by Bill Stone, if you didn't already know that. <laughs> He's come so far <laughs> since he ruined Prezak's friendship with Tommy Noe. Oh, wait, that's Bill Strong. Bill Str- that was Bill Strong. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't ruin it. It was Tommy Noy. I do not blame Bill whatsoever. <laughs> Although there's a lot of speculation that Yokozuna and King Kong Bunny came out early due to Robert's behavior. The main event of the show was scheduled to be a tag match. Switched to a tag match the week before the show because the Burners didn't want to give away the winner in the give away a winner in Yokozuna Bundy on the first pay-per-view. Well, that's contradicting uh, what Dave had done. Yep. Well, we already know the story. They wouldn't job for each other. So there you go. Sid Vicious had virtually agreed to work the show before signing his WWE contract. <laughs> Vader was contacted about working the show, but couldn't do it to an All Japan commitment. The promoters expressed concern by him working with him since his All Japan contract states he cannot job in the United States. Well, wait a second. Why? Well, you fucking did Yokozuna and Bundy with that same step. And and the, and the the guy in charge knew that neither of them were able to lose, but it was like, I still want to do the match. It would be an attraction. So, like, clearly he doesn't care if there's a non-finish. Like, clearly he doesn't care if there's going to be a problem doing one of these, doing assorted uh, things on this show and didn't think ahead. How are we going to get out of these situations? I'm all yeah. surprised you're going to have a mess of a show. Oh, you'll love this one. Um, the show is originally going to be called Legends of Wrestling. But well, several wrestlers objective because they didn't want to be perceived as being retired. God damn. No one objected biggest... when uh, when John Clark called his convention that. <laughs> What's well, a convention? This is a show. Pay-per-view. Well, it was, there was a show too. But... Well, it wasn't on pay-per-view either. No. Uh, the biggest complaint came from the honky-tonk man who ended up backing out of the show after pay-per-view commercials had already been produced. Even after the name of the show which was changed. Honky Tonk claimed work on the show would hurt his reputation. Well, he was right. <laughs> Scorpio was especially depressed after committing to the show. He had no idea what the theme of the show was. <laughs> it's Magic Julio Fantastico, aka Ubas. No. No. no, no, not. That's why I said. That's why I said that. I, I knew that would get you. This is the torch. Yes, torch. Oh boy. Well, I'm further proof that I guess Wade paid zero attention to ECW. Poor Julio. Oh, too. Uh, he like, was... of, all the, of all the human beings in wrestling I'd want to be mistaken for, uh, Pablo Marquez is not at the top of the list. <laughs> he was snuck into the show against the express preference of the promoters to basically sit the wrestlers who had once appeared on Saturday Night's Man event in the late 80s. That's yeah, about Gordon. He had a growth in his throat and had been able to speak in three weeks. Via fat, slowly offered to appear at the show and waved to the crowd. Promoters told him to stay home because they want to pay that first class plane ticket. Mm-hmm. Nick Bontwinkle agreed to work the show, but promoters told people they lost contact with him after producing the pay commercials. Weird. Although yeah. it was incorrectly reported that he'd be at the pay on last week's torch. Sources say Mick Karch. Uh, I'm sure those sources were Mick Karch. Was considered for the play-by-play job after Sully took ill. Les Thatcher was also considered. But Boston Productions wanted to use former WF announcer Craig DeGeorge. Any of these people, Mick Karch, Craig <laughs> DeGeorge, Les Thatcher, all would have been better than Rosenblum or Michael St. John. 
when wrestling personnel said they wouldn't even know where to find the George, Boston insisted on using one of their own announcers, Randy Rosenblum, who had no experience at wrestling. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, you're a sports television production company in 1999 based out of the number two market in the country. And you can't find Craig DeGeorge. That's what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> wouldn't you be among the most likely sources to be able to find Craig Minervini? Well, that's when you're, you hit the nail on the head. They were looking for Craig DeGeorge. They should have been looking they for were, Craig Minervini. Yeah. They were looking for Craig Minervini, Bix. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> it, actually. It is it. And Michael you know Saint what, John? though? You know, yeah. as to, like, Craig DeGeorge would have been a good fit because he'd tick that. 80s WWF box. He's not a great wrestling announcer, but he knows wrestling well enough. He's done non-WWF wrestling, so it's not like he's unfamiliar with doing non-WWF wrestling. And And honestly, given all of the talent that was on this show, you don't think that, like, if they asked even, like, maybe three different people, like a George Steele or somebody, like, hey, do you know Craig DeGeorge's real name? (laughs) Like, yeah, somebody would be able to get a hold of him. Like, all you have to do is ask one of the veteran wrestlers who was in the WWF at the time that Craig DeGeorge was there, and you'd probably be able to find him. Um, and he was working um, He was working for the uh, in, my, in South Florida at the time. And didn't he, he a, do some stuff for Herb, too? So, like, and a lot of these guys did. In the did, 90s, so he yeah. He worked for Howard yeah. Brody on Ring Warriors, too. Yeah. Yeah, so he was he was doing stuff. But anyway. Uh, so, basically, they wanted to use their in-house guy. Michael St. John, who did the best interviews, has been announced in several smaller groups in Dallas and Memphis, including USWA. Captain Lou Albano was loved by the Boston's people because he kissed up to them and they saw him on the tapes they watched, but was despised by the rest of the personnel. At one point, Boston wanted Albano to be the color commentator for the show, but wrestling personnel objected, and thus Dutch Mantel was hired. Boston insisted he call a match and scheduled him for the Sheep Volkov match due to their history. Unbeknownst to everyone backstage, Albano walked out during the Scorpio Fantastico match. (laughs) People just wander to ringside and grab a headset, and they don't care. Producers producers for the show tried to call him back, but he ignored them and walked to ringside anyway. The promoters also wanted Lord Alfred Hayes on the event. That would have been tremendous. (laughs) Sources say Tommy Rogers had legit transportation problems, couldn't arrive to the show until 20 minutes before his match. There was talk of delay in the match, but Foster people refused as they didn't want to reorder the graphics they had. And I'll point out because that I was just this reminds me of the fact that uh, even though they didn't want to reorder the graphics, they still got the graphics wrong. And as the SST were coming through the curtain, they showed the graphic for Tommy Rogers and Marie Gennetti. Oh, John, goddamn! Also, can you uh, imagine Lord Alfred Hayes and Scorpio in the same locker room? <laughs> two great stars of international wrestling over the years big big stars Damien Damien would be jealous <laughs> Lord Alfred Hayes doing his AWF heel shtick that would have been something too yeah, on this show um, the, the payoffs for the show varied a few of the wrestlers were so desperate for money they only requested their usual fee for a small indie show sources indicate nearly all the wrestlers were working each other on the map they were paid Oh my god, what a fucking disaster. And it and it's fucking mark promoters. And so obviously these promoters not were not wrestling fans back in the day. They saw what wrestling was doing in the current world and decided, hey, 
let's do a wrestling show. And they thought, well, WWF was big. Let's watch some of their old tapes. Oh, these guys don't work for a company anymore. Let's use them. Let's build the show around these guys. Man. And keep in mind, like, how times have changed in terms of, like, technology and everything. Like, compared to now, like, imagine the the sheer expenses involved in putting a live pay-per-view broadcast together in 1999, getting the satellite time, having the production truck there doing it all live. Like just from a broadcast standpoint, doing a show like that compared to like what it costs right now to do something that's has much higher production values on like fight TV right now that every independent promotion is doing like how much money putting this show on actually costs and how terrible it was in the end. It's mind boggling. Oh God. It is. Absolutely is. All right. Any final thoughts on this, uh, on this show, Dave? Uh, like I said, it, it could, there's a way that a legends show like this could have been done with the right people in charge of it. And with a competent experienced pro wrestling production crew handling it, but they didn't do that. And for various reasons, we got what we got. I don't think they wanted to do it. I think they wanted they wanted what they got, but weren't happy with what they got when they got it. So, yeah. well, they Fixed. they didn't know that what they were going to get was what they got, even though anyone should have been able to tell them that that was what they would get. And the thing is, from what we just read from that wrestlingestate.com, and people go read the whole thing. It, it, what we got from that is they were happy with the show until the blood and blood and Jake. So they had that. I mean, that means they were happy with the show even after Sheet Volkoff and the Bushwhackers. That tells you about what that what they were about. Yeah, that says it all. I mean, honestly, it, it says it, it all right there. If 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 like say they decided to do a legends show, the USWA was going to do a legends show at the Mid South Coliseum. If if USWA still existed, you know, like they could have. They would have. They been did. Able to pull, they, <laughs> they did. Yeah, they pull. They would pull it off perfectly fine. It like put it on pay per view and book the same talent, same exact guys, uh, and but just have have wrestling people handling it. It would have been done well. That's that's the difference. They didn't have the right people in charge of this thing. No, no, they didn't. Fix any uh, final thoughts. This probably isn't even the best wrestling show that ever even happened at Casino Magic. Well, did, did, wasn't Rob Russell's last taping um, a few months earlier? Wasn't that also Casino Magic? I think so. It was one of them. It was one of those types of towns. I don't know if it was Casino Magic in Bay St. Louis, but yeah. it's just. Uh, why would you even try to do this if you weren't? It's because they think I it's think, easy I to think... do because it's bullshit, fake wrestling, or whatever they think, and. Like Chris said, it it was observing what pro wrestling was doing, the numbers they were doing on pay-per-view, and wanting to get a piece of the pie. And it's like, okay, nobody's done doing a Legends show, so let's why don't we do it and just well, use the guys? And the, we're there's going through a million now. reasons why you don't do it, and they didn't understand why you don't do it. We're going through this now with the celebrity boxing craze. Look at all these people that are putting on celebrity boxing shows of, you know— Quasi celebrities playing off the, trying to leech off the Paul brothers. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, it's 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 fucking crazy. But they're making yeah. money with that, though. <laughs> well, some of them are. Yeah. Well, and some are at least claiming they're making money, but uh, yeah. 
who knows and the and the way that it was reported here that they broke even or at least made some money on this show is that actually true like that i've heard in that, that was in an article the wrestling estate.com article so uh, i was i had I'd always heard even. conflicting things i had I, I had always heard that that uh stone lost like hundreds of thousand dollars in the end on all of this when you consider all of the pay-per-view expenses and everything involved but, but maybe that was incorrect but you know what but based on what it said the target was i'm guessing that was the target to do more shows and that the break even was considerably less yeah. Right. Well, let's move on to the World Wrestling Federation. Bob Gino Morella, who wrote under the classic ring name Gorilla Monsoon, was a fixture in the pro wrestling world for four decades. Passed away officially about 6.15 a.m. on October the 6th at his home in Mooresville, New Jersey, at the age of 62. Morella had been in poor health and only passed away more than a year ago, but made a strong recovery. His condition took a turn for the worse after a mild heart attack on September 19th, causing complications from diabetes to worsen. Those close to him noted that he went out like a man's man and that he would have been able to stay alive being constantly hooked up to a pacemaker to regulate his heartbeat and on kidney dialysis. But rather than have to live his life being able to leave the house as a house vegetable, as he termed it, he made the call that it was time to check out about 10 days before his death. He took himself off dialysis and died a slow death. He came home in the afternoon on October the 5th, large at a dying piece, had to be hospitalized in Philadelphia. His funeral on October the 9th in Willingboro, New Jersey, was attended by none of the current WF wrestlers, except Miguel Perez Jr. and Juan Rivera, Sabia Vega. Many of the top names, including Stone Cold Steve Austin, Undertaker sent flowers. Some close to him were upset by the almost complete absence of the current generation stars, but the fact is they weren't the friends of his generation. The old-timers, the likes of Baron Mikel Cicluna, Davey O'Hannon, Johnny Rod, Savoldi family, they were there, as was Bobby Heenan, who remained a close friend to him long after they were on opposite sides of the political fence. Much of the front office, in particular the television production division, were there in force. And Vince gave the eulogy, and a letter written by Jesse Ventura was taped to the casket. Vince also called him one of the finest men I ever knew, gave Morello probably the nicest send-off on television on SmackDown, of any wrestler of the past. Um, and New York Times had an, an obituary, of course, about Gorilla. And there's an interesting thing in the obituary that really didn't get picked up on at the time, Bix, that we kind of talked about on the show before. But uh, tell everybody about that again. What what was the interesting note in the Gorilla's obituary? In listing the relatives who he survived by, one of them is... Victor Quinones of uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, listed as his son. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's where the whole thing is, you know, about Victor being Gorilla's son. We've heard differing reports on that, whether he was a natural son, whether he was an adopted son. I mean, there's, you know, kind of a hodgepodge of stories there. But if you want, I mean, that's Victor got his start. You know, and there's a referee in the WWF. Um, of course, Gorilla, you know, was office for Capital Sports in Puerto Rico, WC, for forever and ever. In fact, he sold it to Victor, his stock. So, yeah, I mean, we, we may never really know what the real relationship was there. But, I mean, but the still, family would be the ones telling the Times to include Victor as his son. Yeah, and I and, and you know, and I've seen, I've seen issues where 
people in the obituaries would would do stuff like that, even though people are not blood related because of the close relationship, they would consider them sons or daughters or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I mean, so Joey Morello wasn't his son either. It's well, adopted, he did so. adopt him though. I mean, he was he was his dad. It was yeah. my understanding is it was basically a Bill Watch Joel Watch kind of situation where he raised him and adopted him. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you, we don't think about it, but yeah, Gorilla was only 62 when he died. He wasn't old. Old, old. No. You know? No, his mom was still alive. Yeah, I mean, Gorilla, I mean, you think about it. So Gorilla was 62 here in 99. He's, that means he would have been more thirty-seven. He's with. Uh, he's also within I mean, a he's year not, of whatever a, Sting is now. <laughs> yes, and, and, and think, about, think about when WWF, you know, has the big expansion. He's only forty-seven years old, and he's been g- it's just, given again, this it's, sweetheart deal he can retire on. Yeah, and, and it's one of those deals that, like, like we said before, people age differently now than they did back, even back then, way differently. You know. But Gorilla, I think Gorilla, it could be said that if there's not a Gorilla Monsoon, there may not be a World Wrestling Federation. And I'll tell you why. Gorilla, I mean, it's not because of his announcing. People just don't know what that man did, you know, in the before Vince became, you know, the big boss. I mean, Gorilla was one of, you know, Vince Sr.'s top hit, uh, right-hand men. He became the official spot Sparsha promoter, mainly in New Jersey, in the uh, in the late 70s, once Willie Gilsenberg died. He furnished the job crew for the TV tapings. He ran the TV tapings. Um, oh, I, I, I have to correct next. myself. Um <laughs> Sting right now is actually older than Gorilla was when he died. <laughs> well, there you go. 62 but, years and yeah, about so, six months versus 62 years and four months. Go ahead. Well, there you go. But yeah, Gorilla Gorilla was so entrenched in the corporate structure, well, in the structure of Capital Sports, World Wrestling Federation, that when Vince took over in 82, I mean, he already had a Gorilla Monsoon in place that could handle all these duties for him as he's learning how to run the show. I mean, he is a huge piece to the success of the World Wrestling Federation that way. Now, once Vince fully takes over, then Gorilla settles into his announcing gig and, you know, basically is able to take it easy from then on. But And, and you know, collect his money and all that. But yeah, before before then, before 1984, I mean, yeah, Gorilla was, he was, who knows? Like I said, who knows what it would have been like uh, without him? Yeah. Um, and also, we should mention, too, since, you know, this is in the obit, but you didn't put it here because you didn't put all the historical stuff in here for obvious reasons. But the sweetheart deal he gets after selling to Vince is that in addition to being employed you know, as an announcer and whatever else he was doing, because he's not doing much announcing until 84, 85. Um, but 
the deal he gets is on top of his salary, he gets a prelim payoff for every single town they run. <laughs> yeah. Not bad. So whatever the minimum payoff is, or, you know, whatever the they, they he is getting like three of those a night for much of that run. How much you think that would have been? A lot. <laughs> and, you know, because I, I don't think all of that was accounted for in the Ventura lawsuit stuff. I could check because it did list not announcing money for Heenan and stuff, but I don't, I don't remember seeing Gorilla having like an overwhelmingly bigger number next to him than anyone else. And what was I going to say? I can't remember what I was going to say now, but, but yeah, I mean, Gorilla whether you, you know you love him or hate him as an announcer, and I know some that can't stand him, and so them love him to death. I mean, he's he's the voice of the World Wrestling Federation for all those years. Yeah, Vince did the TV and stuff, but Gorilla and all the pay per views because Vince was had to run you know run the pay per views up until a certain point, and then Vince you know stepped in. We'll say ninety two. Or, or maybe 93. Oh, when, that Vince when, starts when producing Vince the pay-per-views in, in coordinate, like working with Bruce and whoever? Well, it had to be, no, because Gorilla didn't, and Ross took over as full-time pay-per-view announcer 93 when he comes in. Because Gorilla does work Rumble 93, I think. Yeah, Gorilla does some stuff, but Ross is the play-by-play man as well. So really, I guess 94 is when Vince really takes over as the main play, pay-per-view announcer. Okay, wait, I, I don't I don't think he does... Well, no, I don't remember if he does SummerSlam 93. It's, it's um, Ross and Heenan does SummerSlam, don't they? Maybe, and then Survivor Series for sure, because Survivor Series is Vince and Heenan Vince. with yeah. Gorilla and JR on Radio WWF, and they switch out for the Smoky Mountain match. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. That That's what it is. So, really, Gorilla's last pay-per-view would have been, as like a main, the main announcer, would have been Royal Rumble 93. That sounds right, yes. Where the young Carlos Colon, the, the youngster. youngster. Yes. Yeah. Which, which also reminds me, why do I get the feeling that Victor and Savio were the main people telling Dave about the funeral? Well, I mean, they were there. They were there, so. And they're people we know Dave talked to at times. Yeah. All right, so Dave mentions the Gorilla tribute on SmackDown. I guess now it's a good time to play that. So let's hear how Vince McMahon uh, eulogized Gorilla Monsoon on the October 7th issue, issue edition of SmackDown. This week, one of the greatest men I've ever known, Robert James Morella, passed away at age 62. He was celebrated and beloved worldwide as legendary superstar... Gorilla Monsoon. To his friends, he was known simply as Gino. Gino had a gorilla-sized passion for life, this business, and more importantly, the people in it. Behind the scenes, he was a cornerstone in the World Wrestling Federation. Our thoughts and prayers go out to his wife Maureen and his entire family with great sadness and heavy hearts. We say goodbye to Gino, a very special man who lived a very special life.
I mean, the gorilla position. I mean, all that stuff. You know, I mean, the, the I mean, the reason why it's called gorilla position because at the old TVs, that's where he sat. Was right there at the entrance. You know, running the entrance. What running the tapings. Giving time cues, giving punches. Yeah, exactly, yes. I mean, he's so pivotal to their success. It's insane. So, there you go. He, I want to believe it's for He, Patterson, and George Scott, I think, are the main ones that don't get nearly enough credit. Patterson's Patterson got, gets credit, but he still doesn't get enough. Yeah, Patterson has gotten a lot more late in you know, recent years. But yeah, George Scott, because of, you know, all the 1989 NWA shit and Gorilla. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was it. That was the only tragedy in WF during our week. The crippling injury to Darren Drozdoff suffering a match taped on October 5th at Nassau Coliseum for SmackDown led to another round of talk about the dangers of the industry. Drozdoff, 30, was wrestling D'Lo Brown when, according to reports, they were setting up a running Liger Bomb spot. Various sources both there and in WF describe what is rather a basic move being messed up because Brown may have lost his footing and slipped, and because Drozdov's head was too low, the result being a terrible landing on his head, fracturing his neck, which at press time still has him paralyzed below the waist. The show was held up with Drozdov motionless in the ring for about 15 minutes, and he was rushed to the Nassau County Medical Center, where he underwent more than three hours of surgery, where bone was taken from his hip to attempt to repair his neck. At this point, there was no long-term prognosis. Over the weekend, Drozdov was able to be taken off the respirator that he needed to breathe with and was starting to regain some additional feeling and movement in his upper body, which caused some cautious optimism that the same would eventually happen for the lower body once pressure of his spine was relieved. However, due to his inability to move, he contracted pneumonia in the hospital and except for close friends and family, wasn't seeing visitors. Drozdoff, former football star at the University of Maryland, who played two seasons with the Denver Broncos, signed with WF two years ago and began his career after being sent to ECW for a few months of early grooming. He's currently engaged to the company Seamstress, who appeared on television last year as one of the dudettes for the dude love heel character. The injury, a tragic accident, simply can happen in any form of contact sport, partially because it was only five months after the death of Owen Hart, and partially because it happened in New York, led to a lot of mainstream attention. None of it positive on the wrestling industry. The questions about product content, which had nothing to do with the accident, but are valid questions, resurfaced on the coattails of the accident. The question about whether wrestlers are taking too great risks to entertain fans was brought up. But in this specific case, it wasn't a scary stunt, but a somewhat routine wrestling move that Brown probably does in virtually every match, which unfortunately is in virtually every contact sport entertainment form. There's a risk of injury, even in basic maneuvers, if mistakes take place. There were complaints by fans in the building because if the draw stop was taken off on a stretcher, there was no explanation to the crowd live as to what had happened. On SmackDown there, two nights later, the match was edited off, and a match between Big Show and Boss Man, take for Sunday Night Heat, was put in its place. Drawstop's injury was acknowledged in the voiceover in the match, put in its place, but the way the show was presented, the injury was seriously downplayed. With the angle injury, the Stephanie McMahon treated as a serious tragedy on the show, and the explanation of what happened was terribly vague. Yes, Stephanie McMahon, who had had her, uh, what injury was this that it, it gave her amnesia? What what was it? Uh, British Bulldog accidentally throwing the trash can at her. Yes, and she's wearing a net brace. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the angle was already started before this happened, yeah. but 
yeah, it's not the greatest of looks, so to speak. Now, before we get into the media part of this, um, what is your memory about this uh, when this went down and all the stuff going on here? As far as the local coverage and everything? Well, just in general. I mean, this is your, I mean, you're in this, this is your area, your neck of the yeah, woods. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Did, I mean, did you know anybody that was at the show or saw it or? I believe that I do remember one or two kids at school the next day who had gone to the show. Yes. But I don't remember much about what they said other than just kind of basically what happened that just something went wrong and he landed on his head. Um, for some reason, the most vivid memory I have is from listening to one of the local news stations, I think on the way to school and being the media covering something related to wrestling, especially in 1999. Um, they said that the move that D'Lo was trying was a, a body bomb. <laughs> body bomb. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, and and the, th the thing, the thing that's to get talked about here is this was a match that was taped for SmackDown. I think a lot of people seem to remember in their own minds that this was like a dark match or a Sunday Night Heat deal. No, this was taped for SmackDown for the main show. Yes. And that's why they had to replace it with Boss Man and Big Show, which was being taped for Heat. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, but yeah, God, you know, it's one thing that had to be, you know, have that happen to you and then get pneumonia in the hospital. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And. Ooh. I believe the injury would eventually be referred to as that he was paralyzed from the chest down, which meant it, it, to whatever degree he was able to breathe on his own and had limited use of his arms. Um, but, you know, he was paralyzed below the waist and didn't have full use of his arms. So I believe that's how he end the kind of state he ends up in. And I mean, it could have been worse. You know, oh. obviously it radically changed his life but i mean it honestly could have been much worse yeah it could have been way worse and uh um, right. yeah. i mean it doesn't really get addressed here but it seemed like d'lo got heat for this when by all accounts he shouldn't have that it was well, just one of those things something happened and Draws didn't blame him one bit. Here's probably why he got heat. All the damn media attention that was going on, as we're about to get into here. Yeah, there is that. Also, on October the 7th, on MSNBC's Internight talk show with Jim Gibson. He means be John, John Gibson. Gibson. Yes. John Gibson. Jim Ross and Bruno Sammartino were the guests. Dave was asked to be the third guest, but couldn't appear due to a scheduling conflict. Ah, uh, doggone it. Gibson appeared to be trying to antagonize both sides, which could have worked, except it was clear Ross and San Martino respected each other and it didn't get out of hand. Like, it surely would have had if Titan had sent someone else to debate San Martino. Ross handled the bad situation about as good as possible, calling it the basic wrestling move that went awry. And sending in the 30 years he's been in the wrestling business, he's seen two terrible tragedies take place before his eyes, and unfortunately both were in the last five months, Owen's death being the other. Bruno who ironically suffered a broken neck also in an elementary maneuver in the famous 1976 match against Stan Hansen when he was body slammed wrong and then on his head, although he was able to return to action a couple months later, noted that accidents do happen. But, of course, Bruno's on this show. He also brought up drug problems, steroids, uppers, downers, and cocaine as problems in the industry. Ross said there were no drug problems without the draws off for D-Lo, 
Well, when except Gibson for it. when they booked Draws to be the pusher man a year earlier. <laughs> but that's long gone by this point in time. Sure. When when Gibson asked Ross what the mistake was or who was at fault, if it was one of the guys or a combination of both, he wouldn't place the blame or give an answer. There was feeling in the company that with Brown feeling so horrible about the accident, not one of the public could say anything like it might be Drawstall's fault, being that he's in the hospital paralyzed. There was no way to publicly answer the question. The show then brought the content issue of wrestling and the Indiana University study. Ross, he thought the Indiana University numbers, if anything, might have been low, saying that since Raw is rated TV-14, it's not suitable for children, and that parents should allow their children to watch the more heavily edited weekend shows. As noted, those weekend shows edited for children actually have only a small percentage of the children's audience that Raw gets. San Martino did make a strong point when Ross made that statement about how the heavily the company markets directly to children. If you want to hear more about those uh, Indiana University numbers, oh um, I think we covered them on another show. Uh, another a long time ago, but I think we did, yes. I know we did the 11th to the 17th, which is why this show is the 6th to the 10th, as we talked about earlier. And uh, that was on show 117. So we probably talk about that stuff there more. Um I, <laughs> It is good that Ross is on here instead of somebody else because Bruno would have been probably even more of a curmudgeon, so to speak. But, I mean, it's WBF in 1999, and when you have you know this come up, you know all the other stuff's going to come up with it. It's, I mean, it's the way it is, and that's stuff they got to deal with. If they're going to be you know, going in that direction and doing all the stuff they're doing, they got to expect this blowback. Don't you agree? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize you were throwing to me there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the main gist of the story is to draw us off injury, but everything else is going to come up too, you know? Yeah. Just matter of matter of it. And of course, Bruno being on there, you know he's going to bring up his shit. Of course he is. But it gets worse. An even worse segment stemming from this aired on Fox News the next night on the Hannity and Combs show. Yes, folks. For those of you that know of Sean Hannity as uh, having his own show, many years ago he had a show with Alan Combs, who was his uh, liberal counterpart. And they would uh, trade barbs back and forth with each other. And uh, this is back in the day when Fox News was not as extreme as they well, have they been. Well, they weren't on that as many places yet. Well, no, I mean, well, I'm just talking about the Hannity Combs show in general. Oh, it was I a mean, lot more. Sean, oh, Hannity was nothing like he is now in terms of his presentation. No, no, no. no. Hannity always, you know, was right leaning, but it ain't like it is now, you know. So anyway, as Irony would have it, they had Jake Roberts on saying that he was on a mission to clean up wrestling. <laughs> Did they ask to toss his salad too? <laughs> how the messages it teaches children were terrible racism treatment of women defining authority and at 20 years from now society would pay for it the irony of seeing roberts on friday in that form and seeing roberts the man who wanted to clean up wrestling was doing two days later was staggering to say the least in studio arguing with Bar bob peters of morality and media was jim barcelona miami herald and this segment was perhaps the worst media segment on wrestling days ever seen. It was a circus of people yelling and screaming and making virtually no good points, and the host, who had no clue about the story, egging it on. 
In fact, the draws up injury to Callus for the segment was never even spoken about. Wait, how long has Jim Varsalone been around? <laughs> Oh, he was around a long time. But, good lord. <sighs> what do you even say to this? I mean, it's just... You know, it's, it's what it is. I mean, it, 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 you have, when you had that chance to, to, to pick on wrestling, that's what people are going to do. They're going to pick on wrestling. And it just it, it'll get out of hand. They'll bring on some, you know, somebody on the hardcore, you know, side of like um, Brett Pozell's group or some facsimile thereof, and then they'll bring on some wrestling uh, media person or some wrestler or whatever to try to debate them. And I mean, it's what they want. They, they're getting what they wanted: conflict and no good points. And all it is is yelling. And this is 1999. This is this isn't even what we see now because this is the norm now. But this is 1999. This was not the norm back then. Not like that. Not that much. I mean, now it's every show. But back then it was not like that. But yeah, I mean, it just the whole thing was was a, a sad situation all the way around. So yeah, and D'Lo that played D'Lo you know for many years. And, 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 you know, the best thing that Ross could have said, going back to Ross, I think, is, I mean, just just say when, some, when when John Gibson's asking about fault, all you got to say is just like, it's just one of those things that happens. It's a mistake. Yeah. You know, that's all you have to say. You know, there's nobody at fault. It just happened. So, whatever. All right. Both wrestlers have, all, I know, but right. Both wrestlers have their part in that move. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean... It just is what it is. All right, SmackDown on October the 5th, taped at Nassau, aired on October the 7th. We have some dark matches on that show. Salofa Fatu beat Crash Holly in 62 seconds using the new ring name of Rakishi Fatu. Yes, there you go, folks. Yes. The birth of Rakishi. Also, is this the first time... Well, no, wait, because we already have Sean Stasiak at this point. But this is one of the first times where someone... It gets a new gimmick in developmental, yeah. Because Sean Stasiak didn't really have a gimmick, and then just gets a completely new gimmick on the main roster without even trying it out in developmental. A tradition that lasts to this day. Mm-hmm. Because he had been uh, Jr. Smooth, right? Jr. Smooth, yeah. Kurt Angle also did a dark match job for Stevie Richards, and Jr. Ryder got another tryout match, but over the Godfather once again, apologizing for not for Mick Foley not picking him on the MTV thing <laughs> and instead picking uh, who was it Hungarian Barbarian and Mad Whip or Whip yes <laughs> oh man alright uh, Dave talks about the nice tribute to Gorilla and all that stuff uh, we had X-Pac and Kane going over Midian back to his old spelling this week in Viscera 239 when Kane pinned Midian after a choke slam. Jerry Lawler continued to talk about X-Pac having an enlarged heart, which is unbelievably tacky considering the number of wrestlers who have died from that very thing. If I remember right, this is the line where Cole or someone says something about X-Pac having such a big heart, and Lawler responds, wait, enlarged heart? That's a medical condition. <laughs> and then look what happens with Lawler <laughs> you know, years later. Well, 
anyway, the Acolytes ran in after the match to build up the four-width No Mercy pay-per-view. Then they had an update on a tragic situation. Of course, it was Stephanie McMahon's angle where they showed her in a net brace being carted off. This was unbelievably bad taste in the circumstances to continue this angle on this show. Can you imagine what anyone who vaguely knew draws or simply had heard the news and figured this was the first TV since it happened and the show had actually happened on, figuring to get the most detailed update on the story, and then having to see something that was a play-acting spoof being talked about as if it was the real most important tragedy of the past week? Tact. There's no tact here. And I know, and I know they, you know, they shot the angle and they got to, you know, advance the angle. There's no tact. I mean, you don't have to do that on this show. No. You know, just cut that I mean, segment and figure out a way yeah. and move it to Raw and do whatever. It's just, yeah, have some tact, have some, you know, some compassion for the family or whatever. You know, don't do that. Because at this point in time, Draws would, still been on, would have still been on the respirator. Oh. You know? Yeah, because Dave said he got off of it on the weekend. This is two days later. Yeah. So, yeah, not good. Not good. All right, T's Austin was going to be there and was going to Triple H later in the show, even though he wasn't there at all. Hardcore Holly beat the Road Dog clean, a dead match with the Arms Crush Bomb at 512. Outlaws beat up the Hollies after the match. Wait a second. This is the he doesn't what? know what the Falcon Arrow is in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> the Orange Crush Bob. Outlaws beat up Hollies after the match. Just built the tab match at, at no mercy. Next, we get Mark Henry, who's in sex therapy class because he's sexual chocolate. He's it's just killing him. Well, you know? no, 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 no. You don't remember what the actual catalyst was, do you? Oh, he's, I, I don't know what the catalyst. I don't remember the catalyst of this. It no. was the Sammy. I think it was the Sammy thing happens, which boy does that age badly. And then he announces that he's a sex addict and needs to go into therapy. And Mark Henry is wearing a full denim deal here. And he's got his Canadian tuxedo, and the sex therapist is uh, wearing an extremely, extremely short skirt. So, yeah, that doesn't really seem appropriate for this specific job. Yeah, I mean, he, all he's got to do is look, and he he, he can see it all. So uh, let's go to the clip, shall we? What a photo this is. <laughs> Literally, there is a graphic that says Mark Henry's first sex therapy session, and it's right next to the WWF logo. And he's laying on the couch with his a denim suit. Yes, is he holding something? A cigar or something? No, I just take this away, you guys' hand. Okay, so I'm not sure what the thing that it looks like he's holding is on. But anyway. All right, here we go. Brace for this. This is going... Uh, We may actually need to put a warning on this one now that I remember what it's about. No, I just let it play. It's You'll silly see WWF. Why, well, no, it's not. <laughs> the thing. No, I'm reading what, I, reading what he said. It's silly WF shit. Um, let me make sure I'm not thinking of the right one then. Uh... Yeah, I mean it is kind of fucked up, but anyway, okay. Skip ahead a couple a minute, couple minutes if you might be easily uh, something. This is your first therapy session. The rules are simple. All you have to do is sit back, tell the truth, and relax. Okay. All right, I can do that. Good. So <clears throat> tell me, when was your first sexual encounter? Uh, what perfume you wore? This is a very serious matter, and I need you to tell you're me right, you're right. when was your first sexual encounter. Well, it's a sensitive area, Doc. Mm -hmm. I understand. 
I, I was scared. Why? Well, it was dark and I was all alone. <laughs> Mark, Mark, all jokes aside, please, no joking. <sighs> okay. Mark, okay. All right, you're Mark, right. when okay, was your okay. first sexual encounter? It's okay. Well, I tell jokes because, I mean, it hurts, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to talk about this again. How old were you? I was eight. And who was it with? Why does, why, what, who? It's okay, you can trust do, me. Does it matter who it was with? You can trust me. And the camera. Who was it with? It was with my sister. Your sister? You're, you don't still have sex with your sister. See, uh, I mean, this ain't helping me none. It's okay. When was the last time you had sex with your sister? The day before yesterday. Uh, <laughs> Mark, I see that you've got some problems and oh we've got a lot of work to do. A this lot of work. not helping. It's okay. I'm trying to forget. I'm trying to put this behind me. <sighs> Did I just... You just heard it. Mark Henry, an admitted sex addict, is undergoing therapy. Well, folks, there you go. Mud pit. He's sex with his sister. That's what he said. That mud pit filled with cold, slimy mud. A first ever mud wrestling match here tonight. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's one of the worst things ever on WWF television. Oh my god. And then they go right to plugging the mud wrestling match, which we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Vince Russo's not here anymore, folks. God. <laughs> yeah, Vince Russo has gone. He left. He's gone for he's been gone for a week. No, it's the other Vince who has an unhealthy obsession with this subject matter. This is what Dave said. I guess they were bound to determine to do that incest angle. I just hope Mark Henry has no young kids of school age because no money would be worth the torture they'd be put through. This was taking place at 8.30 p.m. Okay. Um, what was the angle they had already nixed at this point, then? Oh. There's been so many different ones. That's the I thing know, I can't remember. It's horrifying. <laughs> but yeah, this is on This is on at 8.30 at night. On, on, on the most watched TV night of the week. And the thing is, is that I mean, this happens, and it's like it's completely forgotten about, like right after. Yes. This is like, I think, I think a lot of people had the same reaction as I had. They just was laughing at it and thought, you know, it's it's silly. Right. What it's is wrong with them? Yes. Yeah, it's just like it's, it, that's insane. They know it's not real, but still, that's not something that you really need to be playing on television. For not, a not, not that. Not, 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 not that. Well, I mean, how else do you make uh, him quit, Chris? <laughs> yeah, but he didn't have to be a sister. <laughs> I know. Cousin would have been at least somewhat better. <laughs> also, make him older than eight. Jesus Christ. <sighs> oh, my God. Well, how do you follow that up? How do you follow that up? Well... You go to J double F ha J double R U double T. That's double J Jeff Jarrett. Mm-hmm. Well, we're back on SmackDown, and I think we're about to find out who the participants are gonna be in the WWF's first ever mud match. Oh! 
And Jeff Jarrett, the Intercontinental Champion. And look at he's dressed in waders. <laughs> well, folks, we can tell you tonight, WWF SmackDown is brought to you by Dino Crisis. You don't hunt them, they hunt you. Oh, my God. Tom, the makers of Resident Evil. And by Skittles, wow. bite-sized candies. Taste the rainbow of fruit flavors. And by Lugs, Lugs, Boots and Jeans. Decide oh, well, conquer all. Lugs, decide and conquer. Well, for the looks of the way Jeff Jarrett's dressed, he's going to be wrestling somebody in the mud. And look at his ankle deep in that mud. Finally, I have found a place for the women of the WWF. What? Oh, come on. Mud wrestling. Ugh. When's he going to stop? After that fiasco on Raw Monday night, this is the only place that Brawl should be fighting. So later on tonight, right here in this very mud ring, courtesy of Jared Enterprises. Jared Enterprises. Miss Kitty. What? Will be getting it on knee deep in this slop. Miss Kitty. And since the women of the WWF what? are so obsessed with their cleavage, the only way to win the match is not by one, two, three, but it's by ripping your opponent's top off. What? Hey, I don't think Miss Kitty knew anything about this. We're gonna see. And Kenny, you've been apologizing for the last few days. If you want to get back on my good side, you better not back out. And China, I've got a few words from you. Uh-oh. There will be no backing out of the good housekeeping match at No Mercy because I will show no mercy. We're gonna see Miss Kitty in the mud. Yeah, but who's she taking on? That's who's better than a, That's better than a litter box. Jeff Jarrett Enterprises presents the first ever WWF Mud Wrestling match here on SmackDown. And, and, and somebody's top is coming off. Yeah, but who's Kitty's opponent? I don't care. And look at that mud, slimy, gooey, cool, and oozy. Right now, Terry Taylor with the bulldog. Let's not. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about Terry Taylor just a little bit. Um, Jarrett Enterprises, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, when did Stacy start seeing Barbara Mandrell's stylist? That's her look she had from that whole early run. I guess I don't remember I it mean, being this feathered. Oh yes, yes. Uh, so where's where's Deborah again? Has she already fully turned babyface? I guess. Yeah, that's why Miss Kitty's with Jeff. So, well, initially wow. she was Deborah's assistant, but mm -hmm. yeah. So basically, they did the, the, the Jimmy Hart, uh, Jimmy Hart, Jimmy Garvin, Sunshine Precious thing going away here in that way. I wonder, gee, I wonder who's writing that. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dave talked about talked about that. It says, remember on that talk about how the real sleazy stuff doesn't air until 10 p.m. or after 10 p.m. <laughs> this was at 8:45. Anyway, Terry Taylor was interviewing the Bulldog. Mankind did an interview, uh, attacked him during the interview. Hardy Boys beat Christian and Edge at 613 in a tornado match. This match was filled with some really nice water maneuvers. The crowd was still dead, even though the guys are working hard and have a hell of a match. Lawler was totally out of control, pushing the upcoming mud wrestling match, which must have made an interesting irony since it's aired the same day as his election taking place. All right. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> they named the move where Christian's on Edge's shoulders and delivers a suplex, a stacked up superplex. They did the move on Matt, but then Jeff delivered a sent off top on Christian for the pin. And then we get the the uh, mud wrestling match, where it was Ivory that went against Miss Kitty, and uh, what a finish this is! So let's go to that, shall we? I'm trying to As queue you... it up because the network was having a little bit of a thing. But also, we should note too that um, when Jeff was explaining everything earlier, that he was basically dressed like he was fly fishing, but without a shirt on and wearing his belt. Yeah. Belt. <laughs> All right. So here we go. And they are covered in whatever the substance is, which is clearly not actual mud, but I'm not sure what it is. Cameraman down there now. This is some great network Is Jeff here? Oh, Je- well, Jeff's awesome in this whole role. When he got, when he finally got in this role, don't piss me off, Jeff Jarrett. He was fantastic. And the he found he finally found his true calling in that gimmick. And the misogyny stick stick is played so over the top. Yes, that it doesn't really age that badly. 
it's yeah, it's all comedy anyway, you know. I mean, it's it's it is what it is, you know. And he's the bumbling heel, and yeah, yeah, and but just his delivery on everything, Jared Enterprises. Oh, he's fantastic! Hey, he's fantastic. Bumpy. T- I was a huge Jeff Jarrett fan at this point in time. I, I, I mean, when he was at WCW, I thought it was great. You know, the whole, I mean, slap nuts and all that stuff. I mean, he he was awesome. Russo, I mean, that's one thing Vince Russo can take credit for is finding the way to use Jeff Jarrett properly. And he made Vince Russo made you know made Jeff Jarrett. I mean, Jeff was great at too, but Vince Russo made Jeff Jarrett. Vince Russo was the one that gave Jeff more to sink his teeth into as a heel. Yes. As a heel, exactly. As a face, Jeff was amazing, you know, forever. But as a heel, he had never been as good as he got without, you know, Russo. And, you know, there's people that's known, I mean, they're known for who they write for. You know, Brian Gowers for the for the Rock and, you know, the people, you know, for the, but Vince Russo and Jeff Jarrett, they had that relationship. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was... And you can see why Jeff was so loyal to Russo for all those years. Yes. Yeah, he's awesome here, and he's about to be gone. <laughs> That's the thing. He's about to be gone. And Jeff swears... A week and a half later. Too, and I believe him that, like, his departure, and you can tell because of the contracts and stuff, like, none of this had anything to do with Russo. With Russo. It's... He's like, well, wait a second. My contract is up, and you're not exactly trying hard to keep me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think about it from his perspective. If they're bungling it to the degree they did, what incentive are they giving him to stay? Yeah, exactly. Nothing really. Nope. All right, so next we get Shane being interviewed. He noticed that Stephanie still has amnesia, and the wedding's been postponed. Not sure why they hyped the event specifically for the Georgia Dome, if they were going to deliver it. Clearly, it was used as a ticket-selling device. Then we got Mankind going to WQ with the Bulldog on 615. Hard bumps into the ring steps. For the most part, wasn't much of a match. Jim Ross was on location with Austin firing rifle shots at Triple H. And photos of Triple H. Then they had the Big Show Boston match that was supposed to be on Heat. This is what replaced D-Lo and Drozdoff. Uh, they mentioned the draw situation on the commentary. Triple H did supposedly kill a rattlesnake and carried out a bag supposedly all bloody and did a bad promo. We're not playing that. Valvina said a promo was attacked by Mankind. Bulldog attacked Mankind. They went two-on-one until with the semi-great one. And then Rock and Valvinus went 10-12. They took some hard bumps on the ramp and stairs. Venus grabbed the chair. Mankind ran in, got it from him. When he went to hit Val, he ducked. Rock got hit. Rock still kicked out of the pinfall. Mankind put Sako on Val. Rock gave... Uh, Val and Mankind both rock bottoms. The match ended with another DDQ finish, and Rock and Mankind teased a confrontation. The match had a surprising lack of heat, but coming after the draws situation in the building, that was understandable. Well, yeah. I mean, they taped this to air. So the draws, ma- the draws situation happened right before this. Yeah, right before the main event. Yikes. Yeah, it did. I didn't even think about that, because yeah, I'm looking at the order now. They sub in show versus boss man as you know, right after the Austin thing, yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. And Val Venus gets a man event with the rock here. So how about that? They are trying we're trying with him. Um yeah, they did try, but 
that gimmick, it was never going to be a main event gimmick. No, and then by the time they tried to rehab him from it, two, year, two years was too long to give him a makeover. Yeah. You need... the With gimmicks like him and Meat, Godfather had some staying power, but Godfather was never a guy that they had bigger plans for. No, he was he was what he was. Yeah. Like, I don't think he can go longer than a year. No. Alright, uh, SmackDown did a 4.4 rating, ranked 87th in primetime, so the highest rating for UPN, losing everything network-wise except WB. And that's 87th for the week. Since yes, not generally tonight. today when well, because generally today when we talk about rankings, we're talking about the night. Yeah. Alright, after SmackDown on WOR in New York, they actually ran three different wrestling stories in their 10 p.m. newscast, a story scheduled to tie in with the wrestling on King Kong Bundy, along with the condition of draws and the death of Gorilla Monsoon. Wow, three. Well, they always had one. Yeah, well, because it was on the UPN affiliate at that time. Yeah. So it was right, it was right to SmackDown. All right, uh, Heat on October the 10th. They had the big show of Bossman match by DQ, which used... Uh, it was on Smack, which was on SmackDown, um, but it didn't air on Heat. So there you go. The Dudleys beat Chris Jericho and Mr. Hughes, or Curtis Hughes, in 448 when Jericho walked out on Hughes, leaving him to take the 3D and get pinned. The original idea of this was when it was scripted was for it to be a breakup of Jericho and Hughes. It's pretty much universally agreed upon that this pairing has done nothing positive for Jericho. <laughs> Chris Jericho has been in the promotion now for two months. Yes, and this is where he is. Yes. I also love the story, I think, from Jericho's second book about how Vince is like, God, why do you keep calling him Curtis Huge? He lost so much weight. <laughs> uh, and Jericho was a lost soul at this time. He's a guy that suffered from uh, Vince Russo not being around. <sighs> but he, 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 he stuck it out and it eventually worked out for him. What can you say? Yeah. Uh, next, we get Steve Blackman over Chaz. And then, uh, well, let's go to this clip, shall we? I don't want to describe it. Let's play what happens here. As at this point in time, uh, of course, the Beaver Cleaver gimmick's dead, and Chaz and Mariana are uh, together. She's his valet, his former mother. No, but now she's been accusing him of domestic violence. She's been accusing him of domestic violence. After they broke up well, for reasons I forget. Yes. Yeah, so let's go to the clip here where she's coming out to get him with police. Yes. Um, let's just say that if you were to look up the phrase used, I guess ironically is not the right word, but used to derisively describe and rightfully so a certain frame of mind as Bitches be crazy. This angle would be next to it in the dictionary. <laughs> On the lethal weapon. Oh, wait a minute, Michael. Oh, great. There's Chaz's ex-girlfriend, Mariana, accompanied by a police officer. Uh-oh, they're going to arrest him. Oh, look at that. On her way to the ring and again sporting a black eye. And there's Blackman with that bicycle kick now to the face of Chaz. Ironically, referee Jimmy Corderas is working this match. He's the same referee who... Last week on Sunday Night Heat. And wait a minute. I don't know if he tapped out there. Cordero's called for the bell. Your winner, the lethal weapon, Steve Lickman. What is Mariana telling these uh, law enforcement officers? 
Oh, yes. They're also doing well. So they're doing an angle where some of the referees are cutting him less slack in matches because they think he's a domestic abuser. Yes. Yeah, and so this is also to... in the middle of the. Isn't this also in the middle of the referee strike too? And and Corderas is the scab. I think so. It's either yeah. in the middle of or right after. Um, because they shut it down pretty quick once Russo was gone. But so there's all sorts of stuff overlapping here. Which Where, any wrestlers at? It's a police officer. Well, I was going to say, where was this taped? In Long Island. Oh yeah, that's right. Duh. Um, I don't know. But let's see. Chaz taps out, the referee calls for the bell, and now Mariana's talking to the police here. And what in the world's going on? Not again. This has got to be humiliating for Chaz. It looks like once again, he's going to be taken into custody. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait one second hey, here. Michael, take a look. I've been sitting at home for a long time watching your GTV spots. That's good. And I... I Received a GTV spot on my own. Roll the footage. He's Chaz's former partner with the headbangers, Glenn Root. And what's this here? Or Thrasher. Have to see the size of this bruise. It is so big. It's oh, no. the best one yet. Chaz is going to pay huge. Nobody, and I mean nobody, embarrasses me and dumps me. I'm going to make him pay for this big time. Mariana caught on tape. That isn't a bruise. That's a bad paint job by Mako. It was all a ruse by Mariana in recent weeks. Mariana, a lover scorned, decided to get back at Chaz. And these former headbanging tag team partners are enjoying a laugh at Mariana's expense. It was all makeup all along. Now the authorities are questioning Mariana. The authorities. Oh, this is justice. Finally. Good for her. But will this be able to repair the embarrassment, the humiliation that Chaz has had to endure over recent weeks? Glenn Root, Chaz's former tag team partner, got a hold of a GTV showing Mariana putting makeup on, faking the bruises. And it appears as if Chaz's good name could finally be cleared thanks to his longtime friend and partner, Glenn Root. And look at this, Michael, we've seen this before. A little celebration time. Chaz and Glenn Ruth. Glenn Ruth coming to the aid of his friend. Speaking of the worst wow. things ever to hear on WWF programming. <laughs> wow. What a what a few days there. So we have uh, Incest. Yes. We have the, uh, the mud wrestling deal. We have Stephanie McMahon and the net brace after draws deal. And we got <laughs> this. Which Vince is sure is taking his issues out uh, this week. This is stuff that couldn't, I mean, I mean, we talk about stuff that could not air today. I mean, this is stuff that couldn't even get close to airing today. No, because I mean, literally it's the point of view of the show is bitches be crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and even though that you know stuff happens, yes, there there are the occasions where somebody is accusing somebody of domestic violence and they never did it, but still, 
that that totally undermines the legitimate claims especially when you're not doing any any angles about a legitimate claim yeah so i mean it's just oof. and what what's the end game of this i don't even remember what what what, what the ending of this was they wrote off, this is how they wrote off mariana Kamlos and the headrangers reunited so she's done completely after this i believe so yes what a way to send her packing huh <laughs> yeah and uh i just always get sad whenever i see her just because you know the, the whole story the thing with her getting breast cancer and dying so young but oh god i forgot about that well also do you remember who her uh, who her husband was uh uh-uh. paul lazenby oh wow wow mm. yeah, that sucks she does like i mean grant i'm sure she had been around wrestling some through paul but for someone who's otherwise new to wrestle like she actually does a good job with her performance in this angle you yeah. know but it's just just it's just terrible yeah well again what a week of what a mini week of television of course we're gonna have raw raw didn't take place during our week but wow yeah. All right, there's a trial day scheduled next month for Jim Helwig's case. Yeah, Jim, and now we got Jim Helwig. Jim Helwig's case against WF. Two of the four counts have been thrown out. The defamation court account against WF stemming from his 1996 departure when he was suspended after missing three house shows and never returned. And it's claimed that Titan Sports renamed on funding Project Warrior, his Warrior University training school based in the Phoenix area, that W promoted for a short period of time. If you recall, Helwig missed house shows in Indianapolis, Detroit, and Pittsburgh. Alleged that their phone argument with Vincent Mann regarding Helwig warning McMahon to purchase his comic books to distribute and being turned down. Helwig has denied that story and claimed he missed the shows because his father passed away. His father actually did pass away that weekend, but it was the day of the third show after missing the first two. And Titan noted that Helwig didn't attend his father's funeral, and family friends noted he had no relations in years with his father. In regards to Project Warrior, the count was thrown out because there was no contract between the two sides. The claims that remain are for his firings in 1992, which Titan claims is because he was involved in bringing HGH to the locker room for distribution to the wrestlers to beat the steroid test during a period where Titan was under great scrutiny on that charge, and the 1996 tenure, which ended when he missed the house shows. So this, so the 1993 lawsuit is still going on and has been absorbed into the 1996 lawsuit, if we're reading this right. And yeah, and this is happening in 1999, yes. And he ends up winning this one to some degree because he doesn't have to get rid of the trademarks or anything. No. Um, but, you know, they kind of had him, though, on the uh, oh, the, the father thing, though. Well, we've talked about this before. The issue is not that he had had no relationship with his father in decades because people grieve in, in funny ways. You know, that's on them, how they want to grieve. But... Real point in their favor is the licensing fair just, you know, blow up and that he had already been no-showing for days. Yeah. that That's the important part, you know? Yeah. Um, trying to see real quick. What, what, what do I, do I have anything from close to our week from this lawsuit? What are the latest depositions I have here? Or at least have a partial of, so... Yeah, I have an I have excerpts from Vince being deposed in February '99, and Warrior being deposed. Oh, no, excuse me, this was something else. Um, yeah, excerpts from Vince being. Oh yeah, okay. Now I see. I clicked the wrong thing. 
and more are being deposed. What is the date on this one? <laughs> well, just after our week, October 19th. <laughs> Is when Warriors deposed. Oh, excuse me. No, it's, it's his it's, fourth deposition. And that's not the day after our week. I didn't say week, day after. I said, short, I said shortly after. Oh, okay. I said day after. Okay. I'm sorry. But so, anyway. Dang. I'm trying to see. Is there anything of note here? Um, I'll just read this real, real quick. This is what he says about the dispute over always believe being used at the licensing fair. Um. So by July 8th of 96, none of the issues you had put on the table had been resolved, had they? They hadn't agreed to your $25,000 fine or whatever you want to call it for using Always Believe. That whatever you want to call it is probably your hint that this is Jerry McDevitt asking us. I hadn't had any communication with them. They, that means they didn't agree to that, right? Is that what that means? Did they agree to do that? I don't know if that's what that means. Well, did they ever say, Jim, we'll go along with that point one of your letter of July 1st, 1996, and I'll agree to pay you $25,000 for the use of always believe? Did they tell you they would? They didn't say they will, wouldn't. That's what it says. Uh, in the last conversation I had with them, I suspected we were going to we were going to negotiate back and forth for our positions, what we wanted, how we wanted to resolve it, and it just keeps going in circles for a few minutes from there. Um... Sounds exactly like what you would expect uh, Jerry McDevitt questioning Jim Helwig to sound like, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh my god, the page numbers on this. <laughs> the, the, just this excerpt ends on page 733 of the depositions. Oh god. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. No, no I'm just, I don't have any of that. I, I'm saying. I never got a mighty. It's a lot. I'm guessing that the four combined to form the hundreds and hundreds of pages but possible this is just one day i don't know it started at 8 45 a.m that day oh no excuse me it's volume four so yeah it's all, all for, it's the fourth volume in that day i guess so they got started yeah. early all right well let's continue you'll have more to talk about now a clarification on the case filed this past week against martha hart by wfp According to WFE attorney Jerry McDevitt, the justify bringing an action in federal court requiring the change of venue, which is what there seeks in this case. It requires a presentation of at least $75,000 of damages. WFE is looking to get the Hart lawsuit moved from Missouri to Connecticut. If it was moved to Connecticut, it would be litigated under Connecticut law, not Missouri law. And what was it? No punitive damages was the reason? Yeah. Something like that. Um, yes, as a reminder, everyone, they sued her. Yeah. I have a copy of that somewhere. I forget where I got it. I think it's maybe filed in the later lawsuit about the royalties and stuff, but I have it somewhere. And what was it? There was something it sort of contradicted that he was saying last year and after the Dark Side episode, but I don't remember what. But still, just what a what a scummy thing to do. You know? That's what they that's what they do. <laughs> It's their vindictive as shit. It's what they do. Yeah. Pretty much. For other shows this week, SmackDown at Nassau Coliseum drew 12,133, paying 338,652. The debut in the new arena in Trenton, New Jersey on October 6th, you'll sell at 8840, paying 271,608. And because they ran a rare Wednesday date, the wrestlers were given Saturday a day off. Um, they ran two shows in Florida on Sunday with the 18 drawing 95.58, paying 267613 in the Miami Arena. We're went over Triple H by DQ in the headliner. BT drew a sale of 7,052, 
paying uh, 16160 uh no city name where came big show is the headliner we don't complete merchandise number for the week based on what we do have it was going at four dollars 85 cents per head which would be the lowest week per cap since the boom period started but with three sellouts in Nitro drawing 33,375 fans, it's certainly premature to panic. Now, the Trenton results uh, Prince Albert over Chaz, Al Snow over Bob Holly, Dilo over 10 European title, beating Mark Henry. That's the day after the draws deal. Mankind over Val Venus, New Age Outlaws retain tag titles over Edge of Christian, three for the women's title, Ivory retained over Tori and Jacqueline. That's our women's title scene this time. Acolytes won a three-way over the Dudleys and Hardy Boys. Jarrett retained the IC title over X-Pop by DQ and Kane over Big Boss Man. Oh, so that's their women's champion who they put in the mud match. Well, yes. Of course. Naturally. $4.85 a head. Not too bad. Yeah, but lower than what we've talked about, you know, yes. stuff like this. In this era, yes. Usually the, the numbers that are really impressive are usually like in the $6 to $8 range. Yeah. WF is pulling pretty much pulling all most, if not all, of his third party bookings, allowing his talent to be used on independent shows, which explains a lot of recent advertised no shows on some indie shows, which in this case weren't the fault of the promoter. WF be setting devoted talent to Music City Wrestling in Nashville, along with Jim Cornette's Ohio Valley and Randy Hales' Power Pro groups. Well, two of those. <laughs> yes. So this is the end of that era, the WF guys working indie shows. Yep. Which went on for quite a while. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's I go mean, to... Headliners, you know, someone yeah. was talking about. They worked a lot in new shows in this era while under contract. Yeah. All right. Let's go to The Torch. Vince Rosso was not an advocate of hiring Randy Savage. Now that he's gone, McMahon may be more apt to pursue Savage, especially with Jericho being disappointed thus far. McMahon may do whatever it takes to give the WF a shot in the arm to prove he can thrive without Russo and Ferrara. Again, as a reminder, whatever the hell it is that McMahon ended up taking issue with with Savage, it wasn't something that came up until later. Yeah. Whether it's something that happened before that he was told about or not, it's not like... It, whatever happened, it was not a catalyst for Savage leaving in the first place or anything. So... That's part of why it's such a mystery that Vince changed his mind so long after Savage left. Yeah, because, I mean, there were talks for a while there that Savage might be coming in. It would have been interesting. In 99, yeah. in like 2002. Yeah. But yeah, let me see, see Savage make a day of return, but it never happened. Staying with the torch, Shawn Michaels remains in the day of Doghouse and has appeared on TV since turning heel on the first SmackDown show in UPN. Besides his comments regarding Austin, which upset Austin greatly, McMahon may have been on the edge with Michaels anyway because uh, Michaels having to brag to others about boldly telling McMahon, call me when you get your company back during discussion regarding Austin's influence over booking plans in late August. <laughs> okay. Sean got a little heat there with, with Austin, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sean could have came back for a long time before he actually did. People think that it, that his back was holding him up for all those years. No, well, because he had he surgery could've... in '98, right? Yeah, he could. Yeah, he could have wrestled three years for three years, but didn't. Well, he did do the match with Paul Diamond in, in his promotion. Well, well, I'm talking about the 
All right, staying with the tourists. The Rock told UK's megastar that he's on pace to earn somewhere between three and five million this year from WF. He will also play a Vulcan on an episode of UPN's Voyager this year. I have no memory of that. The Rock on Star Trek Voyager? Yes, zero. I'm looking right now. On YouTube, at least. Uh, yep. First hit is a, uh, some kind of fight scene with him in Seven of Nine. There it is, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can see Jer- the gif because I still have the screen share on. Yeah, Jerry Ryan. Yeah, so he fought Jerry Ryan. How about that? All right, at one point, there was a plan for Rock to beat Triple H for the title on September 27th for Raw in Greensboro. Triple H complained loudly enough about the idea that it was next. <laughs> Triple H knows what's... Triple H, this is the time where he knows what's coming. You know, he the, Stephanie, the whole Stephanie thing and everything, he knows that he's uh, he's about to be a made man. Hey, Vince, with Russo and Ferrara gone, I have this great idea for the wedding angle. Yeah, well, that's exactly. Russo, Russo leaving changes a lot. Because we don't know if what Russo's, Russo's angle was, but we know it wasn't what happened. Exactly, yes. Yeah, Vince Russo doesn't leave WF. Triple H and Stephanie may never get together, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. And the wrestling business is completely changed. Vince has been traveling around the country and even Europe of late going to IPO meetings. Again, like I said, when when they went public, they were no longer a wrestling company. And also, that was the end. it does give more credence to Russo saying that he and Ferrara had more autonomy. Again, I don't think it's that they were fully in control, like he's claimed, but I think between all the IPO stuff Vince is doing and the fact that the product looks so much different, I think it's clear that they had more autonomy, even if it wasn't full control. Yeah. Yokozuna's been telling people he starts at the WrestleMania if he was Steve Austin. But the situation with him is no different now than before. He's banned in all states where commissions regulate wrestling, which is somewhere between 19 and 24 states, including New York, due to his license being revoked in New York for failure to physical, due to his heart irregularities and obesity, unless he gets his weight under control, WF has their hands tied. About a huge weight loss, that isn't happening. Yeah, we know what happens here, sadly. So Yeah. I suspect WF will start airing Taz vignettes in November to build up for his January arrival. His biggest support in the company was Vince Russo. As there were those who thought in the WF his height would be an issue, especially as he doesn't sell well and his gimmick is being an almost bully tough guy. And speaking of Taz, the charges against Taz for exposing himself to a female minor in a Pittsburgh tanning salon were dropped. You know, I saw that come up recently, and someone because people had shared like the the newspaper article, and no one was really sure what happened, and because there was no other newspaper stuff, and I guess this is the extent of it. Yeah, it's dropped. I don't really have any details. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this that's something to think about, too. Vince Russo with Taz. How different, you know, Taz's run would have been. ECW's Miss Congeniality should be starting about a month. She was trained by the Hardy Boys and said to be a good bump taker. Boy, is she. And, of course, that's Lita. Yes, it is. The woman doing the EMT gimmick is named Kathy Dingman. She's an indie wrestler out of Florida recommended by Terry Taylor. The name Russo come up with for her, which may or may not be used, is indicated they more likely not to be used now, was Connie Lingus. 
Oh, Vince Russo. You know how I know that story is not true? How do you know? Do you really think that Vince Russo has a favorable opinion of Cunnilingus? <laughs> so you're saying that Vince Russo has never gone down on a woman in his life? Bro, bro, it's like Uncle Junior says. If if they think if you suck pussy, you can suck anything. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine Russo watching the Boca episode of Sopranos? <laughs> yeah, yeah, hit her with a pie, Junior. <laughs> oh, man. Among the wrestlers having either been signed to or being strongly negotiated with for developmental deals are Steve Sharp. A 6'3", 280-pounder of Missouri who is now wrestling in Memphis as Ali. Dave described him as Ahmed Johnson look-alike. He's huge and thick, but almost as a flat bear for body. As a worker, well, he's one of those really huge green guys. Next to Sharp, um, next to Sharp, Ahmed Johnson is one of the great technical wrestlers of our time. Also on the list are Joe Hilchin, a Toronto native who was wrestling in that area and Europe as Joe E. Legend, and Tom Carter, reckless youth. And all three end up getting signed. Yep. What a what a difference of three guys. <laughs> yeah. So. And you know, reckless at least least get some great learning experiences out of this, but is also clearly soured on the wrestling business. Yes. And to close out, Bix's favorite Terry Taylor recommended that Christina Lau come on ECW. But there was trepidation about signing her based on not favorable recommendations by many within the industry, including Paul Heyman. And at this point, it looks more likely than not it'll happen. What are we even supposed to say? <laughs> I guess it was up at WCW not too long after this. Terry Taylor, and he's quickly followed by Christina Loam. <laughs> what a coincidence. Is there anything that's written as cryptic without actually being written as cryptic as this stuff? <laughs> I just, I love, I, anytime that comes up, I love seeing it. It's funny. It sends a message, doesn't it? Mm hmm. What do you think Paul Heyman's Paul uh, fa not favorable recommendations were? <laughs> she didn't go completely nude on top of the ECW arena. She wasn't committed to her, to her gimmick. No, not on top of a top, the ECW arena. Yes. Also, remember, he promised her that the video would never be used. Of course he did. I do solemnly swear. <laughs> all right, let's go international now and land at a rising sun, and we'll begin with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Your tour opened up on October 9th at Cork and Hall for the usual sell of 2,100 fans. What a main event. Where Takawa Mori and Shiro Takayama teamed up with Masafuchi to beat Kendakabashi, Kataro Shiga, and Junakayama in 25 23 when Takayama pinned Shiga after a leg drop. The first match of the All Asian Tag Team Tournament saw Masao Inoue and Timon Honda go to a 30 minute draw with Monakea Mossman and Johnny Smith. The rest of the results of this show, the first of a doubleheader, Korkin, was Yoshinobu Kanamaru over Masamichi Marafuji. Yes. Masamichi, his real name, not Naomichi. Uh, Masuda Kagihara over Takeshi Morishima. Satoru Saka, Mitsuomoto, and Rushkamura over Makoto Hashi. Shiyoshi Kikuchi and Haruka Egan. Asai Inoue, Timon Honda over Monokei Mossman and Johnny Smith. That's what it says over, but it's a draw. It says D. I'm sorry. 
and see B, but D. Jin uh, Sessionaki Yoshinari Gama. Yeah, that's Harmon correct Sawa. then, because for the other ones it has B instead of D. Yeah, I know, I know. I saw it. Uh, going over Kamala 2, Mike Barton and Johnny Ace. Uh, of course, Mike Barton being Bart Gun. Stan Hansen, Gary Albright over Juno Zamina and Kiritawe, and Ifuchi and No Fear over Kabashi, Akiyama, and Shiga. Now, the next the next day, 2100 again. We have Asako over Kanamaru, Kikihara over Hashi, Izumina and Egan and Fuchi over Morishima, Russia, and Mitsuwa Woda, Shizaki and Shiga over Masamu and Timon Honda, Gary Albright over Monokia Mossman, No Fear over Hansen and Kamala 2, uh, Masawa and Ogawa over Kikuchi and Tawe, and then Smith Barton and Ace over Daisuke Akeda, Junakayama, and Kenakabashi in your main event. That's an interesting uh, team there. Akeda. With Akiyama and Kabashi. Was he in Burning? No. But he's a freelancer. So, I, right. you know. I think he, he was no... aligned with them, though. Yeah, he was Any aligned with them. He wasn't, he wasn't a contracted guy. No. And Smith is part of the movement with Barton and Ace, right? Yes. The new Gaijin movement. Feel the power. <laughs> yes, indeed. So there's all Japan. You know, pretty week. mundane, I guess. Yeah. This kind of thing. Goes. Yeah. Yeah. New Japan book Corken Hall on October 10th as well for a very short show for the official contract signing of Shion Shimoto and Naoya Ogawa in the Tokyo Dome. And they beat three new wrestlers. They actually worked in July in, in a battle royal, but this will be their first singles matches. Those three wrestlers, you say? What's our in a way? Kessior Shibata, whose father was a longtime referee for the company, retired earlier this year, and Hiroshi Tanahashi. This show drew 1263. Shinya Makabe beat Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Watara Inoue beat Kessior Shibata in your two matches on this show. And the rest, as we say, is history. Yep. So we're com- we're 22, the 22nd anniversary of uh, these guys making their debut. And Tanahashi's doing clean jobs in the middle of the ring to chase Owens now. Well, so Tanahashi's the only one of the three still wrestling, too. Yeah. Shibata but. is, you know, he had the career-ending brain injury, but seems to be doing relatively okay as the best trainer in the wrestling business. He's doing very fine in that position, yes. But, yeah, Watara in a way, that's the guy who re- had to retire way too early because of his injuries. Yeah, yeah. in a way it was fantastic. Oh yeah, he might from all day guys, one. All he was pro- they all were, but I think he was the one who had the most from day one, as far as in ring. At, at, at the beginning, yes, Tanahashi surpassed yeah. him. Yes, no, I agree. Quick, with yeah. Well, that's why Tanahashi got the bigger push, too. But yeah, so there you go. All right, Battle Arts. They ran October the eighth for the Soccer Professional Gym Number Two. In front of 736 fans. That's a big building for them. Yeah. We have Ryuji Jakata over Mak Junji in your opener. In a pro wrestling rules match. It's regular pro wrestling, not Ballard's rules. Masaki Machizuki and Minoru Tanaka over Naoki Sano and Hikoto Adaka in 1801. That's a hell of a fucking match, too. Uh, Daisuke Kane over Takeshi Ono. And then we have another pro wrestling rules match. Masaru Orihara and Mr. Danger. Mr. Matsunaga. Beat Yuki Shikawa and Katsumi Yasuda. And our main event was Alexander Otsuka over Mohamed Yone. Oh, that sounds like a good card, I think. Uh, uh yes. 
Yes, 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 yes. I yes. kind of get the feeling, I don't remember if I ever saw this card, but I kind of get the feeling that Akeda and Ono did terrible things to each other. <laughs> well, I know I saw, I mean, I said the Tanaka match was on the uh, Minoru Tanaka Scott Mailman comp. Mm-hmm. And it was a hell of a fucking match, so yeah. The other matches I don't remember too well, but I do remember the Tanaka match being awesome, so there you go. Battle Arch was, was a promotion in this era. We talk about that many times when we do this era, so don't want to belabor that point. All right, FMW, Shawn Michaels, The Funks, former karate legend Wee Williams and several wrestlers from ECW will headline FMW's 10th anniversary show called Entertainment Wrestling Special Live on November 23rd at 17,000 seat Yokohama Arena. The show build is having seven main events. It's headlined by a loosely FMW death match for the World Entertainment Wrestling Championship with champ Koto Fuyuki defending against Masato Tanaka. Michaels refereed the first singles match between H, Ijiazaki, the original, and now unmasked Hayabusa, versus fake Hayabusa, Mr. Ganesuke. There will also be a pair of WEW title matches with tag champions Tetsuya Kuroda and Hitsukatsu Oya with female manager Tanimoto defending against Raven and Tommy Dreamer, managed by Francine. The other title match they debut a WEW hardcore title with champion Kitaro Kanemura defending against Boss Mahoney. The next two matches on the show involve Japanese legends from another era returning. That's Dorian Terry Funk, who haven't teamed together in Japan since 1987. The original form Bay Face Tag Team in Japan faced FMW prelim wrestlers Nihuko Yamazaki and Yoshinari Suzaki in a surprise. Because those guys are mid-card, basically. Young mid-card guys. Willie Williams, a former American karate star of the 70s, who made his second career as a gimmick karate fighter and pro wrestling stemming from a famous February 27, 1980 match with Antonio Noki, which led to being a headliner years later at Riggs, Dave's guessing he's now in his early 50s, will face Bad Boy Hito. The remainder of the show has Kori Nakayama and Imi Murakawa in a women's tag match and an opener with Koji Nakagawa and team with Gato and Jado, taking on Riki Fuji, Flying Kid Chihara, and Chukabal Mukai, with female managers in their corners. As an attempt to spur ticket sales, there's a story being flown to me that this show doesn't draw, and FMW will be forced to close because they've already spent $475,000 on this show. If this story is true, a lot of people think it's going to be tough because while WF has become popular in Japan because of TV of late, it's 1999 WF, which is over, not 1987 WF, and Shawn Michaels doesn't figure to sell many tickets as a referee, even though he probably came with a high price tag. The Funks, who also no doubt didn't come cheap, are legends to the older fans. But they are wrestling no-name prelim wrestlers, so whatever value they have to a show is strictly as a nostalgia act. But it's a big deal, seeing Shawn Michaels here and all this stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, this, this show was something else, to say the least. What are your memories of, of this? I don't know if I ever saw the whole show. Um, it is surreal, though. And also, the gimmick of the ticket sales is interesting, given everything that happens after. Yeah, and it's also interesting to be talking about this uh, coming out the the uh, dark side of the ring, which I haven't watched it yet. But uh, I think you'll quite like this one. Yeah, you know, I mean, I saw people talking about the, how the ratings were down and all that stuff. I was like, thinking about myself, what do you expect? I mean, this is kind of a niche episode right here. Also, th- people need to remember with Dark Side of the Ring, like their value to Vice is a lot more than just the live showing and the live number. I think people have become way obsessed with ratings lately, and that's what the deal is. More than anything else, it's, it's gotten out of hand. Hmm. But I think it, it, it's, it's the obsession of ratings. You mean ratings? Yes, ratings. 
But the reason why Sean is the referee is because Dr. Death was supposed to be the referee. You remember that story? Mm-mm. Yeah, Dr. Death was supposed to go over here as the referee. Sent by WWF. He told them he wasn't going to do it because he was loyal to Giant Baba. So they fired him. And put Michaels in his place. Okay. Yeah. That's the reason why. Also, no one gave him the memo that Baba was on good terms with FMW when he died. <laughs> I know. Maybe Dot was trying to get fired. Maybe that was what the deal was. I don't know. All right. So, uh, yeah, they drew 11,000 fans. Well, announced 11,000. So there you go. All right. Now let's go to NOW, Bix. Network of Wrestling. Yes. Network of Wrestling. Yes. JWP's Tsubasa Kurakagi suffered a broken shoulder on the October 8th Now show. That show supposedly drew 3,050 fans. Yeah, right, Dave said. For the Tokyo Komazawa Olympic Park gym, to the return of Kazuo Sakurada, Kenzo Nagasaki's office. It was, all, all, it was an all-woman undercard with a men's main event headlined by Nagasaki. Here are results. Carlos Amano and Keiko Hariyama went over Kaurito and Miki Fuji. Kisno Sakai's Miho Wakazawa and Nani Takahashi over Kana Masaki and Tsubasa Kurakagi. Command Bolshoi and Dove Masami over Kaio Nomi and Yumiko Hota. Kumiko Maikawa, Manami Toyota, and Momo Nakanishi went to a time limit draw of 30 minutes, Bix, with Azumi Yuga, Dynamite Kansai, and Ran Yu Yu in a handicap match. Kendo Nagasaki and Kishikawa defeated Arashi, Hiroshi Azumi, and Asamu Tachikari. Oh, so that's where all the war guys went. 3,050 fans. Sure. No fucking way. Even if you count each finger as a person... (laughs) Well, you get the idea. Um, Also, I love that he's not even really trying to build a roster or an undercard. He just goes to All Japan Women and JWP and just asks them for matches. Yeah. Can you please send talent? What is this? Eh, <laughs> yeah, it is it indeed. Osaka Pro Wrestling. They ran Mitsuaki Amu Hall in Osaka on October 9th for 280 fans. We have Oriental over Yoshiko Shugamoto. Chicago Shiratori over Lady Apache. Kaiju Bella. No, not uh, the Japanese cousin of Bree and Nikki. And Kishiba Kamen over Ebison and Super Demican. Nero Chicago, Super Dolphin, and Subasa over Black Buffalo, Dick Togo, and Policeman, Violence Party. And Dio Qual over Masato Yakusuji in your main event. I really want I really want to see Kaiju Bella. <laughs> yes, wouldn't that be something? It, it's it's someone in a like female monster outfit wearing a baseball cap. <laughs> Coming out to a weird knockoff of Fuck the Pain Away. <laughs> then we have the SPWF Bix. The Social Progress ran, Wrestling Federation. They ran Corkin Hall on October 10th. So we had three wrestling promotions running on October 10th at Corkham. They drew 1,263 fans for Nihau over Viking Tanaguchi. Little Frankie over Tomezo Sunakaki, the uh, Ultraman uh, minis. Kukitahara and Osama Tachikari over Keizo Matsuda and Masamitsu Takatobo. And a barbed wire nailboard landmine explosion death match. Arashi and Yokiyatsu 
If you'd enter Yaguchi and Tarzan go to. Sure. <laughs> How about uh, so we got Yatsu doing death matches. And Darashi. Yeah. It's come to that. What did they just decide? Oh, it looks like Benke's having fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh Torimon. They ran uh October Tempic. Chicken George in Kobe, Kobe Chicken George, which was uh, one of my favorite venues because it, it like it's in a sardine can. 400 fans. They were packed in there, too. As Shima beat Daiju Kawaguchi. Taru over Subo Genjin. Mana Tokyo and Susumu Mochizuki over Sumo Dandy Fuji and, and Makoto. In our main event for the NWA Welterweight titles, Sua beat all caps Saito. Well, at this point, he's still Yoshiyuki Saito. Or at least Dave yeah. is. He's still Yoshiki. Yeah, well, that's what I said. Dave is still using, because I took Dave's results, Dave is still using all the old names. <laughs> As Dave would. So what are the current names at this point? Well, the, all the, I mean, they're all the names. Makoto Caps, Saito Caps, oh, okay. you know, Suma Dani Fuji. I mean, yeah, but Taru, he's using his real first name. Still Shima is. Nobunaga. Well, you know, Shima, Ju- it's, and at this point, Shima is H-I-I. Or SH, was it IIMA or IIMA? IIMA. Right. He's all caps Shima spelled that way. He's still a few months away from being all caps CIMA pronounced the same way. Yeah. Which, did you do that until later years? I used to, I, back in the day, if I said it out loud, I pronounced the, you know, long lasting version as Sima, not Shima. No, 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 no. No, no. So, okay, you knew it was Shima. Oh, well, I always knew it was Shima. I mean, that's okay. what he was, Shima. That's his name. <laughs> he was Shima in WCW. I know, but Shima they changed Thor- the spelling. It doesn't matter. Okay. All right, rings. Brad Kohler and Jeremy Horn both have confirmed being part of the rings tournament appearing on uh, October 28th. And some of a huge surprise, Hoist Gracie was the guest on October 8th on the Queen Latifah talk show. That's a that's a guest. And man. And said he would be involved in that tournament too. I'm gonna guess that Hoist Gracie did not talk about rings on Queen Latifah's talk show. That's what Dave said. Uh it would not be in the Gracie's best interest to be involved in this because of short time limits and because they're in their weight classes, although the lack of close fist striking to the face is to its advantage. None of this has been announced in Japan, where Gracie has gained a lot of fame years ago for his initial UFC success and where he's yet to fight in. The tournament consists of a first, second round, and one bracket on October 28th in Tokyo, a silver tournament on, t- on December 22nd in Osaka, and the final eight in the tournament, similar to the K1 Grand Prix finals on February 25th. This is King of Kings, Dave. First about. annual King of Kings, I believe. Yeah, at Budokan Hall or Yokama Arena. Matches are all two five-minute rounds with judges determine who advances in the case. There's no finish or no points. Scored by knockdowns and rope breaks on submission. A score, and the big money goes to the, only to the tournament winner. So two hundred twenty-three thousand dollars. Hoist Gracie on Queen Latifah. I'm just imagining that interview. How that was. Lord have mercy. Yep. Let's go to Joshi. This is the King of Kings. That's won by Dan Henderson. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Joshi now. Not a whole lot of Joshi, big sadly to say, but we got some. RCN, they ran somewhere in Tokyo. No menu listed October 10th from 400 fans. Rie Tamata over Princess Shugi. Linda Starr over Yumi Fukawa. Akiko Futagami over Mario Pachi. And Asha Kong and Ayoko Amada over Mariko Yoshida and Rie Tamata. You have Gaia 
Shigusa Nagaya beat Akira Hokkaido in the battle of the biggest women's star of the 80s against arguably the biggest star of the 90s at 326 with an arm bar on the October tip showing in Osaka. Well, we got this show first. Sambo Hall and Kobe on October the 8th, 9th for 800 fans. We have Sonoko Kato of Sakura Rota. Then we have round one of the High Spurt 600 tournament. Uh-huh. Make a... Make a... <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Meko Sadamura over Kara Nakayama. Toshio Yamada over Sugar Sato. Karu over Shikai Nagashima. Then a non turn match, Akira Hokuto and Mayomi Ozaki over Shigusa Nagai on Toshi Yamatsu. Then a quarterfinal match, Meko Sadamura over Toshio Yamada. You think that um, the uh, Gaia version of Bill Watts. Did the whole let's hook it up promo for do the Sadamura Yamada match on this show? <laughs> We're gonna do it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Since they're doing a quarter, one quarterfinal match on the same show as all the round one matches, <laughs> let's hook them up. Osaka IMP Hall the next day on October 10th. And for the 800 fans, we have more round one matches and quarterfinals. Miyamiyazaki Miyazaki over Toshiyamatsu, Snuggle Kata over Rie. Akira Hokuto over Sakura Rota. Nesuroko Kado, Meomiyazaki in the quarterfinals. Ichikusa Nagaya over Akira Hokuto in the quarterfinals. And in our main event, Karu, Toshio Yamada, Miko Sanomura over Sugar Sato, Shikai Nagashima, and Kori Nakayama. And then JD. Oh, we're not going to talk more about the high spurt? Well, I'm going to do all one big encompassing thing. Okay. Uh, JD, Club Sita, October 6th in Kawasaki in front of 610. We have Sumi Sakai over Unnamed Opponent. Kuga, an unnamed partner, over Sayendo and Fang Suzuki. Sumi Sakai and Hiroyo Muto over Yuko Kasugi and Sachiabe. Dynamite Kansai and Kyoko Riyama over Yuki Muramasu and Kazuki. And then an AWF women's title match, The Bloody, won the title for Megumi Yabashida in 1356. Hmm. All right, Bix, what are your thoughts on the all-encompassing Joshi section? That I really hope that Chikusa and not some dude who was working in the office named the High Spurt Tournament. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't the High Spunk Tournament. What? Why? Why are you naming it that? <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest though; it would be worse if it was RC that had a tournament named that, <laughs> or uh, uh, any tournament involving Momo Nakanishi. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Didn't someone write an essay about how much they love Momonoke Nakanishi that included the word spurting way too much, too? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, those were, that, those yeah. were days. Yeah, things were different back then. Um, in a number of women's You think women wrestling fans are creepy now? Oof. It was way creepier back then. It, it, the... The people you came across were more likely to be immediately creepy. I think the landscape is just different because they have so much ability to be directly creepy now. I don't think I would have used the words came across in that sentence, but that's just me. Well, All we right. are talking about the highest part 600 tournament. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's close up Europe here. Eurasia. VDB Top Catch and... Sh- in Hanover, that shoots at Blotz on October 7th. We have Robbie Brookside over Danny Royal. Drew McDonald, Ben Doom McDonald, going to a draw with Johnny South. Victor Kruger over Chi Chi Cruz. 
has to be the Canadian one. I of course it is. I'm looking at the next match. Big Tiger Steel over James Mason. And then Karsten Kreshmer and Rambo, Luke Poirier, over the Black Navy Seal, Leroy Howard, and Yutaka Yoshie. <laughs> I take it that Otto has stopped running, and that's why we have a New Japan uh, excursion guy in VDB. Yes. Wow. Leroy Howard as Black Navy Seal, Bix. Great. And then let's go to Britain, the British Wrestling Federation. They'll be putting on their second tour starting October 6th through mid-November with John Tenta as the headliner, along with younger American wrestlers Joe Denson, Jason Daniels, and Wildfire Shane Banks. The tour will also include UK wrestlers Dan Collins, Skull Murphy, James Mason, Drew McDonald, Tarzan Boy Darren, and Blondie Barrett, with half the show taking place in Scotland and the other half in England. Ah, yes, Dan Collins, that name that everyone referred to him by. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's not, like he has, it's not like he's been named Danny in literally every single promotion he's ever worked for. Oh, yes, the British wrestling of the late 90s, early 2000s with their John Tenta headliners. How is there no one named Paul on this show? <laughs> no, there, Paul maybe Paul, there is. No, Paul Travell. No, uh, who, who, are the, who are the other ones? Uh, Paul Birchall. Thank you. So, yeah, who knows? How is there right. one here named Paul? <laughs> Don't know. All right, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So there's some great 1999 commercials. We'll come back. We'll have halftime. We're, we'll talk about the Patreon show. We'll you know, hit the plugs. Talk about IWTV, all that jazz. And then come back and we'll go to other North America where we'll talk about the revival of Stampede Wrestling, which is struggling. We got uh, uh, news uh, in, in Mexico involving uh, the commissions, a commission member getting a little too, uh, a little too upset, at some involvement his son, and just how Mr. Ratings came to being in Puerto Rico. All that and more after the break. Year 2000 Corolla. Millennium proof dependability. For the first time in history, a personal computer has been classified as a weapon by the U.S. government. With the power to perform over one billion calculations per second, the Pentagon wants to ensure that the new Power Macintosh G4 does not fall into the wrong hands. As for Pentium PCs, well, they're harmless. At Burger King, we're always trying to make habit your way better. Like this idea for a win-your-way college football game. Let's Run back a kickoff and win great prizes. Scratch and win. This week, Colorado and Washington face off, and you could win a million bucks, a Toyota RAV4, or the best tasting prize of all, a delicious Whopper. Burger King. When you have it your way, it just tastes better. I would love to have um, dinner. 
Are you gonna go out with Grace's mom? Please don't have sex with them tonight, okay? They just asked me if you were older than 25 or not. ABC's Once and Again, premiering tonight, 10, 9 central. So is that how old most of your dates are? On Two Guys and a Girl, you'll finally get the answer to the big question. Will you marry me? Yes. In theory! The season premiere, followed by Norm and get a load of Mimi. And Mini Mimi. There goes the theory that you were cute when you were small. The season premiere of Drew. Then it's the new comedy TV guide calls Genuinely Funny. The series premiere of Oh, Grow Up. See you Wednesday on ABC. When there's a good bargain, a woman is always ready to tell another woman. You know, that's one of the reasons I go to iVillage.com. They have such a large shopping section. You can get anything. Clothing, beauty supplies, uh, presents for my friend's baby showers that were coming up. They have personal shoppers. You just tell them what you're looking for, and they'll help you find it. It saves me so much time. I even use their gift reminder service, so now, if I forget a birthday, iVillage reminds me. I'm definitely going to do my holiday shopping there. iVillage.com. Solutions for your life. Ford Focus is a party waiting to happen. Imagine a day outdoors without the runny nose. Imagine a day indoors without the itchy eyes. Make it happen with Benadryl, the histamine blocker that blocks histamines indoors and out. Get outdoor allergy relief and indoor allergy relief with Benadryl. And for allergies with sinus pain and pressure, there's Benadryl Allergy Sinus Headache. Benadryl's Allergy Relief plus Maximum Strength Sinus Medicine. Imagine life without allergies and sinus pain. Benadryl. Processor. Let's just get onto the internet, get into it at intel.com. ABC Premier Tuesday continues. Finally. With it's like, you know, last year's midseason smash. You are going out with someone who is attached to someone else. Everybody in LA does that. The season premiere of It's Like, you know, and of the shocking season premiere of Dharma and Greg. The old Greg is gone. Stand by, fellas. We've hit a snag. And if that's not enough, check out how it all began. Dig it. Their very first episode. Then it's the series TV Guide Calls Best New Show. The premiere of Once and Again. Stick around as the night of premieres continues on ABC. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 1999 commercials. As we pivot to the halftime seven of the show, we'll begin talking about Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. And, of course, we have a, a latest Patreon show that went up uh, a little over a week ago, a week and a half ago now. Uh... The 25th anniversary of the NWO, part one, as we discuss the uh, birth of the NWO, the New World Order of Wrestling, or it's called, called it New World Organization of Wrestling. And uh, we go in depth on everything that happened from the beginning, from when Scott Hall debuted on Nitro Memorial Day 96 to uh, Vincent Mann announcing Razor and Diesel no longer for WF on Raw during the main event. 
to Kevin Nash showing up to all that stuff going on, the recruitment of Hulk Hogan, who who was going to be the third man, all the names, how close was Lex Luger going to be the third man. Then we go through all these alternate universes on who should have been the third man, who could have been the third man, how it would affect the business. And then we'll go to uh, the first month, well, the rest of the month of July and all the appearances on Nitro and Disney. And that's where we ended at the end of July. So we go through uh, two months, two full months of that. And yeah, it's quite the interesting show. Lots of uh, good discussion on there. And you get the you get the, the thought process of Vince McMahon and his feud with WCW and why the WWF WWE has not, not been the same since WCW died. So the reasons why he was so motivated, so to speak, and, and especially in this era. So lots of things going on in the show. So definitely check it out. Part one or two, we'll have part two next month. So five dollars a month gets you access to listen to that and all the other shows we've done in our now five full years of our Patreon show. 60 episodes. So lots of audio content for that five dollars a month. So a dollar a month gets you access to the uh, Discord and thanks to this segment, which we'll do in just a minute. Twenty-five dollars allows you to pick a show for the week, which we have this week. And, uh, you know, I forgot to, at the beginning of the show when we did the intro to announce our patron who requested a show. So who was it I requested a show again, Bex? Kyle Rieger. Yes, we did. Kyle Rieger. We were too That's enthused right. uh, by Praise X presence. Yes. It's, it's been way too long. But, yeah, so uh, we'd like to thank Kyle Rieger uh, for requesting this show and putting down $25. And we thank all you patrons that have done the $25 and the ones that have future shows lined up. So if you want to do that, patreon.com slash 20 sheets, you put the money in, then you pick a show for the week. Then make sure you have a backup show handy just in case a show that we've done already or showed us on the calendar for for the upcoming year. Uh, follow the 30-day rule as far as uh, timeline to get that information to us. And that information is on patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Uh, 10-year rules in effect. Wednesday to Tuesday, all that stuff. So you do that, and we should be able to do your show. $50 a month, let's just first segment of that show, and $100 for the whole show. That's if you so choose. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, who do I think this week is our new and or returning patrons? All right, let's see. We would like to thank Jim Murtha. Was that Jim? Yes. Thanks, Jim. Nathan Ridgeway. Thanks, Nathan. Ryan S. Thanks, Ryan. Dwayne Jones. Thanks, Dwayne. J.D. Bruce. Thanks, J.D. Lance Garrison. Thanks, Lance, who's been on this before, but thanks, Lance. Stephen Hinkle. Thanks, Stephen. Ryan, I think it's uh, Deegan or Dagan. Thanks, Ryan. Pete Brocklehurst. Thanks, Pete. And David Davis went up to $100. I think I might have an email from him, actually, I need to look at. But thank you. All right. Well, thanks, David Davis, for that. And uh, Bixler will tell me more about that when he finds out. So, all right. Thank all you new patrons, returning patrons, patrons that have upgraded, all of you guys, once from, from the beginning, along the way. Here, there, and everywhere. We thank all of you for supporting us on patreon.com slash between the sheets. 
All right, IWTV Bix, what's the uh, latest and greatest on there? Well, they had a big weekend uh, going into when this show comes out, uh, looking at the live schedule of stuff that would have happened over the weekend. The big things are probably, well, weekend plus. The return of Beyond Wrestling Uncharted Territory happened on Thursday, so that's not, now that's going to be going for however many weeks. IWTV Untitled, the latest IWTV kind of showcase show on Friday featuring, uh, I believe it's Wheeler Yuta defending the title against Alex Shelley, plus representation from all sorts of IWTV promotions. There was that, uh, an Empire State Wrestling show, but also probably the main event, so to speak, of the weekend is the one that happened on Friday night, which, you know, as of this recording, based on the way we're we rescheduled things for football season. Uh, have not seen yet, obviously, because it's not happened yet. West Coast Pro Wrestling Show main evented by Daniel Garcia versus Minoru Suzuki with a co-headliner of, for the WCPW title, AJ Gray defending against Davey Richards. Wow, how about that? Yeah, so that's Davey, probably the big show of the weekend. Davey Richards, who is Davey Richards, through and through. Yes, I haven't seen any of the comeback stuff yet. But it does seem like he's greatly chilled out as a person. Well, that's good for him. He needed to. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, taking pictures with Dan Housen and all sorts of things. So that's good. Yeah. Oh, and Alex yeah. Zane is also facing a mystery opponent on that show. So that's that's potentially interesting. Plus, other friends of the show on that show, like Vinny Massaro as well. Yes. So Alex Zane versus Ari Sterling would be a good match. <laughs> I don't know how good it would be as Alex has tweeted Alex Zane is much better than Ari Star. <laughs> that's the way to find out the, the thing that really kind of blew my mind especially because I hadn't been paying attention to 205 Live I didn't realize until he tweeted it when he was like I've been back on the indies for three weekends and I've already had more matches than I had in my six or whatever months in WWE yeah well, don't surprise me yeah so Good to see him doing his thing and just it's, it is weird though that it's like with him it's like he never left pretty much yeah which is strange Anthony Henry however seems to be uh, you know I mean he seems to be benefiting if anything from his release well quite a few or more <laughs> and, good, and good for them yep so all right that's it as far as I the lot yes the live schedule and all that but I did want to also just go over real quick a few of the things that went up on on demand there was of course the aiw show last week in akron where uh matt cardona won both the absolute and the intense titles from josh bishop which wow. i haven't checked out yet but uh that dirty rotten matt cardona ruining everything yeah how dare he but uh among other things that are up there's a new uh episode of new south action clash that has a Colby Perino Adam Priest match, which sounds quite good on paper. What else do we have here? Uh, I may have gone too far down the list because we didn't do anything last week. But uh, the AIW thing is probably one of the bigger things that uh, kind of pops out this week. Oh, and speaking of Colby, there was also a new PWF show, which I have not checked out yet, but features Colby defending his uh, PWF championship against Bojack. And the name of the show is There Is No Budget for Ice Cream Bars. Which I get, being that, what was it that it turned out that Punk paid? Like 80 grand? Granted, that's for the United Center, not the PWF building. But 
those seem like the main big things that have gone up. Like, there was also some archival from, oh, who was it? Because there hasn't been any new wilds that gone, that's gone up in several weeks, right? No, more longer than that. <laughs> um, it's been like months now. So, yeah, we'll, by the time we do the next Exile show, it should be pretty much almost caught, caught up completely to what's on there. Mm. So. Get to step in, bleh, get to step in Ninja Bill. Come on. <laughs> well, he's uploading a lot of other stuff. He He's constantly uploading stuff. On his YouTube, Barons, yes. On his YouTube. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, and there's a new action show up as well from September That's 24th. That's right. From when? I said September 24th. Did I say November? I said December 24th. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And um, they had the outdoor show. I don't know. If, I guess that was taped. I don't know. I haven't seen anybody talk about that being on there. Maybe not. I knew they had the one coming up in the building in the action arena coming up uh, soon. So that should be going up. So, yeah. But, yes, this is the one with, uh, among other things, Matt Sells versus Jaden Newman Falls Count Anywhere. Kevin Koo versus Merrick Donovan, AC Mack, Adam Priest. Uh, tag title match with Suplex Science against the Skulk. Plus uh, title match, Eric Royal defending against Logan Creed. And match I'm most looking forward to seeing from that show, Anthony Henry versus Merck, the former Grand Bell. All right. All right. Yes, by... IWTV, independentwrestling.tv. Yeah, you always need to remember to make sure I get the code plug in first. Uh, code BTS pod doesn't get you anything extra right now, but if you subscribe, we get a little bit of a referral fee for each month you stay a subscriber. So independentwrestling.tv coupon code BTS pod. And as with everything we talk about in a halftime, everything's laid out and linked in the show notes as well. And by VPN. Want a VPN, everybody? Thanks. Hey. So Viper VPN, get the best deal you can at tinyurl.com slash BTS VPN and get as low as under $1.66 a month by doing the three years for $60 plan. But, you know, they've got a ton of different countries available, they have all sorts of cool privacy features, they've got an Android TV app. So if you want to just run stuff from your streaming device, like a, you know, a newer Chromecast or a... It should work with Fire TV as well. Might need to be sideloaded. I'm not sure. Um, the T-Mobile Android TV thing that I saw when I was in the T-Mobile store doing a warranty exchange on my phone the other day. All that, you can just install the Viper VPN app and run the VPN on there. So you don't need to futz with your router or anything. So again, tinyurl.com slash btsvpn. All right. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Big set, David Bix. And plugs, I did the Twitter before I did the plugs. Plugs, um, cover to cover, came out. I didn't plug it on last week's show because, uh, but did cover to cover came out? Hell, no, no, not cover to cover. Uh, Exile on Bad Street, which is out now, as we, uh, as this is heard, that uh, we discussed the October through, not October, damn, I'm, I'm really off my game. Um, August through September 2001, NWA Wildside, um, Talking about uh, all stuff going on there. Very, very fun show with Jeff G. Bailey and Danny Dragon Wilson. Talk about the shift in the promotion from the beginning of the show we do to the end of the show. As lots of changes take place in that two-month time period. But it's still a lot of tremendous wrestling action. We talk about all of it on IWTV, so go watch it. Then we talk about uh, September 11th and everything that happened there and what 
Dan and Jeff remember about that, how the office was affected. And whilst I ran a show that Saturday night after November 11th, so we talk about that and the thought process there. You just said November 11th. I said September 11th. No, well, at least the second time you said November. Well, whatever. But and also, uh, but, if you want to hear more about that show as well, you should, they should listen to the show we did about the week of 9-11 with uh, Mac Griffin. Yeah. but uh, So, yeah, we have a lot of discussion about that there. So, anyway, check it out on the feed, on the XL and Bastry show. And I, I did Phil Schneider's Way of the Blade podcast. Yes. Recently, discussing the last battle of Atlanta, Tommy Rich and Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer, and we talked about the, that feud, uh, other uh, sundry things. Uh, really, really fun show with Phil. So there we go. Check that out on his podcast feed. Also, a Red Circle, by the way. Yeah. So uh, go check that out as well. All right, Bix. Uh, anything going on in your world currently? I got. A, I'm actually following up on why that. The Mel Magazine article isn't out yet, but hopefully that'll be out soon. I'm nagging my editor as literally that. If you heard me typing, that's what I'm doing. So <laughs> that hopefully should be coming soon, among other things. But uh, all right, that's about it for now, I guess. All right. Well, that's it. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right. Let's uh, go to Canada. Oh, Canada. The revival of Stampede Wrestling's already going through some rough times. On October 2nd, Edmonton, they drill 150 fans for a Dick Buckus Jr. versus Marvin Popeman event. And on October 9th, it was down to 120 fans and 90 for a pay, 90 paid for a rematch. And there were no favors done there since Pope, a former Canadian Football League star who's being pushed as a top babyface, didn't show up. Oops. Calgary's weekly shows, which are television tapings for two weeks every other Friday, are also not drawn well. The TV airs on the A Channel in Alberta, Manitoba. It'll start airing on the Regina Saskatchewan uh, channel, show, whatever, on uh, October 28th, which are beginning in November. And Dave says that Mauro Ronaldo, who does TV play-by-play, is said to have a lot of potential at the job. And a love affair begins. <laughs> um, Dick Buckus Jr. I never understood why there was a wrestler named Dick Buckus Jr. when the original Dick Buckus never even wrestled. You know why. Because it's, it's Bruce, Bruce. Bruce Hart, and he loves a name like Dick Butkus. <laughs> uh, i never really seen this version of Stampede, so I don't know what to say about it. I'm sure you probably have. I've seen some. I mean, I know who could lecture us about for days about this version of Stampede. <laughs> but he's not available right now. No, he's not. Maybe soon. Uh, yeah. Oof. Don't sound good. No, I do kind of want to see that promo where Sabu is flirting with the valet the whole time, though. <laughs> kind of like how uh, Ed Whalen would flirt with Miss Honey at times when Karachi Vice would do a promo. Huh. What would happen to Miss Honey? I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that. I'm thinking about it, she's probably in her 60s now. Wow. Uh, AAA! On the October 6th AAA TV taping... In San Luis Potosi, Felino began his Rudo turn on his brother Heavy Metal. They were shoving down each other. Uh, referee Tropicasas, both their father, came to came out to calm them down. Felino shoved both his brother and his father down and walked off. On the same show, Esta Moreno beat Shoshiyamada to win the Reina de, de, de Reina's title, Queen of Queens. In the rest of the results, we have Mini Hysteria, Mini Psychosis of Mini Abismo Negro, and Mini Electro Shulk. Esther Moreno with Shoshimada. 
Sintelyinka, Fenino, Heavy Metal, over Kickboxer, Ku Klux Klan, and Pentagon 2. Abismo Negro, Cuevo, Literal Shock, and Shiba, not Shima, but Shiba, over Cibernetico, Hysteria, Maniaco, and Psychosis, Triple by DQ. And then our main event, Paraguayo Jr., Latin Lover, and Mascara Sagrada Triple over The Killer, Proto Morgan, and El Tejano by disqualification. And this is Cranio or the one before Cranio? Uh, this is... No, I'm before Cranio. This is, this is Cranio, because Alabrije hasn't been created yet, I don't think. So, yeah. Okay. But, yeah, we had the uh, Acosta's Family Feud here, Bix. Sure. I think, it's, I think it's the first one. That sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, because Negro, Casas, and Felino were always in C- CMLL, so yeah. While Heavy was in AAA, so yeah. Okay, uh, no. Okay, this is not according to uh, Lucha. So Ali Brihe is not Franio. Yes, because Ali Brihe starts in 98. Okay, well, there you go. So this is... This is the Mascara Sagrada that would become Super AAA. I think so. I'm going to double check. But let's see. Uh, come on. Oh wait, we've got our disambiguation. Oh no, wait, it's taking me to the one with the accent first. Okay, this is oh this is the page for the original, and now we go to the disambiguation, which says Okay. I bring in ninety seven ninety eight. Sanguinaria did it once. And okay, this is the one, yeah, who becomes super triple A. And Televisa Deportes and Mascara and Mascara de, uh Divina. Yeah. All right, CMLO. They did a different style angle for uh, the arena that's shown on October the 8th, which appeared to have drawn an above-average crowd. Usually, angles starting six mans are built up for weeks, leading to a stipulation blow-off. This time after a match, Black Warrior was leaving while Emilio Chavez Jr. was coming out. They got into a shove match, leading to Warrior offering to defend his NBA lightweight title against the hair of Emilio. Well, we know how that would end up. Emilio ain't losing his hair, at least not then. Top matches of the week saw that when the junior shocker in Viano Tesoro over Atlantis, Negro Casas, and Mission Niebla, when Atlantis unmasked Viano Tesoro for the DQ. Oh, I wonder what that's leading up to. <laughs> well, we'll have more on it. And the semifinal saw Perov, Blue Panther, and Vesco Guerrero beat Tarzan Boy, Blasso de Plata, and Emilio by DQ. After the match, Los Hermanos Dinamita and Apollo Dates, Los Capos, came out to attack Perov and Fuerza. Panther walked out of the ring so as not take sides in the Rudos Contra Rudos program. For the results, we have Solar number two and Super Kendo over Gerardo de Futuro and Mogar. Virus over Mano Negro Jr. in a lightning match. It's a 10-minute time limit. Brother de Oro, Pantera, and Starman over Haka Negro, Calafagari Jr. and Rico Latino. Black Warrior and Ultima Guerrero and Zombido. What a fucking team that is, 1999. Over Antifaz del Norte, Asteroid Jr. and Liz Mark Sr. That's an interesting match. Yeah, and then we have Fanta Fuerza and Perov over Porky, Emilio, and Tarzan Boy by the Q, and then Wagner, Shock, and Viano to Cerro over Atlantis, Niebla, and Negro by the Q. Now, they did an angle where District uh, of Federal Commissioner Raymond Mendoza suspended Atlantis for two weeks because Atlantis shoved him at this show. Remember, he's the father of Atlantis' arch rival, Viano de Cerro, and they're building up to the Muscular Culture Muscular match. How convenient. It's almost as if the commission is corrupt. You don't say. I'm shocked. I mean, they allow someone to serve as Commissioner Rambo. 
and Commissioner <laughs> Phantasma with his mask. Yeah. How do we know that's the real Phantasma? You never know. All right, Rina Claus still on October 10th. We have Pegaso and Ricky Marvin over El Cafre and Prince Benegro. Merico Roca, Damiano Guerrero, and Nimigo Publico over Filoso, Olympus, and Solar 2. Brazil Oro, Starman, and Super Kendo over Chicago Express, Inner Tercera. Io de Gariador and Violencia. Opolo Dantes, Blue Panther, Dante Jr. over Lise Mark Sr., Olimpico, and Tinebles Jr. And then Mascara Añodos Mil over Rayo de Lisco Jr. in your main event. So there's your CMO rundown for the week. Next we go to IWRG. Marina Nakapan on October 7th. Only one match listed. Mr. Mexico retain the IWRG Intercontinental Middleweight title over Pantera 2. It's a, a big uh, singles victory for Mr. Mexico. And that's the famous Pantera. I presume he's just listed as Pantera 2 in Lucha DB, so he's not confused with the original. Yes. And then Marina Nakapan on uh, the Sunday show on October 10th. We have Genki Oraguchi and Rio Saito over Bad Boy and Maligno in your opener. Torimon guys. More Torimon guys on the show. Fantasy, Kung Fu Jr. and Yashushi Kanda over Kenichiro Rai, Stalker Chikawa, and Sumo Mochizuki. Then Black Dragon, Star Boy, and Ultima Vampiro over Bombero Infernal, El Millionario, and Mr. Mexico. Los Oficiales, Garia, Manyakap, and Oficial over Rebe Cunero, Satanico, and Ultima Guerrero. And if that's a good... Where's the Guerrero over Mickey Segura Suicida by disqualification? That is a very good sounding IWRG show right there. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. And also, oh God, it's been so long since I've seen it, so I can't even really describe it. Manyakop had one of the very best masks in the business at the time. Yes, all the officiales had great masks. And also, so. what a what a Technico team in that Tercera. Oh, the whole show. I mean, there's just talent all over this show. But still, Man. can you imagine just Black Dragon, Starboy, and Ultimo Vampiro doing the dive train? Oh, I'm, I'm telling you. I mean, just, wow. Great stuff. All right. Double Double C. Because the Double Double C TV ratings have grown from an 8.9 average in January to a 15.0 in September, Ray Gonzalez, the top heel in the group, is calling himself Mr. Ratings. Dave has R-A-T-I-N-G-S, but it's actually Mr. R-A-Y. T-I-N-G-S. Yes. The big angle is that Carlos Colon's 21-year-old son, Car- Carly, wants to be a wrestler to feud with Ray Gonzalez. Carlos is telling me he wants him to go to college and stay away from wrestling, while he, in the angle, wants his dad to train him to fight Gonzalez, like, just like he trained Gonzalez. Gonzalez, in his interviews, noted that Carly's 21, and when he was 21, he already held the universal title, and Carly isn't a kid. Eventually, Car- Carlos agreed to begin training his son. And there's the birth of Carlito. So there you go. All right. Larris, Puerto Rico on October 10th for Anna fans. Jose Rivera Jr. over Bouncer Bruno. Black Boy over Sean Hill. El Nene went to double count out with Mustafa Saeed. Glover Shane over John Diamond. El Raquero over El Exotico. WC Tag Title Match in Vader Numero Uno and Mayolo Huertes, his brother, over Chiki Star and Victor the Bodyguard. And Universal Highway title, Carlos Colon went to WQ with Ray Gonzalez to retain his style. So, yeah, about that radio show for WC. 6.1 jump. Not too shabby. Yeah. I know the ballot is messy with where our top Puerto Rico's handled now, but do you think that 
Ray Gonzalez should be on the Observer Hall of Fame ballot and considered a legitimate candidate? You know my answer to this question. It's always going to be this answer to this question. Anytime you ask me about these people like this, it doesn't matter. Because they won't them. get the support. Then we're going to support. I think we're, we're to the point now. We're to the point now where there's only about five, five people, five to ten at the most, that actually are serious candidates with what we have as a voting base. And it's getting less. As far as like older candidates, we're about to get in a situation now where you're going to have a whole lot more than newer candidates just get in. That's the way it is. Because you have a new generation of wrestling fans that, I mean, this is what they've grown up. They haven't grown up with this stuff. And the people that are of a previous generation, especially foreign country and like Rey Gonzalez, who, I mean, really, who is going out of their way to watch Rey Gonzalez? You know, who? Who is? Nobody, sadly. I mean, the people that like, like Rick Gonzalez, you know, know of him and respect him and believe he, you know, was a great performer and everything. But none of these, none of these guys are going out and searching him out. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's to that point, you know, it's where we're at. But on the merits? I mean, he, probably, he should be on the ballot, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. But hell, <laughs> Winter ballots going out. <laughs> you know? You probably ask. I mean, I've seen people ask that question, talk about that, you know, and stuff like that, but there ain't been none. And it was supposed to come out last month, but it didn't. So, again. When did we get them last year? Uh, it was around September, October. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's tough. It's real tough. It would take it would take Dave to heavily champion him. And that's what it takes mainly these days, period. I'm still surprised that Cologne got in though. All things considered. I th- well I don't know. I, I I'm not. I'm not surprised. I, I mean I, I I guarantee you I would guarantee you CM Punk's in the Hall of Fame this year. If not this year, the next, but probably. No, it's this year. It's this year because it's a return. For a guy who wasn't, you know, basically considered a Hall of Famer, all it took was one month. Well, look at what a difference maker he's been, though. But again, that's what I'm saying. One month? Is one month the Hall of Fame? It's 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 putting someone who already had a candidacy. No, but you get what I'm saying. Over the top. Yeah, but that much? (laughs) <laughs> let me put it this way if he had f- fallen off and people asked him to be vo- added back for next year and he continuous continued to be a noticeable needle mover then would you consider it something like a satanico 2001 that puts him over the top well i mean if it's a long period of time but one month you know well, that's what i'm saying so a lot of t-shirts brother we're in a different era of Hall of Fame's discussion, so it is what it is. And I'm going to throw this in the section, too, while we're at it. Shit. All right, we got an MMA. A EPC on October 8th in Kenner, Louisiana. Stomp in the Swamp was headlined by a rematch of famous EFC pay remain event from October 18th, 1996. As Marcus Conan Silvera avenged his uh, EFC heavyweight title loss to Marty Smith with a triangle arm lock choke, tap out in the second round. Reports are that Smith was doing far more damage in the fight. Dominic stand up, although Silvera took him out several times. 
He apparently slipped on water, according to one report, and Severa got good position, and T is going for an arm bar, and instead got the submission. The show drew possibly 850 fans. Things didn't look good because they only had 60 tickets sold a few days before the fight. Tito Ortiz was at the show, shows that he's going to start training with Frank Shamrock, who was there in Smith's corner. Wasn't that interesting? John Lewis came in to sign a contract to face Militich. Pat Militich, although the turnout didn't happen. Rose of this group, who judging from the economics, must have dropped a ton of money on this show because stretching the cage alone cost $28,000. And Smith's guarantee for the fight was at least $20,000. We're also trying to put together a militich Mikey Burnett fight. They were said to be offering Militich $10,000 more than USC would for such a fight. Boy, does that last part make it sound like there's a laundry being operated here, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 60 tickets sold. This stage for the fight. And wow. can you imagine what that would have looked like in that building, too? Because this is presumably the Pontar Train Civic Center. It is. Mm. Wow. Oh, how about the how about it that we have a uh, even if it's not wrestling, we have Poncho Train Civic Center uh, on a show where our guest is someone who has promoted a show, and at the Poncho Train Civic Center. Well, how about that? I guess who should be back right after this? All right, Dave has rejoined us as we go to the indie scene of 1999, and what a scene that was! What a what a scene, man! <laughs> yes. Let's start with Combat Zone Wrestling, which is very new in the business here in, uh, a few months in. They ran a show at the Ball Fields on October 9th in National Park, New Jersey, for a show titled Pain in the Rain. Wait a second. They were in National Park, New Jersey, representing that murder-death-kill gang? <laughs> representing <laughs> that murder-death-kill gang. Hate Club, <laughs> Eastern yeah. Block, Gang Affiliated, R.I.P. Nate Hatred. R.I.P. His fucking brother, Justice Payne. I think he actually says his motherfucking brother, which is really, <laughs> when you really think about it, that's very interesting. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our opening, opening match on this show featured the bad crew, Dog and Rose, going to a no <laughs> contest with the Mongoose and legendary Zabar. And then we have Cor Corky, not from uh, Life Goes On, beating Trent Acid. Are you sure it's we not Corky uh, from Life Goes On? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be quite the match, wouldn't it? Wasn't there, there also an indie worker named Chris Burke, Burke in this era, too? <laughs> <laughs> Lil D over Battery. A three-way Reckless Youth over Rick Blade and White Lotus. Wait a second, so Reckless Youth could have worked the pay-per-view. Yes, Maybe. he could have worked the pay-per-view. If he was allowed to work CZW, then yeah. It's possible. Uh, hardcore match, Zandig over White Beater. And then a four-way for the CZW tag titles as Lobo and TCK defeated the Thrill Kill Cult, Diablos Macabre and Midnight, the Cash Marino brothers, Johnny Cashmere and Robbie Marino, and Justice Payne and Nick Gage, who were the champions to win the championship. Who was TCK? I don't know. Oh, my God. Um, I think he was just a guy who was just on the scene at that time. Um, yeah, he didn't He didn't last very long, whoever he was. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, one of us would know who he was. Yeah. Um, like, I know Diablos Macabre was, like, a Pennsylvania indie guy. Uh, he, he did some stuff for, uh, for Norm Connors and, uh, you know, like, 
some of the dentist stuff in New Jersey. Yeah, DCK doesn't have a cage match profile or anything. Yeah, so. I'm yeah. pulling it up now. Um, and also, for what it's worth, that not in our week, but this show is a week before the first annual Cage of Death. Which we talked about on the show we did uh, on show 117. So, yeah, this is the early days of CZW, but yeah, here's Nick and uh, Justice Payne and Zanning and White Beater, so Rick Blade. So you got the guy, Trent, Johnny, Nick Burke, Zabar. So you got all these John guys Dahmer. here. Yeah. Yep, John Dahmer. You got these guys here at the beginning, you know, and yes. uh, they would carry on through. So, okay, so of the, who we have here on this very early CCW show, um, Dahmer, I believe, is a Zandig student. Um, wife beater, Gage and Painter, Zandig students. I think Lobo is. Is that it? And the rest are... Lobo definitely local is guys. Zandig. And the rest are just various local New Jersey, Pennsylvania guys. Yeah, because yeah. like Trent and Nick Burke, they came up with like Billy Real. They all backyarded together. Yeah, uh, and like I, and like they would train with Reckless and like Montoya and them. Like Reckless kind of helped took them under his wing for a period of time and helped teach them. And they would they would hang out at Angel Amoroso's. Like they'd work Angel's shows and like she would have you know have ring time for the local kids to work with each other. And Reckless would help them out there and stuff like that. So and I think John Dahmer was was like wasn't he one of the early head trainers at the CZW school too. Mm -hmm. That yeah. sounds right. Yep. Yes. Um, he was like their ass. <laughs> you bad crew, I presume, are here because they're using Damien Kane's license. It's possible. He's or, not they just, or they're just a, a, a tag team that's in that area that was looking for work and, you know, CZW is still trying to find its identity here and there. That's true. Really they don't. are better than Rock and Rebel. But then again, who would appear <laughs> well, they on would CZW shows only for his license, Rock and Rebel? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like there's something I'm forgetting here. Rick Blade, was he trained in the first place? <laughs> I mean, a lot of the guys, like Trent and Nick Burke and, and Billy Real weren't trained in the first place. Like, they learned on the job. I mean, I, yeah. to be honest, the same could be said for Reckless and Quackenbush and, you know, a lot of those guys who, like, them, yeah. started untrained, but then, like, they would work enough shows and you know, like get become friends with guys like Ace Darling, who then would teach them. And like, but I mean, before the era of wrestling schools, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Oh God, yes, I was about to say that's that. how yeah. people learn. You learn yes. on the job by working shows. So like, even though Reckless Youth, like, and a lot of people, even after he learned to work and he was you know, a headliner on the indies. There were a lot of guys that held it against reckless youth that he didn't, you know, though he spent time at the monster factory, he was wrestling on shows before he was trained or what it's like. So when, as long as you eventually learn to work, isn't that all that matters? When yeah. did reckless go to Al Snow's school then? I don't know. I, I mean, that I, would I think be a question Quack, to ask Quack Meanie, was, I guess. Quack was more of a, started as a complete backyarder and was working shows, quote unquote, untrained, than the others, but I think I think Reckless was in that camp of he may have started out untrained first. Maybe I'm wrong. Like I might even be a little incorrect on that. Maybe he did go straight to training first. But I I think that he because he, he I just remember at the time a lot of a lot of guys holding it against him that maybe he didn't get started the right way. But, but he did spend time at, at Al Snow School and he did train with Larry Sharp as well. He must have so. gone to snow school really early, though, because 
now that I think about it, the earliest I remember hearing the name Reckless Youth is on, like, Body Slammer's gym results and stuff. Yeah, um, he was there at the same time as, like, D'Lo. My, my, my favorite story of this is this uh, one of the clean Brickhouse Brown stories, is that he he was working out in the gym. He worked out with the wrestlers in Florida, stuff like that, and he wanted to get into wrestling. And he watched Southwest was on USA Network. He's like, well, I'm get a job there. So he sent a letter to uh, their offices because they had their address, you know, on the show. So their offices talking about, uh, you know, uh, he was a, a, a bodybuilding guy who was a wrestler, but he, he said he was already a wrestler. He was working in Florida, you know, stuff like that, but he wanted to come in and work in San Antonio. And Joe Blanchard called him up and told him, to, come on, you know, we've we'll, we got a spot for you, game of start date and everything. So Brickhouse gets in the ring, and I, I, can't, I think his first match was against Bobby Jaggers. And he gets in the ring, and he basically told Bobby, he says, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I've never wrestled before. <laughs> and that, and, and a, I mean, a lot of those guys, a lot of people have the similar story. I mean, if you just listening to shoot interviews, it's like, okay, who trained you? And they're like, well, like uh, Dutch Mantel in his shoot interview, there he's asked, well, who trained you? He's like, I didn't get trained. I, mean, I got, Bobby I got Eaton <laughs> they put me in the ring, and I learned to work eventually. <laughs> like that's yeah, the way, Bobby, it, all the the way it was for a lot of these guys. Yeah, Lawler. They just fucked around. Yep. Yeah, Lawler. It just fucked around the ring. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say though, Quack, Quack's it it got better. Quack's work looked more untrained for a while than some of the others did. Well, he's no joke. Put it together. I mean, Punk was the same thing. He started with the Lunatic Wrestling Federation in Chicago, which but he went through Ace and Danny's whole program. No, but he but he was working for the L. He was wrestling on shows in front of six hundred to a thousand people every month in Chicago for the LWF, untrained. Yeah, and after about a year, he smart he like he smartened up. He was one of the few. Him and like Eric Priest and oh like, yeah, Brad Bradley were the ones that that. Decided, okay, we need we need to actually move up to the next level. We realize we're untrained, and they they sought out Ace and Danny, and they got trained. Um, and then like he'd go back after a training session at the Steel Domain and teach <laughs> like teach what he, what he learned at the Real Wrestling School to the other LWF guys. <laughs> and eventually, the LWF brought in uh, this guy Brandon Bishop to start teaching them. Oh wow, um, that's a name I ain't heard in years. Yeah. <laughs> So they 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 eventually got more of a clue through learning from Punk and learning from Brandon Bishop. But like, you know, a lot of guys started completely untrained. But you know, as long like I said, as long as you eventually learn to work, that's what matters. I mean, Punk eventually learned to work. So yeah. All right, let's go to ECW. Uh, I tried I tried to keep out the stuff in the Patreon show in this, so we have uh, not much TNN discussion. We got a lot of the discussion. I was low because of the lack of progress in the TNN ratings, and that crowd continued to be weak. And the weak is spelled W-E-E-K. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Melser. The, uh, ba- uh, the show in Baton Rouge on the October 7th drew 500 fans. Homa on October 8th drew about 2,000. And New Orleans on October 9th drew 2,500. All heavily papered. In Homa, it was so heavily papered that people were walking out in droves the show was going on. This was also the TNN taping. They did an angle where Rhino and Steve Carino challenged two members of the New Orleans Saints. Carino then backed down, and Rhino fought both of them until security pulled them apart. 
Dreamer and then came out the rest of Carino and Raven and Fury giving Dreamer a DDT, but Dreamer still credits Carino to win the Carino to win the match. Two main events had Van Damme and News, the Sabu with a one man gang. That's the Josh Wilcox angle right there. All right, Baton Rouge. Uh, this results five hundred fans. Nova won a three way over Simon Diamond and Little Guido. Danny Doring and Roadkill over C.W. Anderson and Wild Bill Wiles. Rod Price at PN News over the DOP Brothers, D-O-P-P. <laughs> Spike Dudley and Lance Storm, Spike Dudley over Lance Storm. Mike Austin retained the ECW title being Tajiri. Sabu over Just Incredible. Dreamer and Raven and One Man Gang over Carino, Rhino, and Jack Victory. Then Homa. The next night, Nova over Diamond and Guido. Credible over Spike. Mike Austin retained East David title beating Rod Price. Tom Marquez with a no contest with David Cash. Kid Cash. Dream over Carino. Storm over Candido. Axelin Balls won a three-way over C.W. Anderson, Wild Bill, and Dorian Roadkill. Van Dam retained the TV title over PN News. And Sabu over the one-man gang. They weren't kidding. One Man Gang was local superstar. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, he's on these ECW shows and then on Heroes of Wrestling and yeah, you know, right after it. Right. Wow. Right, that EC, right in that ECW wave onto the Heroes <laughs> of Wrestling pay-per-view. Well, hey, they won an ECW match. So Abdul the Butcher versus One Man Gang. I mean, One Man Gang's an ECW guy. Hey, yeah. Mike Lombardi was smarter than we thought, I guess. Yeah. All right. The October 18-inch show with no new wrestling materials by far the worst effort to date. The show was built around a two-part interview with Tammy Sitch. So we will talk, have this. Besides that, they aired the Tajiri Crazy Guido three-way and Jerry Lee and Lance Storm match for Anarchy Rules, both of which were good matches. You had to figure 85% of their teen and audience had never seen the matches, but if they weren't going to have first-run material on the show, they should have focused on the world title with videos they produced for the syndicated show and then aired the match where Mike Austin won the belt. So it was generally considered the best match on that show. The Sitch thing was incredibly cheesy. They promised an interview that would rip the lid off the rest, wrestling uh, world regarding the treatment of women instead. It was an excuse for a backdrop of bikini shots from throughout her career as a desperation ratings ploy. Interview with her blouse unbuttoned all the way down made it impossible to take her seriously. It was made worse trying to promote it as a landmark, honest television for the industry moment when it ranked on a scale of bad television with a 1997 Melanie Pillman interview on Raw the night that Brian died. Sitch did reveal a problem with prescription drug use and alcohol abuse, in particular somas, and cried to talk about the death of Louis Spagoli, who was a close friend, and later cried heavily about the death of her 16-year-old niece and being suicidal. They had close-ups of the tears, and by the end, she wasn't speaking very clearly. She told nothing about the horrible treatment by the industry of women, or even the pressures to maintain an unrealistic look, and like the teases, and were very indicated, and were very careful not to say anything negative about WF. Her departure from the WF was candy coated and saying she voluntarily left. There was plenty of WF footage in the piece, including some of a cozy indicating some of a cozy relationship between the two companies. The sixth segment then ended in a totally work deal where she turned to the camera after never looking at it, saying how she's going to come back and set the standard for females in the industry. What does that mean? More extreme hardcore dieting and implants for the new millennium, Dave asked. Anyway, seeing her today and seeing the hell she's put herself through over the past two years and remembering what she was when she first got into the business a few years ago was among the saddest things I've ever seen. It said Hollywood eats their young. Wrestling often eats more than that. When this showed in the locker room on videotape, everyone was laughing at it like it was comedy. Even though Tammy looks to have aged, fans still pop forward to arenas this weekend. At the weekend's taping in Louisiana, they did the angle where Nova was wrestling Candido, Doring and Roadkill attacked Nova, so Storm and Dom Marie attacked Candido and Sitch. 
ended up with Miss Cajiniali holding Sitch and Dawn hitting her bare ass with a paddle. This was booked as a potential blow off for Sitch if she doesn't make it. Or the beginning of the angle, she does. But Miss Cajiniali leaving, Dawn Marie hit her and then bragged about taking out two women and challenged Francine. Dreamer Francine at the ring, but incredible Kane Dreamer. Raven had to stare down with both Justin and Lance, who will face Raven and Dreamer for the Belson pay per view, but then gave Dreamer a DDT while Lance and Justin left. Dave, we talked about all this on the Patreon show, the, the Tammy stuff, but man, um, I don't know if you ever watched this at the time, but you were in the business. Yeah. I mean, what were your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I mean, I didn't think that it should have been on television. I don't, and still, I don't really understand the purpose of putting that on the television show. Rating. Like, ratings, ratings, ratings. <sighs> because Tammy, and they yeah. strategically had her shirt unbuttoned, showing the bikini shots. But they it were, just it it comes well, off so yeah. like exploitative, and I don't know. It, it, but comparing it comparing shirt. it to the Melanie Pillman thing is is. Almost, it was, is, it's a good comparison. I mean, it's like, not, yeah. two things that, that like, honestly, it makes you uncomfortable watching it. Why are you, why are you putting this on television? Because it's like, that's not going to market her as somebody that you have on your show in the future. It's, it, it, I don't know. I didn't like it at the time, and I still don't quite get the it's reason. Ni- for doing it's it. 1999 wrestling and wrestling yeah. fans in 1999. You were in the business, you know. I mean, the women were all, all they were at that time was fucking eye candy and sex objects. It wasn't anything but, about the You women. have her have her at ringside being involved in matches and doing, you know, the the stuff that valets do, doing the interview thing like this where she's talking about, you know, all of her problems. I just uh, it, it doesn't paint her in a positive light. If anything, it's going to make you depressed while you're watching it as a wrestling fan. Like what what's the point? Yeah. Um, yeah. Felix, any any new thoughts as we rehash this? Um I'm trying to remember, is it this one or the other one where, like, she randomly brings up that there's a website about her feet? <laughs> I don't know if it's this one. I think it may have been another interview. There's two. It's it's one of the two parts of the sit-down. I just don't remember which. Um, It just, it's, it's so shameless, though. Like, I don't even get why Paul is going with the pretext of, oh, she's going to blow the lid off the treatment of women in wrestling. And then, uh, yeah, and then all they do is, you know, show her in bikinis and all that other stuff. And also the editing was really bad and halting and given some of the subject matter, it made everything even worse. Like, because don't they also bring up seemingly, I guess, part so she can be crying on camera and part, I guess, to try to give a quote unquote reason for her drug issues. Like, wasn't her like niece dying of cancer or something at the time too well that's what i'm talking about didn't the suicidal thing yeah like it's, the niece. Uh, it's just it's, bad. A, it's, it's 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 desperate ratings ploy and yeah, but it does not it does nothing to sell tickets to nothing. a future show or to promote her as somebody that you want to see at ringside in a match or somebody that's going to make you happy when you're watching her in the future like it, it does more damage to her character and and to like i don't know just like i said it makes the viewer depressed watching it and he needs you're, you're watching a wrestling show for yeah. entertainment this is an entertainment you know and he needlessly pissed cornet off again because Chris and Tammy nicely asked Cornette for some smoky footage to use. He sent the footage and gave permission. 
not exactly realizing what this would look like. Yeah, Paul was just... Uh... He's in a wild state at this time, as we talk about on those shows. Patreon.com slash Twinishies, ECW and TNN shows. So, yeah. All right, there are a lot of internal complaints about the booking. Many of the matches people want to see are the matches they see at the house shows. And at the house show, match results are too predictable and almost like old-style TV results up and down the house shows. For example, Mike Austin should be working with Taz. Not people like David Cash or Rod Bryce at house shows and world title matches. Taz was in any of the shows this week. Van Dam is still only working TV tapes, which hurts the card depth. Also, Super Crazy is back home for another week or two. <sighs> you know, I get what Dave is saying, but Mike Awesome, as ECW champion, I think he needed wins. Yeah, you, know? you, can't, you can't do it. You can't have him working the other top guys on house shows with either non-finishes or – like that – it would it would draw better if it was Mike Awesome versus Taz in every town, but like he, Taz isn't going to be putting putting him over every night. And Taz know? is and Taz is leaving, right? So there's that, and it, and it gives it gives and it gives main event experience to guys like Cash, like a young guy like Cash at the time could use it. I mean, Rod Price is a vet, but like you know, the experience of putting some of these newer guys at the time in the ring, experience working a main event title match, you know, it teaches David Cash in in the process. So. Yeah, and it elevates his standing in in the fans' eyes that were at that house show. They're like, okay, this guy just got a title shot, so you're going to take him more seriously in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, syndicated TV had little in the way of new material either. They had the awesome Rhino match for Tina in the previous week, which was at least a good match. Styles was pushing really hard that Tammy had put all the problems behind her. They mentioned draws, but didn't say anything about what happened or his condition, but wished him well, which was nice. The rest of the show was the long Van Damme Mahoney match for Anarchy Rules. We talked about this on the Patreon show, Dave, about re-airing stuff uh, from pay- the pay-per-views and you know from the other TV. It's it's really getting out of hand here, and it starts getting worse as it goes on. I mean, you got this television, you know, this time. I mean, they're using TNN shows and basically playing. Almost the the whole show's almost been mentioned from the from the previous pay per view. That's not good. No, and but at the same time, if you're really happy with how something turned out on the pay per view, and you want a larger audience than how many ever bought the pay per view to see those matches, and if it was in front of a hot crowd and pay per view quality match. You might have a better – I mean, it might be a better in-ring product to give and present on TNN than whatever you would tape at a normal TV taping. I mean, that's I, – I would assume that would be the thought process behind putting pay-per-view matches on TV instead of filming fresh content. But it's also just rehashing stuff for pay-per-views so the people that did see the pay-per-view aren't getting anything new on their TV, which but, is a problem. And they're feeling ripped exactly. off. And they're feeling ripped off. Exactly. I was about to yeah. say that. I mean, I just I just put all this money now, but yeah, I'm seeing this match a week or two later on, on television. All these yeah. matches. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's some there's some good and some bad to it. The for, it's only good though for the people that didn't see that didn't order the pay per view that are you know just getting to see the match for the first time, and hopefully that would lead to them wanting to buy the next show. But you again, you do risk pissing off the people that did spend the money to see that see it on pay per view the first time. So. Also, aren't you needlessly risking pissing off in demand since the pay-per-view was only two weeks, two and a half weeks ago? There you go. That too. 
And what incentive does it uh, make for the people to buy potential pay-per-views when they say, oh, shit, I can watch it on fucking TV? You know, so there's that. Too. And you're, also, you're also fan? TNN, like I know, like with that first, the first episode when uh, he decided to, instead of f- using the footage that he filmed at the TV taping, he aired pay-per-view stuff, uh, replayed pay-per-view stuff that TNN wasn't happy that they were airing old footage rather than fresh content. Like, does it piss off TNN that he's doing this as well? Who knows? Exactly. All right. Heyman. This is from the torch may think this sits my addressing your viewers TNN show from a recognition factor because her days on raw, but she isn't perceived as a national star in ECW locker room. She wasn't the least bit popular during her last scene in ECW and is now seen as yesterday's news. So that's that right there. Dave tells you the story that they did that because they thought she would draw WF fans to their show. Right. But I mean, I, I, but the WWF fans that want to see her want to see her performing at ringside during a match, you know, doing segments in the ring, whatever, being, you know, the former Sonny. They don't want to see her doing yeah. it. Yeah. So. And they also they also want 1996 and 1997 Tammy. And Not even if they I know, but even if even if they get 1999 Tammy, they want to see her being a man, being a valet, being a manager, do, you know, yeah. doing stuff at ringside. Exactly. Participating in matches. They don't want to see the crying talking about her personal issues. Right. No. And if they want to see Tammy managing at ringside, they can order a copy of Tammy, 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 the best of Tammy's <laughs> compiled by Dave Prezak. Terrible. <laughs> all right. Taz was earlier in ECW. After all, before Taz job the Sabu at the Plymouth, Michigan TNN taping, he did his best to get out of both the match and ECW. He was upset about Paul Heyman's plans for him to job the Sabu and told him he was uncomfortable with it. Heyman told him he would not grant him early release or let him sit at home until his contract ran out because he had to deal through the end of the year. Then why do you let him end up doing that anyway? Some sources say Taz went so far as to refuse to wrestle on the grounds ECW had become an unsafe working environment. That phrase had made Taz the butt of locker room jokes over the weekend. When asked for a comment on that claim, Taz told the torch, that's a crock of shit, brother, and indicated that he and Heyman had worked things out. For the record, Heyman also denies Taz made that statement, but admits his conversation with Taz had been tense at times. Due to the intensity, Heyman says things are often said in the heat of the moment that aren't necessarily meant. Heyman has told Taz if he doesn't want to work, he can go to the ring and explain it to the fans. Heyman also told him if he failed to fulfill his deal with the company, that he would tie him up in court and delay his WF debut. For the time being, Taz is only working TV tapings and isn't being used on house shows. Heyman still wants to use Taz to the end of his contract. Sources say Heyman doesn't plan a job Taz out to undercard wrestlers, but would like him to do around three to five strategic jobs during the final months of the company. Some are wondering if Heyman will or has phoned Vincent Man to warn him about Taz's attitude. Vince, I have a job. warning for you. <laughs> strategic jobs, Dave. I love that that uh, wording there. <laughs> well, I mean, it does make sense, though. I mean, even if you know somebody's leaving, you don't just have them put yeah. every, everybody over every night, you know, on the way out. You you do it for the right people to elevate the right talent and in the right circumstances. So, and that, at least that's the right way to do it. Maybe some some promoters might might just job a guy out to everybody on the way out, but the, the best cow, way, the best the way to do it yeah. the best way to do it though is you use the credibility that that wrestler who is leaving has with the audience 
by having him only put over a handful of select guys that you are looking to push in the future so that each of those losses means something. So that's the right way to handle it, in my opinion. The old cowboy disagrees, though. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta hook him up. All right, a large part of the this is uh, still torch. Large part of the reason Taz is leaving ECW sources say it's because of Raven's return. When Taz was first informed of the news that Raven was coming back to ECW, he spoke against it in the locker room. Taz complained to anyone who would listen that Raven left ECW during tough times and should have been given another chance. He also claimed Raven did damage to the belt by leaving shortly after holding it. Jack stood up for Raven during the locker room discussion. He said if Heyman would give him a second chance, he can give anyone a second chance. Heyman reportedly explained to Taz that Raven didn't leave during tough times, but instead left when things were going relatively well. Since then, Heyman told Taz, uh, opposed to Raven, he did damage ECW Todd by negotiating a new deal while still holding it. Heyman also told Taz that Raven informed him he wanted out, then dropped the belt, and then began negotiating his deal with WCW in 1997. While no one disputes what Taz has done for ECW, people are questioning his boast about paying his dues in wrestling. One story brought up an attempt to discredit Taz is that he quit Smoky Mountain Wrestling after working only two weeks because the pay wasn't up to his standards. Others believe to this day that while ECW is going through his tough financial times, Taz used to call Perry Saturn on a weekly basis hoping to find work with WCW. Even those who like Taz personally don't seem especially crushed to see him leave. The belief expressed by many behind the scenes that Taz would never set to be moved down to mid-card status, yet he may not have had the size of star power to carry the promotion as a top star. Taz gave Paul Heyman headaches, which is an unusual for any relationship between a top wrestling promoter. Going by Taz's history regarding doing jobs, no one had faith he would willingly put someone else over when it came time to shift focus in the promotion to someone else. <laughs> and by tough times financially, uh, he's referring to earlier in the year when all the bounce checks were happening until Paul secretly signed over control of the business side of the company to uh, ECW management group. You know, it's funny you bring that up because just today on Twitter, I saw somebody, I can't remember who it was, I don't know if it's Tate Machines or Boss Moss or one of those accounts. They were tweeting a picture from 2000 ECW where Simon Diamond had all his crew there with him. And it's talking about how the newsletters, all you heard about was all these guys, all these people getting bounce checks. Yeah, everybody in ECW had at least three or four valets or attendants at ringside. <laughs> Yeah, but how many of them were actually getting paid at that point? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I would yeah say how much do you think like, Mitch was getting paid? <laughs> like, seriously, like, if you, at the time, people, I mean, I mean, I don't hold it against them, because, like, if, if it would have been offered to me at the time to be on ECW television and make zero dollars, but be on TNN every week on ECW on their pay-per-views, I would have done it for free. That's, like what, that's, that's what that's so what like, we so like that's what we in the retail business call a loss leader. Yeah, like but it's like so it would not surprise me one bit if a good percentage of the people, especially manage like people who aren't actually wrestling, like you know the managers and valets, were just doing it for the exposure at the time because you know on the days that ECW wasn't running, they could take indie dates where they actually did get paid and. If eventually ECW folds, at least they got that experience and that TV exposure during the time that they did exist. Like, I mean, you say say whatever you want about it, but like being on TNN every week on a wrestling show is exposure, and it's it's going to help your career whether you're getting paid, you know, seventy five bucks to be there or not, or whether the, you don't get paid. Regardless, you know, there's value in being at the show and on the show for your future. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. All right. 
Big Show love this. EC, also from the Torch, ECW executive Steve Carroll told the Electronic Media last month that ECW is responsible for the wrestling boom that WF and previously WCW experienced in recent years. Everything, repeat, everything done in professional wrestling creatively in the last 24 months to inspire this renaissance was first done by ECW and Philadelphia Sports Channel, he said. The Hertz and the Avis and two organizations were inspired by Paul's creation. They took what Paul did, and with Vince McMahon's strength of dollars, and even the greater dollars of Ted Turner and his megalopoly, to use a word of mine, with Time Warner, and blew it up. We're slowly built ECW, and now we've been given a national platform to finally claim back some of the territory that's been usurped from us. Regarding the deal from on TNN, Carol said TNN required ECW to turn down the violence and language a few notches, but Carol said the changes were livable and won't pull ECW away from its roots. Reporter Aaron Barnhart wrote that Viacom and CBS owners of TNN stand to benefit from a successful ECW show. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be benefiting, I. So, yes, uh, ECW responsible for the wrestling boom, Dave. Uh, they definitely had a heavy influence in a lot of changes made in the promotions. That's, that's the, you know, no doubt there. That can't be questioned. But. Let's be honest here. Yeah, I mean, you, you do have to talk up your <laughs> talk up your company and everything, and that's all he's doing, you know, trying yeah. to take take credit. And, and there is no doubt that there was a heavy influence in a lot of the things that you saw on both WWF and WCW as a result of what ECW was doing at the arena, you know, during the mid '90s. So, oh yeah, there's there's some truth to that, and so I mean, whatever it is, absolutely. What it is. Big Steve Carroll was really feeling himself in this piece, wasn't he? Well, I guess he hasn't realized yet that he's been left holding the bag. <laughs> That'll take a few years. Yeah. Um, also, is it me or does some of this just sound like it's Paul on the phone pretending he's Steve Carroll? <laughs> Finally Fuck. claim back some of the territory that's been usurped from us. <laughs> Paul's verbiage, yes. Yes, yes. It, he has some telltale signs. Mm-hmm. Actual name of Otto Schwanz is one of the Dopp brothers is Murray Hopper, not Hapter, as reported here last week. And he played football at Georgetown. So does he think they're called the Dopp brothers, or is that a typo? <laughs> he, he says it numerous times. He's correcting, he's correcting spelling of the real name, but he still says <laughs> Dopp brothers. <laughs> yeah. And he also earlier in the in the issue he had uh, that uh, that Julio Fantastico was Julio Sanchez. It's Brian Wool, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Well, Don't give real names unless you're sure, man. <laughs> everyone can't be Breck Stansfield Lane, I guess. Well, that's not even his real name though. It's Wallace Stanfield Lane. <laughs> I, I half that's wondered it. if Breck Stanfield Lane was a joke about his hair. <laughs> that's even better. All right, let's go to the Indies even more now. Ultimate Championship Wrestling ran a couple of shows in Virginia, October 7th in South Boston at the Halifax County Fair. That's been 1,100 fans. Blue Dragon won a battle royal. Golga, John Tenta in the gimmick over Carnage. I doubt uh, There is it. no way that John Tenta yeah. was doing this show in the second match at the, at the friggin' <laughs> That's what I was going to say. An indie Golga in the second match in 1999? No. There's no way that's John no. Tenta. No. It's, they, they, he'd pulled a Dale Gagner, and they've got some guy. <laughs> also, wait, yes, wait a second. You're going to fly? Also, he would be a fly-in from British Columbia. 
And you're not yeah. going to use him as Earthquake or just John Tenta or whatever without the hood. No way. There's no way. Right, because he always he never moved from he never moved to Florida or anything, right? Wasn't he always based in British Columbia? Yes. Yeah, and it's funny because the gold goes on the October 9th show either. So uh, who knows? Uh, Malia Hasaka over Lexi Five. That's a match that I'm sure happened a lot in this era. <laughs> yes. Mass Superstar over Swede Stone. It's, and it is Bill Eady. Projecto Uno and Heavy Metal over Big and Beautiful with Humphrey J. DuPont the Four. Oh, that is the <laughs> most indie <laughs> thing I've ever heard in my life. That's tremendous. <laughs> that Jobber Tom Brandy beat Vladimir Kolaw. I didn't know he was still around in this era. Well, let me rephrase that. I didn't know he was still around in wrestling in this era because this was the era where you would regularly see message board and RSPW posts from people mentioning how Vladimir Koloff had a table signing autographs at their Walmart. <laughs> and then the Honky Tonk Man be Lord Edward DeVore with Neil Sharkey to win the retaining UCW title. Boy, also, the results is. were sent in by someone named Neil Boyd, who I'm guessing is manager Neil Sharkey and also the promoter <laughs> of this show. <laughs> yeah, and then on the ninth in Palmyra... Virginia at the high school, 128 fans on this show. Oh, Jeez, well, look at the difference in attendances. Well, well once in a fair. Well, it's a fair, but this is a school. I'm guessing this is a sold a show to a school that had no idea they needed to promote the show kind of thing. And maybe yeah. the uh, county fair was the, the, the attendance at the county fair was how many people attended the fair that day, not how many people were yes. actually watching wrestling that day. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Swede Stone won a battle royal. Heavy Metal over Cannonball James. Carnage with Laney Anarchy beat Shorty Smalls and Swede Stone in the three-way. <laughs> <laughs> Doink! <laughs> Who knows? Beat Projecto Uno. Neil Sharkey over Heather Strong in an intergender match. And then so we have Cousin, yeah, Cousin Junior over Demolition Axe by disqualification. And then Hoggy Top Man over a Latin lover. No, this is not the AAA Latin lover. With Neil Sharkey by disqualification. And I don't know. Heavy metal, was, heavy metal was on the other show. So Latin <laughs> yeah, lover yeah, might be on this one. Could have been. Yeah. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> also, you I mean, I'm not kidding. We're in agreement. Neil Boyd has to be Neil Sharkey, right? Gotta be. Gotta be. Yes. And he has be. to also be the promoter, right? Uh, probably so. It Lord. makes me think of the Growing Pains episode where it's like a Ben Seaver production directed by Ben Seaver. <laughs> Starring Ben Seaver. Uh, now let's go to NWA Wildside or NCW still at this point in time. They ran the NCW Arena on October 9th. We talked about this on the that's on Bash Street. Actually, wait, very... in October, by October, aren't they Wildside? Well, it's the TV show. The show is Wildside wild by then. Yeah, the promotion's not. The uh, we talked about this show on the first Exile show we did on Wasai. Faku over Steve Crow. Chief Faku, Jake. Not, not, not to be confused with uh, Kufa. Uh, no. Faku. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> not Kufa. 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 Flying Hawaiian uh, yeah, of IWA fame. Yes, right. Uh, Chief J. Eagle over T.J. Gray. Three-way Damian Steele over Mr. Extreme and White Trash. You mean noted Ed, hockey uh, PA announcer, White Trash? Yes. Ed Swimmer over Ice Pick. No, not Vic Capri. <laughs> Colt Rivers over Jesse Taylor. Thunder over David Richards. Tanya Terrific over Mark for Michaels by disqualification. 
And then our main event, Damian Steele, Scotty Wren, and AJ Styles over Romeo Bliss, who, if you listen, well, it hasn't dropped yet, but yeah, Romeo Bliss is doing better from COVID. Rip, Rip Michaels and Mark. Well, Michaels. it'll be up by the time this show is out. The new album. I'm, I'm not familiar. What was the gimmick of Mark for Michaels? He was a Mark for Rip Michaels. So he was basically his doppelganger. He he looked exactly like Rip Michaels. So he looked okay. exactly like Shane Douglas and Triple H as well. <laughs> uh, and then he became Mark E. Mark once that <laughs> once the. Uh, it's <laughs> so like Chuck E. Smooth, Mark yes. E. Mark, and then and then he became one of the Lost Boys. Okay, the yeah. one that's not Chad Parham. Yes, he was Azrael. So not to be confused with Northeast. Not to be confused with Azrael. <laughs> yes, or not to be confused with Gabriel, the Lost Boys. But yeah, so this is early Gabriel being this... Chad Parham. Yes. Yeah, so this is an early show at the NCW Arena. So we hear more about that. Exxon on Bad Street with uh, Al Getz, myself, and Jeff G. Bailey. All right, let's go to Ron Nemi's IPW Hardcore Wrestling. They ran Crystal River, Florida at the Armory. We have Xtreme, X-T-R-E-M-E, over Frankie Capone. Francisco Siapso. <laughs> yeah, well. Yes. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> mean, oh, you mean, wait, that's, isn't Francisco Siapso also, like, wasn't he running one of the WWN schools, too? Yes, yes, he's uh, he's been around forever, but he was Frankie Capone back in okay. the day. Is he still, is he still with what's her name? Uh, Stormy Lee. Stormy Lee. Yes. 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 Well, they were they were a twosome. I tell you that. <laughs> then we have Jeff Peter Jeff Peterson over Billy Fives. Definitely driver favorite Billy Fives to retain the IPW heavyweight title. Phi to Kappa U with Ronald J Nemi the Four. Sir Ronald J Nemi the Four. Beat the Shannon Anarchy. Rose did not provide his full name when sending in the results to Dave Meltzer. Yes, uh, went to a no contest with the Anarchy Suicide Squad. Wait, does now does wait what Sir Ronald <laughs> Janey the Fourth have any uh, friendship with Colonel Christopher? Uh, what is it, Christopher Buckley Robley the Third? No, it's cr- cr- Christopher uh, Colonel Buckley Christopher George Robley the Third. Thank you. And then, or unless I forget uh, who we had earlier, Humphrey, Humphrey J. J. DuPont the Fourth. Yes. <laughs> yes. Then we had Haystacks Calhoun Jr. over Notorious Dog Odd <laughs> with Psycho. No, 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 no. You're you're, no, you're so merging you, two matches. I am. Yes, the Notorious Dog. Then the Odd original Dudley Dudley with Psycho beat Rick Thames of the Southern Posse to win IBW Hardcore title. Cuban Assassin Dave Sierra with Capitana Natasha. Beat the Freedom Rider to retain his IPW title. And yes, these results were sent in by Shannon Rose. Yes. The Crystal River Armory, which uh, there was many FIP shows there that I was a part of during the uh, mid-2000s. And of course, uh, FCW would take that building. And that's why that's why uh, FIP stopped running, because that was uh, one of the stops that F- FCW and eventually NXT would be uh, running in Florida. So you're saying they love DVD product? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, the DVD product. But he drew pretty well at that building. Like uh, most of those FIP shows, I mean, they would, you know, do 350, 400 on a monthly basis at that building. So there will be, it's one of those areas where there's not much else going on. And it's, it's like a two hour drive to either Orlando or Tampa from Crystal River. So everybody in town goes to see wrestling. There you go. All right, Ohio Valley Wrestling, NWA, Ohio Valley Championship Wrestling, and lovely Jeffersonville, Indiana, 
Well, this is the old Davis Arena, but early, early, early developmental. Like they've been developmental for a couple months at most, I think. B.J. Payne over Gremlin, Scotty Saber over Low Rider, Chris Alexander over Russ McCullough, Damager and Trailer Park Trash over Jack Black, not the actor, and Vito Andretti. Oh. Enrico Costantino, oh, over Nick Densmore by disqualification. So we have a developmental promotion that at least in terms of who they're willing to use on TV shows is only using two developmental wrestlers. Yes. Russ McCullough and Enrico Costantino. Yes. Which, by the way, his real name is Costantino. If you watch the American Gladiator shows, it's Costantino. It's just that everyone, I think, found Constantino easier to say and remember. Yes. HWA. Or, or American Gladiators spelled it wrong. <laughs> Maybe. No, it yeah, is Costantino. Yeah. If you read other stuff about him, like in like when he got in trouble in his like taxi code enforcement job for being too much of a cop or whatever it was, it was, it was Costantino. Yeah. All right, HWA, Les Thatcher. They ran in Centerville, Ohio at the Indoor Soccer Arena on October the 9th. We have Anthony McMurphy over Bobby Casanova with GQ Masters by disqualification. Ray Steele over Extremist. Matt Stryker, Unibrow Matt Stryker. And Nigel McGinnis over Chad Collier and Kingdom James. Whoa, Kingdom James working uh, HWA. <laughs> yes. Todd Morton over Terrett the Great to retain the HWA Cruiserweight title. I'm sure that was a humdinger. Cody Hawk and Taxi Driver beat Bull Payne and Alexis Machine by disqualification. Oh, I didn't realize Alexis Machine uh, <laughs> went down and did HWA. He was one of those uh, Detroit indie mainstays. Worked for uh, Dan Curtis and uh, and uh, what was the what was this fucking co-promoter's name? I don't even remember. Oh, Art Marshall. Yes, they did the NSWA. Alexis Machine. He's actually the shoot brother of uh, beautiful Brian Fury. Wow, there you go. Didn't know that. Uh, I'm sure Todd Morton and Terrence the Great was a, like I said, a humdinger of a match, Dave. Terrence, a guy who, you know, I'm glad he got his revival in IWM itself, you know, yes. in 2002. And Todd was awesome, you know. Yes. In, in Todd South. was a great heel, and you know, just in that in in the in the time where like Smart Mark Video was just like getting its first real exposure like when wrestling fans were buying the czw and the iwa mid-south tapes regularly and you know they were they were traveling to all the shows to film everything with multiple cameras which was unheard of on the independent scene prior to like 2001 um todd morton you know was one of the few southern style like heels to mix in with people like Chris Hero and Punk and Cabana and Ace Steel and, you know, uh, that whole crew, Nigel McGinnis. So, like, he stood out, but he was, you know, so good. Just a great heel. And granted, he was small and everything, but whatever. Biggest little man know? in wrestling, though. Yes, biggest little man in professional wrestling. Michael Todd Stratton, Todd Morton. Yes. Yeah, I I, um, I watched some Either Miss South the other day, uh, actually from – from February 2002, this is when you were managing Punk. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when Punk was aligned with three bad motherfuckers. <laughs> Full Payne, Todd, and Mitch Strider. Yes. My God. My God. You talk about <laughs> some. Oh, my God. Heat. Woo. Man, yes. it was some heat. That, which show was it I watched? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was January, the January 5th, 2002 show. So that was Ace and Punk in the main event. 
Bullpain and Chris Hero and the False Candida anywhere. That was Smothers Candida on that okay. show. Okay. Road Dog was on that show. Okay. That show, oh my God. If, when, when, <laughs> when, the, when those guys, when they did the angle where they attacked Ian. Oh, before Ian's match was his function. Where mm-hmm. Ian, Ian was just covered in, in blood and he, his blood was like black. <sighs> Holy shit. I mean, you talk about a fucking show that, man. Go. Yeah. Go watch that fucking show for heat. Go, Jesus Christ! Yeah, they were. That was that was a true heel stable. <laughs> oh God! And what that. I loved about Todd Morton in that era, you know, in IWA, is as good as Mitch Ryder and Bull Payne were. Todd was the one who fit best with the newer style guys. He was yes. able yeah, to worker. Yeah, he was able to have something more resembling their match that was still his match where he could still do his Tennessee style, but kind of meld them together. Right. Yeah. Cause bull bull was the brawler. Mitch was the old school Southern chicken shit. And Todd was the worker. Yep. Well, it's a great Todd also Todd also in that era, his style was a lot like his trainer. He worked a lot like Bill Dundee and Bill Dundee's, you know, was also a lot more versatile than he gets credit for. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, other thing I wanted to say too, just like as far as his promos and stuff, I think back. I wonder, I wonder what the people who were buying the show in Morris, Illinois, with uh, that's wait, I forget, is that Punk and Eddie or Punk Eddie and Ray? I think it's Punk Eddie and Ray. Uh, right? Punk and it was Punk and Eddie in Morris. Yeah. Okay, it, it was Indiana, Indianapolis. Was the three way? That, yeah. That's right, because the title changed in the three way, and then it changed back in Eddie yeah. and right. Punk. Yeah, and Morris was Morris was Ace versus Ray in a singles. Yeah, yes, yes. That's and I, I gotta wonder though, what people who never saw IWA before exp- buying this for these Ray and Eddie matches were thinking when they saw <laughs> Todd Morton cut a fifteen minute promo on local college football <laughs> <laughs> and got insane oh. heat for it. Yes, he oh. did. Yes, he did. God, I miss those days of independent wrestling. Oh. Come back. And that was uh, one of the few IWA Mid-South shows in history, let's be honest, that had like 700 people there. And that oh was yeah, that was in a snowstorm. It was there was a blizzard. It took me like, you know, it took me about two and a half to three hours to travel the 15 miles to get to the building from my house. It was it was insane, but it still drew seven. Like if it would have been perfect weather that day, it was wow. at Jim Fannin's old high school. So and it was so like he just he made sure that he promoted it properly. If if there wouldn't have been bad weather, it would have been well over a thousand people there. Yeah. Hell of a show, though. Go watch that post on uh, IWTV. Wherever. Is that why the show doesn't have any commentary or that? I think that was just poor planning more than anything else. I just remember that I was managing punk at the time. So I was a manager on that show and, and, and Jim Fannin was, you know, associated as a promoter of the show. So he probably wasn't readily available Mm. to be doing stuff. And so I think predates also the everyone can sit in on commentary era too. uh, That comes later in the year. It does not. No, it does not. Yeah, yeah, the January fifth, two thousand two show. Hero sits in. Uh, oh, okay. uh, a few people sit in on commentary. Yeah, Dave yeah. sits in. Yeah, like I think I think and like during that period of time, I think that was the only show actually filmed by Smart Mark Video that had no commentary. I believe so. I think yeah. that was that was more of a day of the show. We don't have anybody. Let's just yeah. There's no commentary. Yeah. All right, let's go to 
Memphis, Tennessee, and we go to the torch talking about the mayoral election. The pollsters in Memphis, Tennessee are better than the ones in Minnesota. As the polls predicted, Jerry Lawler finished a distant third in his run for mayor. Incumbent Willie Harrington finished first with about 75,000 votes, 45%. Second place finisher, city council chairman Joe Ford, friend of uh, me, Mr. Corey. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with the Ford family. Uh, drew 41,000 votes, 25%. Lawler eked out a third place finish with 19,000 votes, 12%. Fourth place finisher, former county commissioner Pete Sisson, drew 18,000 votes at 11%. Wouldn't it be Sison if it's like the Calgary guy? No, uh, well, George Tech had a kicker named Scott Sisson, so that's oh. how I remember. Okay, before yeah. we move on, I read this and I'm like, honestly, in this race, the way the percentages went out, I'd much rather be Lawler than the second place guy losing by 20 points. Uh, yeah, exactly. Lawler proved to be a substantial celebrity in Memphis by being taken seriously as a legitimate candidate. Snide comments about him being a pro wrestler were quickly replaced with analysis of his campaign promises. He ran a serious campaign, although it had to be tough for some in Memphis to take him seriously. If they watch him play a horny middle-aged man on Raw every week, gawking at women making juvenile cracks, as heard earlier in the show. Had not been Jesse Ventura, Lawler may have never thought of running for mayor, or if he had, he would have had more trouble being taken seriously. As much as Ventura helped Lawler's campaign be taken seriously, Ventura's controversial conduct and comments since being led to government of Minnesota may have hurt Lawler's campaign. As Lawler went down his campaign by cruising the city of Memphis in a souped-up doom buggy type vehicle, pulling a giant crown, dubbed the Crown Mobile, Ventura was defending himself from criticism being levied at him for his comments in a Playboy interview. More on that later. About religious people, suicide, and the military tailhood scandal. Ventura appeared on the late show with David Letterman on Thursday night. Had been, Lawler won the election that night. He might have been a guest on Letterman and or Jay Leno's show on Friday. Despite all of a sudden the idea that as a pro wrestler and a longtime celebrity, he would appeal to the blacks as well as the whites, he only drew 1% of the black vote, compared with 19% of the white vote. Ventura was credited for last year's much larger than average turnout in Minnesota for the gubernatorial election. It doesn't appear Lawler helped the Memphis turnout. Expectations were that up to 50% of the Memphis voting population would turn out, and still less than 45% did despite perfect weather. As pre-seats closed on Memphis on Thursday, SmackDown went on the air. Imagine the contrast of Lawler cheering on his girlfriend in the mud wrestling match on tape on one channel as he gave a live acceptance speech on another channel. <laughs> yeah, Jerry Lawler talking about Mark Henry having sex with his sister and uh, and doing the here kitty 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 kitty, you know, on on SmackDown while he's being serious mayoral candidate Jerry Lawler on the channels of Memphis. Jesus Christ. But yeah, I mean, this is the Jesse Ventura effect. All these wrestlers were thinking they could run for office. Fucking Hogan and his shit. Ric Flair was, you know, that was talking hey, about. Hey, as long as you can cut a good promo, that's all that matters in politics, right? <laughs> if you're well-spoken. We, well, well, hey, <laughs> Donald Trump proved that, didn't he? Yep, yep. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the power of personality now more than anything else. It really is. And yep. with a lot of people. If you, could, if you could talk them into the building, you got them. And that's what Trump did, and still and still doing today. You know, I mean, it's just if you can work wrestling right. fans, you can work everybody, right? Life is a work. That's, duck the clothesline. So. That's that's right. Yes, that's right. So, big. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're right, Lawler. I mean, that's respectable. Finishing third place in this. I mean, in all actuality, he probably should have been dead last with just a shit percentage. 
But the fact he got that much, I mean, that that should be considered a victory for Lawler. I think so. And then, unfortunately for him, when he runs again several years later, it's a complete joke of a race. Um, wasn't the guy who was sitting next to you during the debate, like, didn't he think he was an alien or something? Well, yeah, I think so. Um, you can see the look on his face during that, like, I had a legitimate campaign last time. (laughs) And then he had what it turned into the next time. Well, you know, if Lawler, if Lawler would have, you know, got more the black vote, he could have got, he could have did better. (laughs) Who knew that would have been a problem with Jerry Lawler, huh? With some of the stuff they did in Memphis over the year. Oh, I know. We th- we know both in real life and on uh, TV. He thinks so highly of uh, black people. <laughs> he should have got me. I could have helped him. But I was I was campaigning for Joe Ford. Over uh, where? Over, over here. Oh, okay. Garbage. All right, let's go to Power Pro Wrestling. Sputnik Monroe, the biggest star in Memphis in the early 60s until the recent WF sellouts in the big buildings. The largest wrestling crowd in Memphis history was a stadium show headlined by Monroe versus Billy Wicks. Appearing on Power Pro TV on October the 9th. The stadium's in town to film a special for A&E on Elvis Presley and Sam Phillips. They announced that Sputnik were referee in the main event later in the evening at the new Daisy Theater, which was Steve Bradley defending the Power Pro title against either Wolfie D or Kurt Angle. Their video of Sin... Stacy Goff in bed with a bald guy screaming about how Brandon Baxter was a real man. He never actually saw if it was Baxter. Insert joke here. <laughs> Randy Hales doing TV announcements since Corey Macklin wasn't there. Yeah, the day off, I was campaigning for Joe Ford. Said that it could have been Baxter, which got Baxter mad and he walked off on him. Later in the show, Dave Brown noted that Baxter let people down for, including his family. And Baxter got hot at Dave Brown as well. Brian Christopher came into the building on a stretcher, claiming he messed up his knee walking his dog, and it could be a career-ending injury. He then had a miraculous recovery, spraying such an in Doug Gilbert's eyes and beating him up. <laughs> Lord. Cornette brought Brian and uh, Music Wrestling-based tag team Andy Anderson and Barry Houston in for his Ohio Valley Wrestling show on October 6th in Louisville Gardens. <sighs> Power Pro's an interesting promotion at this time. You got all kinds of shit going on. You know, because well, it's like halfway between what Power Pro was like a year earlier and a more modern developmental promotion. Yeah, none of this stuff is online, as far as I know. I haven't seen it, but who owns like the Power Pro library? Randy Hales. What? And he just decided he doesn't want to sell or sold some DVDs at times. He's trying to do his own thing with them. At least for now, like, you know, he, but I think he's the only developmental library left standing that they don't have, that they could get, at least. But he, but he's well, the and, he well, and Memphis Championship, too. But. And at this point in time, when they don't have their own network anymore, and they, had, you know, it's just, they sold it to Peacock, like, are they actively trying to acquire Yeah, that's right what now. I was about to bring up. They're probably not yeah. actively looking for libraries anymore. Yeah. It's just the way it is. But I'm just surprised that w- during that time period where they were yeah. trying to buy a bunch of shit, like this is some of the key stuff that you would have Kurt Angle's first matches off. for crying out loud. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kick ass wrestling, the competition to Power Pro. They uh, had their TV uh, on August 8th in Memphis. We have Bill Lewis over Motley Cruz. Barbed wire Bill Lewis. Yes. <laughs> yeah. With sexy Sam Dollar as his manager. 
Lady Dixon with the fabulous rocker beat Tasha. Tasha Simone, I guess. Yes. yes. Christy Love, not from Get Christy Love fame, hosted the Love Zone, interviewed Chip Diver. And Brickhouse Brown and Danny B beat the Outcast, Sonic Youth, and Crash, retaining the kick ass wrestling tag titles. What an odd promotion this was. There's something else. Most of their stuff take place in prison. Not most of. They did a taping well, at a women's prison. That's the one most of the stuff I've watched was at the women's prison. So there you go. All right, here we go. This is the Dave Prezak section of the show. AWA Superstars of Wrestling promoter Dale Gagner ran a show on October 9th in Joliet, Illinois. Oh, let's see who's on this show. Scott Colton beat Eric Freedom. I had no idea Cabana ever worked under his real name uh, outside of like well, extra this was, work. This was some of his earliest stuff. Like he, uh, like the first time I even met him was like three or four months later. It was like January 2000 at one of Carmine's shows where he, like he had just come up with the name Colt Cabana Mm. And like, and it was so late in the late in the game that he decided to use Colt Cabana that like the announcers, uh, the the play by play announcers on the videotape were calling him Scott Colton the whole match, even though the ring announcer and introduced him as Colt Cabana. <laughs> and so they said, "Oh, we have CM Punk here taking on Scott Colton Cabana," <laughs> like with a question mark at the end of it. So like, yeah, this was be- this was before he even like had a gimmick. So yeah. <laughs> This was super early experience right out of wrestling school. And Eric Freedom was a local guy forever. Up in- and he's still still going today. Eric Freedom is absolutely still out there with a box of Fruit Loops. <laughs> then we had Tony Danucci. Oh, over Rock and Randy. <laughs> well, Rock and Randy Gusto. Oh. That's yeah. Rock and Randy Ricci. Oh, no, Randy, Rock and Randy Ricci. Who am I thinking? I'm confusing yes. him with the eight, Randy Gusto from the AWA for some reason. Well, this is AWA, but a different AWA. Uh, so, yeah, two more guys that was locals. Oh, and this third match, uh, CM Punk over Adam Pierce. There you go. Ah, man, throw, throw in Rocky Romero, and we have three of the most powerful people in the wrestling business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those guys aren't doing anything any relevant anymore. No, of course oh. not. They're just working the Joliet Armory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then we have this match. George the Animal Steel over Danny Dominion. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Why not? Danny Dominion, who gets no credit, basically. Um, I mean, he does. Well, should he? Yeah. He yeah. should. Okay, he should because he and Ace were partners in the in the Steel Domain Wrestling School, and they both did train them. But Danny had many of his own personal issues ended up in prison for a while. So that's kind of why everybody puts over ACE more than both ACE and Danny. Yeah, but they, they both did train the guys and Danny was like, Danny was the booker in St. Paul during that whole stretch for when it was St. Paul championship wrestling and then became steel domain wrestling. So it was like Danny definitely did equal amounts in terms of helping the guys at this period of time in setting, lining them up with bookings and teaching them and giving them experience. But he doesn't get the credit that Ace does because Ace is a more well-mannered individual, respectable human being that, I mean, I have nothing against Danny myself personally, but I know that like punk certainly did not agree with a lot of the choices that Danny made in his life. And that's why he doesn't put him over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Danny, Danny has some rough times, but I mean, the times I communicated with Danny years and years ago, he was always cool with me. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, people have 
the people had their issues, but yeah, uh, Ace Steel, uh, yeah, what a guy, what yeah. a guy. One He's of one best. of the one of those few people in wrestling that like, uh, like when when you talk about how there's a, there's very few people in wrestling that are great people outside away from wrestling like the wrestling's full of scumbags but a steel is one of the few decent people <laughs> that you'll find in wrestling uh that's absolutely true yeah i yeah, can't so. th- i can't think of a bad word i've ever heard about ace no no ace is good dude man really good and still uh chugging along as a coach at the performance center yes that's right yes king kong bundy beat giant jonas to retain the awa title sure. jonas the giant <laughs> jonas the giant there you go yes. The he, was another, he was another Steel Domain guy. Yeah. The Patriot. Any idea who this Patriot would have been? Probably Dominion Underhood. Uh, That's over right. Adrian, yes, over Adrian that. Lynch. Adrian Lynch, another guy, longtime local guy in that area, whole area. Heaven and Hell beat the Golden Lion and, and the Iron Sheik to win the <laughs> AWA tag title. So and what the Golden Lion? Golden okay. Lion, who the Chicago guys not so affectionately would refer to as the golden nutsack. <laughs> as in they were comparing him to a nutsack or his nutsack uh, fell out of his trunks uh, on a regular uh, basis? No, he was just, uh, <laughs> it was a ball. It was a nutsack and, and heaven and hell, of course, being who, um, I'm was not it? quite sure. I think that was that Reverend Axel Futures team? No, no, that was Archangel. Him and Archangel Vincent were uh, a team for Carmine. I think Heaven and Hell were like I'm trying to remember their names, like the Twin Turbos, maybe from okay. like from like the Chicago work. They would work like Northern Indiana shows. I might be wrong. That might not be who that is, but yeah, I, I think it, was... I think it might be the Turbos with a different name. Okay. Also, this is the night before Heroes of Wrestling. Yes. So Iron Sheik traversing the country. And Bundy. Fake fake, fake Ganya in Joliet right before being on (laughs) pay-per-view. Yeah, Yeah. Sheiky Bundy and the animal. Yeah, all together. Yes. Now we're having an And Adrian Lynch Lynch here, a working fake patriot. Adrian Lynch would be another fake Golga. (laughs) Like when when Dale Gagner would have a Golga on his shows, (laughs) it was always Adrian Lynch under the mask. So maybe Adrian Lynch was working that show in Virginia. Who knows? Who knows? That's right. Punk was never a Golga. He was almost a Golga. Right. Uh, (laughs) And Ace Steel would be a super dolphin. For Dale yes. Gagner. D-O-L-P-H-I-N, Super yes. Dolphin. Yes, yes. I, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When Punk and Cabana would be under hoods, they would be uh they had like pantyhose over their heads as the the goon squad. That was their uh <laughs> that was their Dale Gagner gimmick. I don't appreciate you stepping over my joke that I was gonna make about asking right. if Heaven and Hell were previously known as Black Sabbath. <laughs> no. All right, let's go to Rolling Out of Xander's All Pro Wrestling. They're in Pacifica, California, for their 100th show on October the 9th. We had a 20-man battle royal won by Christopher Daniels. Then we have Tony Jones over Boom Boom Kamini. Dick Grimes and Sweetie Pie over George Snot and Scott Snot. Hardcore match for the Universal Heavyweight title. Michael Minus beat Shane Dynasty to win the championship. Mayock and Chris Ward over Max Justice and Bison Smith. Boyos LeGrand and Robert Thompson over the Ballard twins, Shane and Shannon, Ballard brothers. And then Chris Fernandez went to a no contest with Donovan Morgan in your main event. So there you go. Oh, Roland and APW. Yeah, Ballard brothers definitely 
at best, the second best team of Shane and Shannon on the indie circuit at this time. <laughs> yes. And now let's talk about Jesse DeBody Ventura, his interview with Playboy magazine. You, Dave says you can't go a day without seeing Jesse Ventura on television. With his latest pub boost coming from his Playboy interview and his statements about religion and pushing for Donald Trump to run for president on the Reform Party ticket. Back to 99, folks. Dave says, I don't want to waste space here commenting on his political beliefs. When asked how he rated himself as a pro wrestler, though, Ventura said he was phenomenal. The name of the game is, how well do you draw? I drew sellouts just about every time. I sold out Master Square Garden three times. I was the Pacific heavyweight champion after nine months in the business. Pacific Northwest. It's nice to know that in politics they consider Ventura honest, Dave said. The only thing Dave can credit him with is that, unlike most politicians, he's not afraid to say things that will be unpopular. I drew self-respect every time. Dave probably saw Ventura wrestle live two dozen times in the Bay Area, most of the AWA, and a few times in the WF. And Dave didn't believe even one of those shows was a sellout, and most were less than half houses. He wrestled many sellout shows for the AWA in Minneapolis and Chicago when Hogan was on fire with a draw card and did OWF during his years there. But the idea that he was a top draw is ridiculous. He was a colorful guy. He was pretty bad in the rain, but was very effective in the tag team nature and Donna's because he's an excellent interview, and his partner was the excellent worker. And they did very well in Portland. He did very well in Portland because he had charisma, and it was an interview-based territory filled with lots of short, blocky men, and he was tall and muscular. But as a draw in AWWF, he was never more than support underneath Hogan or was simply the opponent of the month for Hogan, who drew well in those days against just about everyone, and Ventura was no better than the average draw as a Hogan foe. Hogan drew much better than against Botwinkle, Masaino, Kim Patera, and David Schultz than he did with singles for Ventura. He didn't pay for because of his interviews, but being blonde muscle men, it was a natural program. But for whatever reason, Ventura was no better than anyone else's main event singles draw. Ventura wrestled two MSG main events against Bob Backlund, none of which sold out, although both drew over 15,000 fans. But the crowds were below average for MSG at the time. His third MSG main event was scheduled against Hogan and did sell out, but due to his illness, he didn't wrestle on the show. But again, it was Hogan who really drew the house. He did hold the Pacific Northwest title earning his career, and guys in their first year usually get pushed in those days. But by the standards of the time, he was a huge muscle man, and guys like that have always gotten breaks early. Now that he's not working for WF, he seems to have gone back to his previous release on the business again, saying that pro wrestling is a backward business with no union, no benefits, and saying it's a fraud the government allows the companies to get away with, call for wrestlers independent contractors. When asked about our current stars, Austin, Goldberg, Mankind, Undertaker, he said, I knew Austin in WCW. He was phenomenal talent. Steve Austin was a jewel waiting to be discovered. Vince discovered him when WCW couldn't see it. WCW is just Vince's retreads. Goldberg's really original, and they may lose him. I heard he's very unhappy there. Mankind's a crazy guy. By the time he gets to be 40, he'll be lucky if he's walking. Undertaker's been around a long time now. Good talent. I don't know if he's the original one, though. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And then, we, and then we have this. When oh, he wasn't. About, the, the double trouble was the Exactly. When asked about Sable, he said, Tits and ass will sell. But as far as well, no, he, goes, it appears he actually said T and A. Yeah, well, it's Playboy, so I said Tits and ass. But as far as talent goes, I don't know if she's got any. Women's wrestling can thank silicone. Breast implants are what makes it popular. Before that, I was right up there with the midgets and added attraction. Isn't it scary we got a governor who actually knows wrestling and thinks they changed the guy playing the Undertaker somewhere along the way? Next thing you know, Bill Bradley will say he thinks they changed the Ultimate Warrior years ago when the original <laughs> one died. <laughs> hey, that's what I heard in junior high. So. <laughs> Carry my hair. Um, 
Bill Bradley, of course, being the former New York Nick, who was a senator at the time, who was also uh, talking about running for president. So, oh me, Bix, just your average run the mill Jason Ventura interview, huh? Yeah, pretty much. Good <laughs> lord. Love Steve Austin, though. Yeah, well, he always did. Listen, to, I mean, all you gotta do is listen to him on on commentary. I mean, he was openly like campaigning after the Hollywood Blondes broke up to put them back together on the air, openly campaigning to to put them back together and he'd be their manager. Hmm. Yeah, I just listened to that the other day on the air. So, yeah, that was his favorite tag team. He loved them. There you go, Jesse DeBaventura. Also, why is he being asked... How many months before this was released was he asked about Sable? Since she's out of the company. Uh, I guess they brought it because she was in Playboy, Bix. Oh, that too, yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. Well, parts of her were in Playboy. The other part. Well, is the uh, second one out by this uh, point? Uh, uh, no, the first, this is the first one still, I think. The second one didn't come out yet. Oh, you, you're trying to dance around that they had to add uh, parts on. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, they 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 did total rebuilding of Sable by the the airbrush machine shattered on that issue. What are you talking about? They they the had bolt. to do digitally what uh, that clinic did to Tommy Dreamers. Well, I mean, I mean Playboy at the time was like that. Uh, I mean, you would get these pictures, especially like Centerfold stuff like that, of the Playmates. And it's like they had they had pussies, but they didn't have pussies. Jesus Christ. You know? I mean, you're not seeing any, any you're not seeing anything but like the little landing strip. Oh, That's you, it. You, I get what you're saying. They are positioned in a way where if it was another magazine, you would see a much more graphic shot. But they were basically halfway barbied over. Okay, that's what you were yeah, trying to say. Yeah, yeah. All you see is like the landing strip, because that was you know at the time you you know they still had more had still had the landing strip. There wasn't all of them going bald at this time. But I mean, yeah, I mean that's what you had. It's like wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> this it's is not had at all. It's definitely Ric Flair's best uh, airbrushing work. <laughs> oh, that wasn't enough hair for Rick, but. Um, it, it, it did change as the 2000s went along. And then it got to a point there, and I remember one time, where it got, you know, they were getting close to damn penthouse material as far as uh, how much they were showing. But, yeah. They pulled Play back one, from that pretty quick, though. Yeah, play, yeah oh, now there's hardly any, you know, frontal nudity at all on Playboy, I think. I think it's mainly, like, just topless pictures, except for the Playmates. I think they'll still show some stuff. But, yeah, it's not that... It's changed a lot over the years, but that way. So, there you go. Every, every, decades every, after the pubic wars, as they were dubbed in the media. <laughs> that is a real thing, people. Look it up. Yes. Yeah, so I think we still fight the pubic wars today. So, there you go. All right, let's end now with everyone's favorite world championship wrestling. A sudden unexpected signing of Vince Russo and FRR by WCW, according to Russo, was a result of him seeing a notable future of what would happen if he stayed in WWF. Russo, 38, noted that when WCW added a two-hour thunder to their weekly television schedule, people working in WWF celebrated because they knew it would in the long run benefit the WWF. 
they said the people running the company forgot the lesson WCW should have taught them and what they purported to know before WCW even went into that change by not even thinking before jumping in the UPN deal, which would put similar pressures on their company. Okay, real quick. This is Russo on Iada, or this is Russo just talking to Dave on the phone? Either or, yeah. Okay. Because he was on, I forget, did he do two Iada appearances? One before he started and one after, or? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Right. Right, Russo said he recognized that the very first week on the new schedule that he needed to get out. Because unlike writing a television show producing for a sports franchise, wrestling has no downtime and no offseason to recuperate. While his leaving came as a total shock to everyone, in hindsight, looking at his final column in the Raw magazine, he should have foretold the story where he wrote virtually nothing about wrestling and told about being mentally exhausted, saying his mind had taken the same beating as Mick Foley's body, and talked about how little time he was spending with his family. The split took several weeks to find materialized, the final blow being after six weeks into the new schedule, when he went to Vince McMahon and asked for a raise, to roughly double what he had been making, which would have put his salary well above most, if not all, the vice presidents in the company, and he didn't have such a title. The ability to relocate himself and his family out of Connecticut and wanted the 15-month contract to give him some stability. Employees of the company who don't have on-air roles, generally speaking, aren't under contract in WF. Russo's claimed that despite his protests of the contrary, the problem was WF was still a wrestling company, not a television company. Knowing that unlike any other job on television, if a writer's being given a second show to write, he'd be compensated for it with an entirely new deal for the second show. Russo, even though his workload doubled, wasn't offered a raise. The result was a seven-week period starting in late August of basically working almost 24 hours, seven days a week, with no time for anything in life other than wrestling. Russo said he wanted at least some life out of wrestling and recognized this pace by January he'd be completely burnt out and was even afraid the pace would wind up with him suffering a heart attack at worst or at minimum would burn him out creatively. The product would suffer and he'd take the heat for any inevitable fall. Despite rumors and general belief within the profession, neither Russo nor Ferrari had ever had a contract. It was generally believed that Russo, who probably had publicly spoken more highly of Vince and regularly defended Vince against any and all criticism, and often written very negatively about wrestlers who had left, who will now be working with, and WCW organization in specific, would never leave for the opposition. Russo himself said the removal of Eric Bischoff as head of WCW opened the door in his mind to set the wheels in motion for the move. He said when expressing problems about not spending enough time with his family, he has three kids, that a man responded by telling him he made enough money to hire a nanny. McMahon also told him his money demands were exorbitant, exorbitant, although McMahon did tell Russo he'd get back to him regarding his complaints. Russo said when McMahon made the remark about the nanny, at that point he decided he was done with the company and wouldn't have stayed even if McMahon had offered him triple what he was originally asking for. McMahon, as it turns out, 10 or so days later, didn't agree to the original money and contract demands in the first place, which led to Russo to call J.J. Dillon at WCW for the first time on October the 1st. By the next day, he was in Atlanta negotiating with Bill Bush all day, and a deal was put on the table. Russo signed a deal on October the 3rd. And on his way home, stopping on Philadelphia, called Vince to give him the news at about 10 p.m. that night, as Vince himself was just returning from the pay-per-view show in Birmingham, England, the previous day. McMahon, Russo claimed never believed it was a, wasn't a Ted Turner raid. Russo said he regretted he quit on the phone, but due to how the timing of everyone and everything worked out, there was no other way. He understood why he never got the public credit for the success of Raw, which McMahon took himself, which fueled the success of the promotion in general across the board, figuring McMahon wanted to keep him as a secret. Russo said that when he saw the future, this was the perfect time to leave. WF ratings and business were at their highest level. Pay reviews were flattening, but the rest of the business still at its highest level. The only future he saw was him getting burned out and then being the one to take the blame for the fall and getting replaced anyway. 
Those in WF felt that Russo and Ferrari over the past week have done a masterful job of getting the story out in the media, but were taking far too much credit for the company's turnaround. But there was no denying the hours and the success of what Russo accomplished. The feeling was Ferrari's achievements were totally overplayed. The feeling is that Russo was an instrumental part of the team effort turnaround, but that Ferrari's role in it was minuscule. And always made complaints that Ferrari, since Ferrari only attended television tapings one week a month, as per his agreed upon doing man about his dedication and work rate. The general feeling is that the three keys to the company's turnaround were, not in any specific order, the ineptness of the opposition, which drove viewers back to them, Steve Austin's catching on, and Vincent Mansfield persona playing off Austin's popularity so well. It was noted that McMahon had already hired a new writer, Tom Blancha, recently, who had previously worked with the Conan O'Brien show and grew up as a big fan, and was recruiting other writers. There are numerous angles that Russo Ferrar came up with that McMahon considered too far out. Think about that, folks. And he frequently heavily edited their material to where there was really a week where the formats they came up with weren't heavily redone on Mondays right up to the last minute by Vince to the point new formats virtually every week had to be printed. There's talk that without an editor like my man to keep them in check, then mistakes will hit the air in WCW. Oh, boy, do they. And it's said by those in the company that the United Kingdom preview show on October 2nd, which would have been a complete disaster as it was written, but largely McMahon revamped it, and it turned out to be better than the average pay-per-view show. In recent weeks, Russo's relationship with Austin had deteriorated. Russo himself categorized Austin as the hardest person to work with in the company, feeling that since Austin's popularity skyrocketed after working hard for so many years in the business, that he was definitely afraid his popularity would fall back to the same level just as quickly. The major heat of late was Russo booking Austin in the program to elevate Jeff Jarrett. And Austin's turning it down, feeling such a program with a guy who wasn't over at a main event level would diminish his popularity. Bitman sided with Austin in this dispute. Russo also saw how Austin moved around during some physical television angles and booked him in television matches. For example, in the SmackDown show where Hunter Humsley was worth five times, originally one of the five bouts was to be a death match with Austin. Austin had legitimate torn TCL and was not ready to wrestle, and there was heat because he refused to wrestle until the October 17th pay-per-view show. And as it turned out, did a brawl on the October 11th Georgia Dome show after all. And also because he'd been given time off to go deer hunting in Michigan. Wasn't going to appear on television shows live two weeks before that show and refused to change his plans when asked. All right, before we uh, go forward and all the stuff uh, that's coming up here, um, basically, we talked about this before with Russo and SmackDown. Russo's completely in the right here. Yeah, like we said before, whatever you think of Vince Russo and his work and how good it was, or more realistically, very much wasn't. He was absolutely 110% in the right here. Yeah, I don't he should have arguing with he, it. He should have got paid more. He should have got something. And Vince's nanny line is one of the all-timers. Go hire nanny. I mean... And no one's ever <laughs> disputed, like, Russo. When Russo says bullshit, people who are there usually dispute it. I don't think anyone's ever disputed Russo's version of how he left. No, I mean, this is pretty much to the T... And the thing is, I mean, you totally get it and understand and, you know, agree with him of, of his reasoning of, of doing what he did. And, Dave, this goes to the thing we've always heard about Vince. I mean, Vince wants people that that their life is wrestling. Their life is WWE. And, you know, if you're not willing to commit your life to WWE, then you're not going to be uh, successful in his promotion as a creative entity. Well, that Freddie Prince yeah. Jr. story where he's watching Richard Pryor videos on the plane to unwind, and Vince is like, God damn, pal, why aren't you watching any of our shit? 
And he's like, oh, I'm just trying to relax and laugh, blah, blah, blah. I want to, you know, want to watch something funny. And Vince is like, but we have Santino. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Dave. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I agree. Like if, if you have, I know they, they expect you to be a hundred percent committed to working there and working on the product and f- he basically he had been. I mean, I'd never heard any stories about him not being, you know, on call twenty four hours a day whenever they need you for something. You're there, um, leading up to this. And if suddenly your workload is doubled, yeah, you should be compensated for it. I mean, maybe not double. I mean, if he was asking for double or more than double what he was getting, because um, who knows how much actual additional work there would be involved. There's only so many hours in the week. You just have to divide your time between the two things that you're working on. It's but not like, an unreasonable starting point though. Right. Under but the, circumstances. the fact is you should get an, an increase in pay if there is an increase in workload. Yes. Um, and if, if you're dis, if you feel that you're disrespected in response, like what, the, the nanny comment, I, I understand his point of view and why he would want to leave. So yeah, the guy's got three young kids. I mean, and he's a dad. You want to spend time with your kids, yeah. you know? And yeah, I mean, yeah, he's going to a company which has actually, you know, more television time than, <laughs> than the company he was at. But, but odds are if, once he gets to that other company, he could delegate to other people where he doesn't not, have to spend the time. You know, he's not working for Vince McMahon. Yeah, he's working for essentially himself. Exactly. <laughs> you know, well, that's not, the thing. WCW would be more of like a nine to five, relatively speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. For the present time, television writing for WF will be in the hands of Terry Taylor. Not long. Bruce Pritchard. Bill Banks. Not long. <laughs> not long. And Kevin Kelly. New Japan for wrestling's Kevin Kelly. Uh, Russo's deal in WCW is heavily incentive-based. A raise is involved. We don't have any reliable figures. Other than most figures that have been reported are said to be nowhere close to the accurate. And Russo uh, described the raise as small. But the pay goes up based on television ratings. Yeah, if they go up or pay for you buy race increase. And he's coming at a time when the numbers have hit rock bottom. Fall ball pay review in reality did far worse than it was reported anywhere. Lost slight less than 0.30. Lowest buy rate for any pay-per-view show ever for either WF or WCW. And probably even UFC as well. Russo eventually moving his family to Atlanta, although not right away. And the first TV shows that should really have his and Ferrar's fingerprints involved strongly will likely be Nitro on October 25th from Phoenix. He said the main difference is that in Atlanta, he'd be working as a job where he could take time off to recharge if need be. While working for Vincent Mann, you hand your life over to him. There you go. Ferrar's thought process is similar, and they talked before Russo flew to Atlanta and told him that if Russo get the WCW, that Ferrar indicated to ask uh, if he can get a spot as well. Ferrar was already burned out by the travel schedule of WF from almost his start with the company. After one month in, he nearly quit until McMahon made the agreement with him that he'd only go on the road for one set of tapings each month. The pay-per-view and the two TV tapings on the Monday and Tuesday afterwards. Wow. Yeah, Ferrar had it really easy compared to Brusso, only showing up at, you know, one block of shows a month. Jesus yeah. Christ. Wow. And Russo also freely admits that... Uh, Ferrara helped him know what to negotiate for, making it a pay-or-play contract, that kind of thing. Yeah, Ed, Ed, Ed was valuable in his ways. Was he, you know, a co, you know, with Vince on as far as writing? No. 
But he was valuable in his ways that he did help Russo. Absolutely. Yes. Now, as far as the thing about getting the story out in the media, I did check real quick. Broadcasting and Cable covered it. Uh, let's see. Electronic Media covered it, albeit in the briefly noted section. Um, skimming them as I looked real quick just to see if there's any kind of quotes or anything here. Uh, Media Week covered it as well. And, like, we even have the line in here, like, Russo and Ferrara formed a partnership in 1998 as writers for the WWF and went on to design the organization's programming. Yeah, there you go. Multi-channel news as well, with the headline, WCW Raids WWF for Storyline Writers. Um, Russo and Ferrara, who Bill Bush called, quote, one of the most successful creative partnerships in our industry. Well... I mean, they were really at the time and considered that, you know, I mean, we'll talk more about that as we go along because there's talk about uh, perception. Right. Like, and variety it, too, which, but yeah, this is all over the place. They, I don't know if it's Turner or whatever. They did a very good job getting this out there in the media, especially the trade media. Yeah. In a way that put them over. And you read that part about perception because there's something else I found that's interesting, but. Well, I'm just going to keep going because we're getting there. So a lot more to go. All right. Russo in interviews this past week indicated he worked to elevate Chris Benoit, Buff Bagwell, Ernest Cat Miller, Billy Kim, and Eddie Guerrero. In interviews, he's also submitted Disco Inferno in that category. Oh, sure. Among others. His job gives him authority over writing television and putting together storylines. Management, before Russo was even in the picture, had already decided to face Hulk Hogan out as the focal point of the company and replace him with Bill Goldberg, a change Russo also agreed with, stating he thinks Goldberg could be the biggest thing in wrestling, but has never been pushed correctly. A lot has been made whether Hogan will st- where he will stand in all this, and even friends of his indicate they don't think he'll be long for the company if he's phased to a mid-card level. Hogan's the only wrestler in the- who has career out of control, i.e. the ability to veto any idea presented to him, specifically written to his contract. The plans are for Halloween having the Hogan's final pay-per-view main event, as the November 21st Mayhem in Toronto was to be headlined by Sting versus Bret Hart for the title, which is why WCW manager felt it wasn't the right time for Bret to lose to Chris Benoit, although Vince Russo, when the subject was brought up, seemed to agree with the idea that Benoit winning would have been a better finish because it would have surprised almost everyone in the circumstances. Dave's thoughts on why it would have been better were so much a surprise factor because it would have elevated Benoit in a roundabout way Bret. And Starkey would have Goldberg challenge the winner of Sting and Brett for the title. All plans that were on the table now are out the window. And the feeling from those of in the book committee is that despite the critical success of the October 4th show, which was booked before Russo had signed, that since that point, Kevin Nash is booking with a lamed-up perspective. Oh, he sure was. All right, Russo is now in charge of the finishes for the October 24th Havoc, which will lead to his first TV show on the 25th. He's already changed the company's plans as it relates to the main events for the rest of the year. There are numerous reports of Hogan given notice and was generally believed even within the company the reports are true. Those in the company close to Hogan deny them. Whether they're technically true or not, the word appears to have been leaked up on an internet angle. They started an angle. Yes, this interview was a complete angle. The work the boys on the internet on the October 11th Nitro, which we talked about in the previous show, but it's here, where Hogan looked pissed off, generically fed into the rumors without saying what they were, and Hogan didn't answer the question that wasn't asked. Hogan answered his interview still another building in front of everyone. As luck would have it, came from Bob Ryder, just for leaving, to his credit, according to those who talked with him, questioned whether this was a setup or not, since they regularly done so, done so with both he and Mark Madden to get fake inside stories out, and told him he'd given notice and was fed up, and this might be his last TV taping. 
To the other 95% of the television audience that had no idea about stories leaving, they must have had no clue as to what was going on with that interview. Hogan finished the interview, saying that for all the boys in the back laughing, it become no secret that 8% of the wrestlers in the company wanted Hogan to be gone. To come havoc, he'd had the last laugh on all of them. Russo and WCW Live show played into the angle, hinting that Hogan was uncooperative. This is scheduled to lead to a worksheet angle, the Brian Pillman variety, continuing so Hogan's behind-the-scenes story would be the main item of insider gossip and to keep his name fresh. So I guess that would have been F-U-V-R, Terry Bollea. <laughs> Funny how we're talking about Russo and Hogan doing worksheet interviews here already. I mean, worksheet angles. And does Hogan ever end up appearing at all during the first Russo run? No. That's None. what I thought. No, not any. He comes uh, back on after Russo's gone on the Kevin Sullivan Nitros. Yes. Hence, look at the wall, or excuse me, it's the wall, brother. Yeah. You know the philosophy of putting on a show that doesn't give a viewer a chance to use their clicker? Mostly short matches, rarely a match over seven minutes, and a bing, bing, bing style where no rest holds are used longer than 15 seconds. The show will be more soap opera oriented, the obvious WCW weakness, and a tip to get Turner management and broadcast standards to allow him more latitude in the type of sleazy-based angles that Turner WS rings around. He has spoken in the very recent past of his belief that Mexican wrestlers, particularly those who don't speak English well, and Japanese wrestlers would never get over to mainstream wrestling fans. Oh, I'm sure hiring him will go great for WCW in the ongoing racial discrimination cases. Yeah, Dave, that, that would never happen. The Japanese and Mexican wrestlers getting over U.S. mainstream fans? Just, Wow. Absolutely not. <laughs> Jeez. It's not like you I mean, ever booked anyone from Japan who couldn't speak English who yeah. eventually got over with a mainstream audience. I mean, uh, whatever. I mean, that's just, it's Vince Russo's philosophy that was just, just not true. As well, as time has proven, as yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. He's been through all these jobs here, there, and everywhere. Now, before I move on, real quick, what are your thoughts on the Crash TV concept that Russo's talking about? Don't give the viewer a chance to turn to uh, turn the channel. What are you What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it worked for the rate for ratings wise, right? I mean, during that hot period in WWE, yeah. so like it's true that it worked. Wrestling was hot at the time, but at the same time, it's a wrestling show. I mean, you don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, it, it, he does have a valid valid argument that when he did that style, it worked. But he also had, as as was already said, he had McMahon as as his editor that would tweak things and change things. Uh, and when he didn't have someone overseeing his writing in WCW, as time would prove, it wasn't as good <laughs> and didn't yeah. work quite as well. So exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Ironically, the October 4th night show was considered by many the best episode of the show, perhaps all year. It's also the lowest rated. The other side of the show was not the storylines, but because three matches. Ray and Dean Malenko, Kidman and Hoovy, and especially Benoit and Brett were given ample time to put together great matches. All of which are far longer than Russo's general philosophy of how much time wrestlers should be out there. And two of which involve Mexican-oriented talent. Ray is technically Mexican in heritage. His first stardom in wrestling was in Mexico, but grew up in the United States. Being given time to shine. He's also been very vociferous and controversial with his views that kids today are exposed to so much and are so much smarter and more sophisticated than kids of the same age years ago that WF product was suitable for younger children. A philosophy of WF as a corporation, as a spouse publicly by both Vince Man and Jim Ross of late, publicly wouldn't even go that far with. 
Kim and Hoovy was a ratings flop. While the Brett Benoit match did increase its audience throughout a match many over the past week had dubbed the best American match this year. Dave says he'll reserve comment on that until seeing the unedited version of the match without commercial breaks. As Dave was told, the match comes across significantly better viewed under those conditions. But there's no denying it was one of the most, if not the most memorable American matches of the year. And I saw that version because that was on DirecTV. But it also started out as a very low level and at a very low level and was beaten better than two to one by its competition. He indicated a need for Nitro to move the two hours, which you hope would be from nine to 11, head up a Raw, vacating the first hour, which Nitro usually does its best numbers in. He wanted Nitro to change to a TV 14 label from TVPG, and with that rating, allow more TNA, and spoke of one to recruit more women to play roles. Now, if I remember right, someone smartens him up, and when Nitro's cut to two hours, it's 8 to 10, right? Yes. Well, he wouldn't have been able to have the authority to make that decision anyway. No. But, no, hell no. But obviously, if you're doing it, you keep the unopposed hour. But yeah, I mean, you see what Russo wants here. He wants less of the in-ring wrestling and more of the TNA. Because, and I mean, he's got a valid point here. At that time, that's what was drawing. And that's what he's used to doing. He's not used to putting together a res- a television product where, rest- where the actual in-ring wrestling is the focus, no. which is what set WCW apart from yes. WF. So, yes. like, completely changing their products is not exactly the greatest idea in the world, but whatever. Yeah, and then <laughs> – yeah, but they were kind of rock bottomish here, so – Yeah, I know. They're doing whatever, whatever it takes to turn things around, but right. – what brought WCW to prominence was awesome in-ring, you know. Yeah, well, just amp that up. And then it yeah. turns out, you know, Terry Taylor leaves WWF, calls up J.J. Dillon. J.J. Dillon tells Bill Bush, like, well, the, you know, he has a good wrestling background, booked for Bill Watts. And, you know, I'm sure he'd be a good counterbalance to Russo, only to find out that Taylor and Russo had become great friends in the WWF and that Terry Taylor's wrestling philosophy had completely changed and was very focused on there being a lot of TNA in the programming. Yes, I know you're all shocked to hear (laughs) that Terry Taylor was a major proponent in that era of more scantily clad women on TV. I wonder why that is. Especially when uh, Christina Laum. (laughs) Who shows up in WCW right after him. Exactly. Amazing. After how, after supposedly, you know, as we talked about earlier in the show, getting a lift from WWF while he's there. Funny how that works. He also wanted Thunder cut back to an hour and was up in the air regarding the Saturday night show, figuring it could be used as a way to expose younger wrestlers and give them time to learn how to cut interviews. None of the change has been approved at this point, although there is a current plan to move Thunder in January to Wednesday nights, and for the shows to be taped weekly as opposed to bi-weekly, one day ahead of time. So the stars that appear on Nitro will be kept on the road another day for Thunder, rather go home and make Thunder a secondary show when it came to Star Powers has been, and its ratings suffered greatly, being about half of what they were one year ago. I like also how at this point no one has figured out that having every other Thunder be completely lame duck is a terrible idea. Yeah, as we're going to talk about later on Thunder, it was so lame duck that nobody even did a recap for it. All right, cutting back on television time is a mixed economic bag. If WCW were to this week cut back from five primetime hours to three, their ad revenue, a prime source of income, particularly with a huge decline in pay-per-view buy rates and lesser decline in house show revenue, would at first take an additional 40% hit. 
With the company already in financial disarray, it'd be a short-term disaster and require a huge increase in ratings over the long haul to make up for the cutback in time. The current form is clearly a losing battle as ratings haven't settled in to a low level, and in fact, they're still falling. But for the most part, that's also an industry-wide pattern. Based on overexposure, and it's how much one company voluntarily cutting back will change that industry-wide problem. Of course, if things continue unabated, ultimately the ratings will get to a low enough level. If they aren't already on Thursday, TBS, TNT, and Spit Wrestling shows in primetime do 3.5 ratings, and Thunder's barely doing half that now, and the only hour which it does, it's on the post first-hour Nitro, to where outside forces at the station would order a cutback anyway. So, yeah, that's coming. And they only end up cutting the one hour from Nitro, though they don't cut anything from Thunder or Saturday Night. Yeah. And how about Russo? It's not clear if he'd want to be involved at this time, and he doesn't end up being. It ends up being Jimmy Hart. Russo seems to, though, be into the idea of Saturday Night essentially being what it became, even though he didn't have any direct involvement with it. Well, it made perfect sense. All of this makes perfect sense, like, with the exception of like the 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 ad revenue cutting. You know the you know it's they had to get leading to leading to a forty percent hit when you make these changes. Like from an actual like well, it would have been forty percent from a standpoint of of producing producing wrestling content for people to watch and keeping everything interesting and and everything. This sounds great. Like, yes, you should cut Thunder to only an hour. Yes, you should change Saturday night to a show where you're teaching guys to do interviews. Like, all these things sound good, but, yeah, it, it, it... Money-wise, it doesn't make sense. But like from a producing quality TV and not having like hours and hours of disposable content, then yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And he wouldn't have to be responsible for producing all of this himself. No. Necessarily, so. No, not at all. Richard said he constantly stressed the need for new talent to fit in the mix when SmackDown started because he barely had enough talent to fill a two-hour Raw. And Russo was strong, larger behind getting people with easier backgrounds like Stevie Richards, Blue Meanie, Dudley's Tads come in and claim he strongly pushed for getting Chris Jericho in. After Paul White signed the recruiting of Jericho, which panned out, and Benoit, which didn't, were the two biggest talent recruitment goals of the company this year. He said the idea was to push Vincent Mann so strongly after the 1997 Survivor Series and later Shane and Stephanie was because companies so greatly lacked in talent depth. And subsequently has added little, very little depth while adding two new hours program per week and felt he was going to a company with far greater talent overall. And you know what? Some of the problem is Austin only specifically wanting to work with two or three guys all, all the time. Yes. He's not wrong, though. Like, one of the reasons he starts as, like, the A-minus show instead of the B show is that they don't really have a lot of variety, and it's the same people on every show. And and it's interesting to hear that that's the reason why the McMahons are used as television characters, because they didn't have depth. That's interesting. Very interesting. And think about it. like that, Any kind of deep WWF roster really doesn't happen until the brand split, well, the WCW purchase, and then also the brand split and bringing up the, you know, the initial people like Lesnar from that generation of developmental. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But yeah. All right. To torch now and their thoughts on this. Some allies of Russo and WWE McMahon should have stood up for Russo when Austin faulted the fall plans. Russo had drawn up for him, feuding with Jared and later Billy Gunn. Friends of Russo say Russo is extremely frustrated with having to change plans. 
of the Russo public and downplay the situation, saying the top wrestlers will always get their way when push comes to shove. Russo, though, may have a short fuse to resolve the Austin situation if Hogan flexes his political muscles early on. But we'll have that later. Um, the Austin Jarrett thing is interesting to me. Um, Austin not feeling that Jeff was right. I mean, Jeff was, as we talked about earlier in this show, in which you weren't part of that segment, Dave. We talked about how great Jeff was the heel here. I thought I think Austin Jarrett feud in this era would have been really damn good. I think and it and it would be a good way to elevate Jarrett. And I, and I guess if if Austin's mentality at the time was Jarrett isn't on his level, it would be a step down, whatever, and that's why he didn't want to do it. Yeah, but if if the top guys don't work with some of the lower guys, you don't elevate anybody new. And Jeff Jarrett was a quality talent, you know, prove you know in ring as a personality, everything. That like, I mean, think about Steve, what Steve Austin was in WCW several years earlier and how he could have used the rub of working with the top guys in that early WCW run to get him to the next level. He could have done the same thing to elevate Jarrett at the time, but chose not to, you know, I don't know. I'm, I kind of, as weird as, it may, is- as weird as it may sound, I kind of side with Vince Russo on a lot of these things that we're talking about. Well, well, I mean, it's funny. It's, it's funny because Austin was all with that ECW interview, that famous one about Hogan and then not not uh, elevating him and stuff like that. And he's the one that's doing it years later. Right. Yeah. He basically just wants to work with uh, with Kane, Undertaker, Foley and Rock. Yeah. Like and the only the only way you can create new stars is when when the top talent gives them gives them the rub and Exactly. You know, exactly. any of the joke, you know, the joke, 316, the number of times that Austin and Undertaker main invented a pay-per-view in the last 12 months or whatever. It, he needed to have like a side drain, like even just a month long B-show program with someone just to freshen things up. And he never did. No. Right. I'm OK. Let's just go back real quick through our heads because, OK, he did not work September pay-per-view. So SummerSlam, he worked uh, fully in Triple H month before was Undertaker. Month before that was Shane and Vince. Month before that was Undertaker. Before that Rock, before that Rock. And yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean you'd have to go back to 98 more Undertaker. Just watch Rush Yeah. Yeah. Like he he would it would have been like one month Work a little TV program with Jarrett that builds to a one-off pay-per-view. What's the harm? The the one the, the last non-guy of that group he worked was Michaels when he beat him for the title. So pretty yeah. much. All right. So Russo Ferrara appeared on the WCW Live uh, the uh, show. No, 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 no. He's his... talking about the uh, IRC chat. Oh, oh, that's right. The website chat. Show up the chemistry they have with each other. When asked by a WCW fan how much leeway WCW would give them with controversial storylines, Russo said, we'll have to wait and see. Ed added, we haven't really had the opportunity to piss anybody off yet, but I'm sure that happens soon enough. Russo earlier enjoyed the biggest obstacles they've faced in WCW is network censors. <laughs> when asked how long they've been booking together, Ferraro said, 14 months. They quickly added, and we're getting married in May. We're still fighting over who has to wear the gown. Russo said that he and Ed spent many Thursday afternoons thinking about what we could do if we got our hands on WCW. Regarding the scope of the problems at WCW, Russo said, basically, I think it's a situation at WCW where it needs to be broken down and we need to start from square one. They agreed it would take about six months to see any movement in the ratings. 
but only a matter of a few weeks after Halloween Havoc 4 changes need to be began to be visible. Russo added, I would say I guarantee you the fun is about to start at WCW. Business is about to pick up. So, there you go. You know what, uh, you know what yeah. this feeling I get from this? How much different things look if Russo is just a competent version of himself? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Especially since, first of all, like having control of the finishes was one thing. They shouldn't have started them with the pay per view. No, because they end it up with, they end up weak. they end up formatting and booking that whole pay per view, not just the finishes. Yes. And no, you should start with the next night's TV. And if it was Russo who was had someone holding his hand or a better Russo or whatever, he would realize I need to ramp up into doing my style of show instead of just straight up one week the switch is flipped and we have evening out matches. But see, the thing, the thing with Russo, too, is once he started feeling any type of blowback, he immediately, you know, he went full, Double you know, one hundred, yeah. full 100, you know, like the, uh, you're clenching his fist and he's going to go, fuck yes. I'm going to go, you know, hard now. Instead of trying to work with them and trying to, you know, come to some type of compromise or happy medium, he immediately wanted to go in the other direction. That's one of Russo's main problems. It's what happens when he's not answering to someone anymore. Exactly. Yeah. He pouts and he like goes the other way. All right. Other notes from the chat. Russo said Billy Kidman's the most promising in wrestling WCW. Russo spoke against the Mexican wrestler WCW while he was at WF. Ferrar said the Mexican wrestlers will get a push as long as they can speak English and cut a promo. <laughs> there you go. Ferrar also said they want to resurrect the hardcore division. When asked if Goldberg can carry the torch of WCW, Ferrar said absolutely, without question, unequivocally, yes. They don't plan to have on air roll, but backstage cameras might catch them periodically doing their jobs. That will change. Russo said Miss McFoley, the Raw Triple H China, and Jeff Jarrett the most. Well, he'll be seeing Jeff soon. Ferrar said he agreed with Russo's list, but added Xbox, Kane, D'Lo, and Hardcore Holly. Ferrar said there are a few people that I won't miss. There are a few, but very few. Russo said one of their biggest stories in WF was turning Rock Hill Survivor Series last year. Ross said one of his favorite storylines too missed the ongoing relationship between X-Pac and Kane. There you go there. Isn't it interesting then that they blow up that storyline out of nowhere right after this? There you go. It was Ferrara's baby, I guess. I guess so. Um, huh. Yeah. All right, Bill Bush's first public statement regarding any matter since taking on the reins of WCW regarding the acquisitions of Russo and Ferrara. This and Anna formed one of the most successful creative partnerships in our industry. Bush said in a prepared statement issued by WCW. There you go, Bix. They're immensely talented writers and producers. Teaming them with the peerless WCW talent lineup, peerless, and our existing staff of writers will further strengthen one of the most successful entertainment brands in television. We are proud to welcome them to our ring. It's just me. There's like, that's really fucking weird that like you're issuing public statements about who's writing your TV show. Like, I don't know. Like maybe this is just too old school of a thought, but why is so much attention being given to publicly making statements this and having them do the public, public inter- internet chats and shit like that where like, it's the guys behind the scenes. Like, shouldn't you be talking about who's in the main event of your next show and who's challenging for a title and what's going on and it, on, it, on the actual show? Like, can't, shouldn't you be focused on the wrestlers? Like, why is so much attention being given to who's writing the show? Like, welcome to the I think that, that's just so backwards. It's the internet age now, Dave. I mean, I know. this is the this, this shit that people. This is the shit that people were talking about at that time. I mean, people. I mean, that's. 
this, you're right. This, this, this stuff wasn't like that, except in the newsletters. You knew who was writing or booking or whatever. But this is the beginning of the internet news sites and message boards and all that shit flaring up. We now know who is writing the television and all this other stuff. And but it's like such oh, a small percentage of the au- total audience that actually pays attention to that shit. Like, well, the and then people they start that, bringing the, it up on TV, which makes no sense. Why? Why does this sports really, show was, have writers? It was equally ridiculous to actually be putting them on TV. So well, I, it's like, well, I don't even mean putting them on TV. I mean talking about the new writers on TV. Yeah, yeah. In those exactly. times. I mean, it's them trying to go in this new way. I mean, that's what Russo was seeing, this new yeah. world of wrestling where this shit's important. And, I mean, good Lord, look how much wrestling over the past 20-plus years now has booked towards the Internet and not towards the wide-ranging fan base. But the most successful stuff has always been about, you know, you write storylines for the to produce a television show that people are watching. You don't have the show recognizing and acknowledging who's writing it. Like, yes, I, I imagine any it. other television show where the characters on the television show are talking about the writers. Now, from, the, <laughs> yeah, from I, that perspective and the WCW perspective, I agree. From yeah. Russo and Perrara's perspective for self-preservation, it's absolutely right for them to push this out into the public like this well, yeah, especially absolutely. knowing that Vince already didn't like giving credit McMahon and that this would further embolden Vince not wanting to give people credit so they wouldn't be lured away yeah and um, the only good the only good thing to come of this is to strengthen their you know their standing in wrestling and ability to have a job because they put they're putting themselves over on TV yeah. as writers other than that, it serves like no purpose in terms of creating a quality, entertaining television show to watch. Now, speaking of putting themselves over, I found something interesting. I completely forgot that this was pre-WCW, okay? So July 27th, Business Wire, uh, press release. Vince Russo, head creative writer of the WWF, signs with the Greenblatt Janelari Studio to develop a primetime series that takes an inside look at the wrestling world. And this is not long, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Los Angeles, Entertainment Wire, July 27th, 1999. The Greenblatt Janelari Studio has signed Vince Russo, the head writer of the creative team of the WWF, World Wrestling Federation, to develop a primetime series. Born out of his many years working in and around the world of professional wrestling, Russo will give fans an insider's look at the professional wrestling world like they have never seen before. I wonder if it would have featured Duffy Championship Wrestling. Anyway, as the appetite for wrestling on network television continues to grow, we are thrilled to have the man who is largely responsible for the creative success of television's predominant wrestling attractions, said Teresa Eady, executive vice president of the studio. I'm not reading the whole name again. Who's responsible for bringing Russo to the studio. So here we go. Late July. He is having people put it out there. He is the one who is, quote-unquote, largely responsible. Russo, who is known for creating many of the WWF's most popular characters, was, uh, excuse me, has been with WWF for more than five years and contributed immensely to the WWF's incredible rise in success and popularity. He also writes two monthly columns called The Bite and The Bite Uncensored for WWF Magazine and WWF Raw, respectively. An avid wrestling fan who grew up recognizing wrestling more for its entertainment than its sport. Russo began his career with his own syndicated radio show. Syndicated radio show? Really? Vicious Vincent's World of Wrestling. Russo's radio show 
caught the attention of the WWF, who later hired him as a freelance writer for their official magazine. He later became the magazine's editor and editor-in-chief before they enlisted his talents for television. That's one way to tell that story and not, I was investing in a radio show that was exposing their whole um, scandal thing, and they bought me off, more or less. But how about that? Months earlier, though, he's getting this pushed out so hard. Yeah, I mean, he's tired of sitting in the shadows. Well, you know what? When does the stock prospectus come out? Probably would have been around late July, right? I don't know. That they would have been putting it together. Well, because the the IPO is within a few weeks of the week we're doing. Because Russo has later claimed that something else that really bothered him was that when he saw the prospectus and, like, the... You know, the flip, you know, the shiny like pamphlets and stuff for the IPO that he was pissed off that he wasn't mentioned at all. And J.R. was, which, as Bruce Pritchard would point out when he was, I think, when Conrad read from Russo's book on their show about Russo, Bruce was like, and this is one of those times Bruce has a good point. J.R. is an officer of the company. You're not. But... It wouldn't shock me if the timing is related, and that's why he's trying to get out there, do other stuff, and get his name out more. Yeah, it's possible. Because also what happens, you know, several weeks before he joins WCW, too, is the, you know, emailing Ben Miller, offering to do the interview for WrestleLine as well. Yeah. All right, well, let's go to non-Russo stuff. Thunder, taped on September 27th, Chattanooga, saw Dima Link over Blitzkrieg, subbing for Hoobie, who arrived late for the show. And this was the opener at the house shows. Also, Dis- isn't this Blitzkrieg's last WCW match, maybe? Yes. Disco in front over Evan Courageous. Brad Armstrong over Chris Adams. Jeff Torberg over Rob Kellum. Not sure what names these two went by because the ring announcement wasn't audible. Also, it's in the Dale Torberg. Jeff is his dad. I know it. Uh, Chris Benoit beat Brian Knobs in a good brawl. Last year over Silver King. And Ray and Kim and beat Zorley Conduct, and Sid pinned Stevie Ray. Needless to say, after this night ended, there was a lot of frustration that nothing was changing. Well, they haven't... They haven't taken over yet. They haven't I taken know. over yet. Well, here's the thing. It was taped on September 27th. Russo doesn't have his first meeting until October the 1st. Yeah, wait a second. Yeah. That, what? what is I it? think so they were... That about, sentence makes no sense. <laughs> I think they were thinking about... Maybe the Nash regime or something that there wasn't going to be a change in writing. You know, I think that's oh, what they're thinking. Okay. Yeah. Also, yeah. if I remember right, these lame duck thunders had a bunch of really good disorderly conduct matches. Yeah, there's not there's nothing really a note thunder wise. Just bad some bad wrestling. Sid well, Ray was not good. I remember people really liking Benoit Knobs though, too. Torch Torch even do a recap of this show. <laughs> Torch in fact wasn't even recapping Thunder in this era. Dave only would recap the live shows and put the results in for the tape shows. So, yeah, it was Thunder was on on the very low level at this point in time. All right, to the torch. Where Kevin Nash got hauled back as the outsiders. His expectation with WCW is that Nash's on-air character will oh, be reinvigorated. Something. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Uh, will be reinvigorated with Hall next to him since Hall feeds him so many of his good one-liners. And keeps it from straying off the topic at hand, such as promoting his next match and getting over the current feud. Yeah, they reunite with Russo uh, form, and boy, what a segment that was. <laughs> the reunion. Oh, man. The largest. 
the largest set of breasts to ever appear on a wrestling television show that night. <laughs> and then, of course, Nash becomes uh, Hall's promoter and manager. And Yes, yes. Sting's want to be turned back babyface already. Yeah, because that heel turn works so well. Yes, and then he turns babyface and turns back heel again. Yes. Bob Mould, the newcomer of the booking committee, is a longtime wrestling fan out of New York who's very well known in the underground rock scene, the cult favorite songwriter and performer in independent college rock. Said to be a big fan of Japanese wrestling. Since when is Bob Mould not from Minnesota? <laughs> New York, Minnesota, they're all the same, I guess. Yeah, as we all know, all punk-related music comes from New York and New York only. ICP this week is claiming they've signed with WCW and they're booked at upcoming shows. Oh, no, excuse me. He's originally from wherever Malone, New York is. Okay. But he's best known Dave. for Twin Cities. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Dave, you you were, uh, you were working around with ICP. What, what about them in the wrestling business? How, uh, what, what were your opinions on them? Um, I don't... Like, I think that they did a lot to help every place that they were in at the time, like, especially on the smaller level. Like there was a period of time where they would just randomly show up at indie shows. Uh, Like if they were on tour in a town and there was an indie show nearby and a couple of their friends were on it, they'd offer to just go to the show and work the show uh, for free or just for, you know, a cheap low indie payday because they wanted to go and make an appearance. And they'd like announce it to their fans on like one of the, you know, just like they had those free wrestling hotlines in Detroit, there was an ICP hotline. They just get word out to their fan base. We're going to be at this show. And they did like they showed up for Carmine Despirito one time unannounced to the wrestling fans. But like they announced it to the ICP fans like the day before. And suddenly the show had an additional 200 fans show up that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And they did that for Ian, too, at the first uh the first official Ted, or I guess it was a Sweet Science 16 at the time. It was before the Ted. It was called the Ted Petty Invitational. Uh, I think it was 2001, uh, where they just like a week on a week's notice they showed up and they were a part of the shows, um, and they just did it because they were big wrestling fans and they had done indies previously in Detroit, and so like that was a helpful thing for the indies, and like. I mean, maybe it didn't help a whole lot to be, you know, when they popped up on WWF and WCW programming, but like they, they showed up in ECW and it got their fans into wrestling. Even if maybe they weren't big wrestling fans to begin with, it it drew that ICP fan base to tune into the television show or show up at the arenas. And, you know, maybe they weren't the greatest wrestlers ever, but they did learn to do a few cool high spots here and there. And like, I don't know. Like they aren't they weren't the greatest greatest things in the world, the greatest athletes in the world, but they contributed their part uh to to helping put new eyeballs on the wrestling products when they did show up. So Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh back to the tour. Several wrestlers complain about losing money because management insists on booking and taking a cut of their autograph sessions. The wrestlers contend if management would let them book their own appearances, their fees could be just one third of what WCW has been charging. And Russ will be making the same amount of money. The Russell said they are losing dates at WF, which charges considerably less for appearance fees. Man. <laughs> Taking a cut from their autograph sessions. Jesus Christ. There is, oh. I don't know if I have it isolated, there is a memo that's in the racial discrimination lawsuits about this, about how the wrestlers need to 
do any appearances through the office now. Yeah. So among the names now confirmed being dropped in their contracts were Eric Watts, Horace Hogan, Scott Norton, Mike Enos, Chad Fortune, Barry Darso, and Barry Horowitz. All have been invited to stay with the company on five hundred dollars per match guarantees. Jimmy Hart was able to save this early conduct contract by convincing manager they were getting two teams at once because they worked at the Texas Hangman under the mask for the same low price. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Also, it's during our week, I think, but it's not reported yet that they start releasing some of the luchadors because I did find this <clears throat> because this I did have this isolated. Um, there is an email that Diana Myers sends out to, I guess, someone else in legal, Georgia Davidson, saying, and this is a great thing to put in a work email, which Mexicans have we released by already sending letters? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. yeah. And the list <sighs> that she is given back by Georgia Davidson is Damian uh, Art Spider Flores, uh, Power Plant Wrestler or, or Trainee, whatever, Marcial Davis, uh, Cyclope slash Halloween and Super Calo. And when this comes up in the lawsuit in Diana Meyer's deposition, like, what do you mean by which Mexicans have we released by already sending out letters? And she's like, oh, there was a problem with a lot of them getting the mail. So they all had to get it from the Central Wrestling Office in Mexico City or whatever. Okay, yeah, that that's a decent enough excuse if there aren't two different American-born, American resident wrestlers on that list. Yeah. Yeah. It's WCW. Dale Torborg, Torborg, Russell on Thunder, is the MVP, standing for most violent player, but maybe given a new gimmick. That oh, I'll say it, Will. Yeah. <laughs> the demon. Well, no. Well, wait. When is the pit crew match where he blows out his knee, though? I don't know. I forget if this is... I forget if his initial debut is... That had to have been earlier than this. I think... Way earlier than this. Way earlier than this. Because it was... It was who was it? Him and Eric Watts? Yeah, Eric Watts is gone. So... Is Eric yeah, Watts completely that... gone from the company at this time? No, but he does like TV jobs. Okay. It's on a contract. But was anyway. he on a contract when that... Yeah, I don't know. All right, Mongo Benwaku, nobody's seen hide or hair of in months, is living in Florida and recently went knee surgery. Scott Steiner, whose career appeared to be in jeopardy due to chronic back problems, supposed to be solved his back pain with surgery. He was going to go surgery this month and then missed six weeks of in-ring action, but then expected to be ready to return to the ring at that point. Surgery is supposed to provide him instant relief from constant pain he's been in. The surgeon assumed the info quarterback Steve McNair underwent. McNair returned to playing after the surgery. And then would lead Titans to the Super Bowl that year. And Scott just doesn't get surgery, if I remember right, and this leads to his issues getting worse. Yes. Hulk Hogan had aligned himself with Steiner at one point last year. Some saw it as Hogan wanting to have a tough, loose cannon such as Steiner on his side to discourage others, such as Nash, who was a bitter rival at that time, from even thinking of getting rough with him in the ring. Hogan, though, in recent months, has distanced himself from Scott Steiner. In the process, lost Steiner as an ally. Steiner began telling people it was crazy that WCW continued to push Hogan since they were losing ratings by such a large margin. Vince Russo was an advocate of WCW trying to lure Steiner away from WCW, so Steiner may benefit from the hiring of Russo. Well, this all happens well, a lot. Yeah, he sure does. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and I just checked. I, I don't know why I thought Eric Watts. It was Kendall Wyndham, and it was a year before this. Uh, that's what I thought. Gene Oakland had resigned, so there's that. They're attending to move to Undertaker's every Tuesday. We talk about that to December. 
The change is changing to Wednesday, do live shows. So it's not a done deal. Lenny and Lodi's characters were dropped because of a letter from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Glad. Glad Entertainment Media Director Scott Sealman wrote to TNT President Brad Siegel that the character of Lenny is presented with the intention to incite the crowd to the most base homophobic behavior. Sealman wrote in his first letter about Lenny and Lodi in September, and he was immediately called by a Turner executive who told him the character would be dropped and his standards of practices had hired an executive whose job it would be to keep an eye on WCW. Two weeks later, Lenny was back on Nitro and glad fired off another letter to Terry Tingle, the head of standards of practices at Turner. How many gay bashings and gay murders have been committed in this country for you to remove such hurtful portrayals from your broadcast? Shulman wrote in his second letter. I understand the intent, but isn't that just a little overboard? Well, this is a wrestling television show. Remember, we're less than a year removed from Matthew Shepard's murder, though, at this time. I know, but Lenny, but Lenny I mean, what, was Lenny doing anything that <laughs> that would cause that type of reaction? They were, I mean, but they were getting the F-word chants and stuff. Well, Dave, how many times have you been tra- chanting the F-word at a wrestling show? I mean, yeah, in this <laughs> in this era, it was happening all the time. But at the same time, you are working for Turner, and you need to <laughs> you need to make sure that your content is not going to yeah. get you heat with, <laughs> with anybody. Know. You know? know, like it's not it's not it's not the eighties anymore, and it's not and and you do have to answer to things like this. And they just hired Vince Russo. Who's going to, you know, who wants to be controversial. So he'd probably go even further into it, you know, as, as we would see, you know, eventually in TNA and everything. I mean, I understand the intent and I agree with them. I agree with the intent, but it's just like, it's just like murders and stuff. And yeah. And you're well, and also I just looked at uh, one of the trials in the Shepard case is ongoing at the time. Well, okay. Well, I guess, you know, hey, capitalize on that, you know, the use in this. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. And then there's this to close out. Minority wrestlers took note that Bill Bush during his first days as WCW vice president was accompanied by the head of human relations who was black. I believe that is uh, Michelle Baines. Bischoff was criticized in August for his handling of a racist joke that was mistakenly sent through WCW's email system, which led to racial tensions in the office in recent weeks. Oh, God, do I have to pull out the... Well, no, excuse me. Those were two separate incidents, right? The quote-unquote Chinese menu was placed on a bulletin board at the office, wasn't it? Yeah, that was an email. Yes. I don't know if we ever found out what the email was, did we? No. But... It It wasn't in the thing. No. Um, we've read the Chinese menu on this show before, haven't we? Yeah. It's not good. No, it's not. Um, they... I don't understand... Well, no, wait, I do understand. The only reason they, it doesn't seem like they're nipping this in the bud is people at Turner who were worried that this lawsuit will lead to people finding out that Turner Broadcasting is not a utopia of tolerance and all that. Well, it's going to get worse. Right, no, but I'm saying because it's WCW, they settle everything. Yeah. You know, they're the opposite of WWF. Yeah, exactly. It means a lot when they they don't settle as opposed to when they do. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that is it for this week. Dave, it's plug time. So plug away whatever future appearances you got and Shimmer and all that good stuff. MLW, well, GCW. Yes. All that good stuff. Uh, but Shimmer, for the first time, we've had an opportunity to go back to our home base, the Berwyn Eagles Club. And it will have been just under two years since the last time we ran because wow. we had shows scheduled for March 2020 that were postponed well, due to the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, we postponed due to the pandemic. And then, uh, you know, just Illinois was not as open to allowing wrestling events to happen later that year. So, like, we did run later in the year as part of the in Indianapolis as part of the collective. But we haven't been back at the Eagles Club until it's going to happen on Halloween. We're running uh, on Sunday, an event at noon, an event at 4 p.m. Um Mercedes Martinez has been released from her WWE deal, so she is available, so she'll be back. You know, she was one of those founding members of Shimmer back 16 years ago when we ran our first show in November of 2005, and she will be on the on the card. Um, you know, it's trying to get back in the swing of things here in 2021 and uh, present some live women's wrestling for the fans in Chicago. So shimmerwrestling.com tickets to those events and uh, uh, by the time that you hear this uh, GCW will have presented a big weekend of shows in Atlantic City but of course those will be available on demand on fight uh, including the big John Moxley versus Nick Gage match um, and a whole lot more um, so check out fight TV for GCW I'm doing not all of their shows but as many as I'd like to I'm kind of I've been battling some health issues lately so I'm not traveling every single weekend but uh for the bigger sh bigger and more important shows that i can make uh i've been doing some commentary there as well as with lenny leonard and, and uh kevin gill on those shows so uh gcw i've also been uh been working as an agent for mlw and uh, uh handling a lot of their women's division and getting a lot of the shimmer women some vital television experience uh, appearing on those shows and we just did a big TV taping in Philadelphia and the next one is coming up at the ECW former ECW arena, the 2300 arena on November 6th uh, and tickets for that are available at MLW2300.com um, and I'm still doing Black Label Pro I think they're going to be coming back to uh, Crown Point, Indiana uh, I think late November sometime I don't think that they've necessarily announced a return date yet, but I'm still a part of their events as well. So, uh, you know, follow GCW and Black Label and MLW. I'm trying to stay as busy as possible uh, on the independent scene, uh, trying to stay out there as much as I can after being involved in wrestling for almost 26 years now. Yeah, and uh, God, and like I said, it's so great that you and Lenny reunited. Just... Uh, yeah, he's the best. He's the best. Like, like I said, it, the greatest it, in any wrestling announced team ever. It's a crime that he's not, you know, uh, hosting a weekly wrestling television show Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. So. Yes. Love Lenny and uh, love you together. Absolutely. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, it's time to go back to the 80s again. 1985. And we will be joined by, yes, our dear friend, the King of Kings Sport, Bo James. As we discuss uh, in World Wrestling Federation, we have uh, Barry Wyndham's status in the company. We'll talk about that. Plus, uh, WF wants to invade Japan. It's that 
at the time that you know when we get to this era where just by every show we do is WF Japan news, so we'll have that. We got a lot of the AWA, uh, interesting AWA stuff, uh, including uh, <laughs> some interesting attendances on shows, some interesting people promoting these shows. Mad Dog Bashan working an AWA affiliate show while under WF contract. So we got a lot of interesting stuff there. We got uh, the aftermath of the Cotton Bowl and World Class and Dave's thoughts on Chris and Gina wearing the mask. And we got uh, we got Mid-South. We got uh, all kind of stuff. We got a big injury angle and, fl- and Continental to talk about. We got the debut of Lex Lugar on television in Championship Wrestling in Florida. We got a promotional war in Puerto Rico, but not the one you would be thinking of. We got uh, Stampede Wrestling, who is still freshly back. We got a big retirement in Japan. We got uh, WF fucking with New Japan. Talk about that. We got uh, All Japan running a big show at Cork and Hall, doing a big TV rating at Jim Crow Promotions. We got uh, all kind of stuff there, including the Rock and Roll Express, losing the tag team titles to the Russians. And Dave's thoughts on, early thoughts on what's going to happen to Star K85. But... The big story of our week takes place in Memphis, Tennessee, as we have one of the wildest episodes of wrestling television ever in Memphis, as Bill Dundee turns heel on Jerry Lawler. And what a uh, what a clip that will be. We have a that's gonna be a long one, folks. So be ready for that one. Next week on Between the Sheets. And I all apologize right. to Bo James in advance for all the f bombs I may have dropped on this week's Between the Sheets. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know. You, I'll drop more than you did. So I had a there. couple. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Dave, thank you as always, brother. We always love having you on the show, and uh, hope everything uh, gets better with, with uh, your health. I know you've been having some some issues lately, and we hope everything gets better. And uh, hey, you know. We'll, Glad to have you back on as soon as possible. So thank you as always. Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon, special edition number 60. Five full years. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, here we go. Five years. Hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. And we obviously thank everyone who's been sticking with us or however much they can support us throughout all this on the Patreon. Yeah, so that, some of you people have been supporting us for 60 months, basically. So, uh, wow, that, that is amazing that uh, that you've supported us for that long. And of course, those of you that have uh, came through at various times, left, came back, whatever, we definitely appreciate uh, all of you and everyone that has uh, took part in the Patreon, uh, whatever – little or big you gave we definitely appreciate that and we hope that uh you continue to support us as best you can as uh we're going to continue the patreon series with a lot of great ideas uh, going forward um you know some some ideas uh we thought maybe could be one time maybe at the way you know with, with uh how these formats go on these shows uh, so like this one, I was hoping to get this one done in one show, but that didn't happen. So we're going to have two shows on uh, the one, the subject we're going to talk about now. But We uh, knew that could happen. Well, hopes hopes were, were there. But anyway, um, but yeah, so um, yeah, this is uh, an interesting show as we're going back 25 years to discuss the birth of the new world order. And um, hard to believe it's been that long, but um, here we are, and wrestling was never the same after the the new world order and the the whole the beginning angle and everything going on. And it's it's definitely interesting to go back and look at a time in wrestling history where I mean, when you watch the television like I do, and uh, watch the older stuff, especially the mid nineties, I mean. The contrast between pre-NWO and after the NWO is staggering as far as television, how everything's presented, especially in WCW. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, oh, absolutely. If just because, for better or worse, the NWO adds a little bit of an edge. Well, it just changes the whole thing. It changes the dynamics of, of everything in the company. Yes, yes. I, you know, I don't think it's actually mentioned outright here, but the one, the one big, I mean, the biggest change is that you end up for a while with this weird limbo where everyone sort of has de facto babyface moments in WCW, even if they're heels and feuding with other babyfaces, and it kind of it's something you want to have happen in this scenario. I'm, I don't know if they pulled it off as best as they could have, but it really does shake up everything. Yeah, because, I mean, traditional it's not traditional wrestling anymore. Um, what was, you know, wrestling before, it's changed because now you have this faction of these heels that are these cool heels. Yeah, but there was the full horseman and stuff like that, but there was nothing like this where you had this group that was declaring war on a whole company. And yeah, whether it's babyfaces and heels in the traditional sense, they all have the, sh the common rival of this faction. And 
as we'll talk about more more about this as we go along but yeah it just it completely changed the business in in that way and uh and for the and for the better in a lot of ways because she got back and watched some that wcb television from early 96 and it's like wow you know they're in that period where hogan has got his creative control and all the main angles are involving him are just garmin shoes hot coffee the alliance Den, the hulkamania z gangsta the ultimate solution doomsday cage and they got good talent underneath but it's just like wow and and then the outsiders come in and it's just like nitro's changed forever so let's get into it all right, let's uh, go to the week of June the 3rd. Torch, June the 8th, and Server and Lariat, June the 10th. In one of the most tumultuous weeks in the history of Titan Sports, had a pay-per-view nearly destroyed by Mother Nature. It had its own spoof comedy segments knocking this competition turned into a strong angle for the opposition. And had the man scheduled to be their pay-per-view main event heel, scheduled to be their main event, pay-per-view main event heel for at least through the end of the summer, give notice. Toning down would have been up to that point considered one of the company's most creative storylines in a long time. Uh, who was that, Bix? That has to be David, right? Sounds that way, yeah. Yeah, because King of the Ring hasn't happened yet, so he has a pay-per-view main event coming up. And create one of their most creative angles in a long time. I can see why, they, why Dave would call it that. And why did he give notice again? He just gave notice to be able to renegotiate his contract or and test Yeah, because he stays. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't leave. But you had to be able to give notice to do that. Yeah. Striking back gets the work from interpromotion angle started one week earlier by WCW Nitro. Vincent Mann and Webb here to prepare lawyer statements in the June 3rd Raw show that Diesel and Razor Ramon were no longer part of the World Wrestling Federation, but that they intend to portray themselves as the stars they once were and were participating in a ruse that they're still part of the WF when they're under contract with a rival wrestling organization. They then encouraged their fans to call their 900 number. or log on to America Online for more details of the ruse perpetrated by Diesel and Razor Ramon. The stars they once were. In the addition, stars they once were. They were what? on your April pay-per-view. One of them was in the main event. Find that real quick while I read this. I want to hear Vince say that. Yeah. Uh, in, let me see. That's a, the... June 3rd, Raw. Uh, let me see if I can find it on YouTube, because it's a, otherwise I'll have to switch to the VPN in the middle of the thing. But let's see. All right, in addition, WF released a legal letter sent to Scott Hall, which informed Hall they believed he was infringing on Titan's intellectual property rights by still portraying the Razor Ramon character in WCW, and that Titan would be withholding all future payments, virtual merchandise checks, and, and the main in-your-house pay-per-view payoff, along with other monies not yet paid him. They owe Hall until the matter is settled. All right, the WF's online message stated... In an effort to further the blurred alliance between Ted Turner's wrestling organization and the World Wrestling Federation, Scott Hall, portraying WF wrestling character Razor Ramon, reappearing on WCW's television programming. The World Wrestling Federation wants to make it clear that there's no agreement with the Turner organization, nor will there ever be. Therefore, the following letter was sent to Scott Hall in an effort to make him aware of the copyrights in which he and World Championship Wrestling infringed. Dear Mr. Hall, this letter will sort of put you on notice of your deliberate infringement of Titan's intellectual property rights in connection with your appearance this past Monday on WCW's Nitro show. Having reviewed the tape of your appearance, the text of the various statements made by you during your appearance and the explicit references to past and ongoing storylines of Titan Sports, it is obvious that you were attempting by your appearance to suggest that the consuming public 
that you and the others from WF were now going to be appearing on Turner Networks and WCW programming as some sort of interpromotional storyline. The entire theme of the program, buttressed by WCW personnel afterwards, was that WF wrestlers were going to be wrestling WCW performers and that you were leading a group of WF talent in that effort. This is, of course, completely false and was intended to confuse the public. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, you stay completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon and register trademark of Titan Sports during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under WCW, choosing instead to tell the audience that they knew who you were. You dressed like Razor Ramon and utilized the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of the character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or the WCW, but will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your intent to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are in the character of Razor Ramon. In the capacity as a WF wrestler or as part of some interpromotional matches involving WF's participation. Accordingly, this is advised you that Titan has exercised its rights under the contract it had with you and will be withholding future payments from you until this matter is first cl- further clarified. Titan further reserves all rights it has to take any and all further actions as may be appropriate. And it's noted here the letter seemed to make no difference to WCW and Hall, which continued their planned angle with no backing down on June 3rd's Nitro. It's believed that it had been the first time since war at 1984 that a promotion has called another promotion's angle a ruse and tried to hurt a competing group's top angle on its own television show. All right, it looks like I found the uh, part of Raw where Vince reads this statement, which is in the middle of the Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Jake the Snake Roberts main event. Huh. I guess I don't need to screen share for this, so here we go. No, no, just, yeah. Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Into the arm bar now. Jake the Snake Roberts would like nothing better in his career to be the king of the ring. Jake has made a triumphant comeback to the World Wrestling Federation thus far. Despite, by the way, his 43 years of age. Yeah, well, he better hope he wins king of the ring because for sure this is his last hoorah. And speaking of last hoorahs, of course, Ted DiBiase is at his last hoorah here in the World Wrestling Federation. But likewise, a number of other individuals also have had their last hoorah no longer associated with the World Wrestling Federation in any manner. Big Daddy Cool Diesel as well as the bad guy Razor Ramon. And it has been reported that both of these individuals intend to pawn themselves off as the stars they once were here in the WWF and to furthermore perpetuate some sort of ruse that they're still representing the World Wrestling Federation while actually under contract to a rival organization. And right now, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is taking an exit <laughs> as it relates to Jake the Snake Roberts, and Jake the Snake thus far has befuddled on oh, Hunter right. Hearst Helmsley. Furthermore, it's amazing how, how he can do that and then go right back into the match. <laughs> Why even do that during a match? Why not, why, why not just do that in the aside? You know, I guess because they're not live in the building. It's obviously pre-tape. Yeah. Or they're in, the, they're in the studio. So I guess they can't do some type of... There's something you could do where it's not wedged into the middle of a match. Do it during the ring intros or something. During the entrances. Even. <laughs> a ruse. The stars they once were. Six weeks ago. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about this yet. It, one of the crowning achievements of Eric Bischoff's angle here is the fact that he used 
all that bull, being or Ted bullshit in his favor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Vince's pettiness towards Ted Turner basically set all this up. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't include in the notes, but there are various, uh, it looks like the Time Warner uh, Turner merger is going through items in the newsletter. Well, you know, yeah, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter here. But I'm just saying, it's hilarious how Vince's petty bullshit, and which we talked about on, on this show before, how it was a big waste of television time to do all that stuff when you could be pushing your talent, but yet you're pushing this bullshit you got in your mind against Ted Turner. And then what what does WCW do? Use that shit against you in this big angle. And also, something we should remember, too, because I don't think this part is really looked at or talked about enough anymore. Those Billionaire Ted skits did eventually get very unfair and twisted and mean-spirited. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> no, I mean, this is but the, specifically, though, the, the lithium stuff. Oh, yeah, we talked about I mean, we talked about that. I mean, I it's... Know. It's, it's just as Vince. That's what Vince does. But especially through the lens of like 25 years later, kudos to Ted Turner for being so open about his mental health issues. Yeah. You know, like it was it was bad then, especially since Vince also kind of tried to imply, including later, like a few years later when he's on Conan, he tried to tries to make it seem like like lithium is like a drug that gets you high. And that Turner's abusing it. It's just so stupid. So it's like, yeah, good for Eric. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.